Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Dandruff Wittellis. This is being brought to you live and recorded live. Right now the time is 9.52 p.m. on January 17th, 2020. We have a free roll, which got delayed because we started late tonight. I moved the free roll to 9.35 p.m., which is 17 minutes ago. You can still get in until 10 p.m. Pacific time. And we had a problem after a $500 free roll last week. Very big thanks to Eric Benzamokin. By the way, the winner of that free roll was former Poker Fraud Alert radio co-host Brandon Drexel-Gerson, in case you guys are wondering if he's still alive. Yes, he is. He, uh, he won the free roll. And he said he wants to give a big thank you to Eric, as I got other messages from those who won prizes in that free roll. We gave six places away of, of prizes. But after $500 last week, this week we were a bit light with the donations, and the free roll prize pool coming into the show was... Zero point zero. Which was a big problem. Eric saw that and stepped in. I was never going to ask him to donate more after the $500, but uh, he said, here, let me give you 100 And I, I don't know, I just... I felt bad about taking another 100 but not bad enough not to take it. So I took the 100 but I said, I'm going to split the 100 This was my decision, not his. $50 this week, $50 next week in case we don't raise money. If we do raise enough next week, then... Uh, We'll just hold that 50 for another time when we come short. But uh, especially because we got the free roll delayed. So I, I, just, I thought 50 is fine. We can't have 500 every week. 50 is the minimum we have. If we're going to have a free roll, it's going to be 50 or more. And if it's not, I usually just make up the difference myself, which doesn't happen often, but I have before. So I'll never hold a free roll for less than 50. But this week it's 50, which I think is fine. After 500 last week, you can't expect... Uh, Massive free rolls each week. I mean, the the field is small. You still have decent a decent shot at winning money. You still have better equity in this free roll than just about any free roll you can play, even the $50 free roll. That's why the $500 free roll is so tremendous, because we don't get a big field, and we're giving 500 away. I mean, there's sites that give 500 away, and they get thousands of entrants. We didn't even get 100, because most people listen through the archives. This show, some of you wonder how many people listen to this show. Well, it's, it's getting harder and harder for me to deduce that because there's a number of ways to listen, which I can't monitor. But uh, my estimate is between 1,500 and 2,000 people a week. But almost all of them listen not live. And that's partly because of the time we're on. We're on late in the evening. And even though now it's on Fridays, so it makes it a bit easier for those who work. Still... Eastern time, we usually come on after midnight, so that's tough for a lot of people to listen, even those on the West Coast who want to maintain a normal sleep schedule can't really listen to this show, especially in full, because we usually end up about 3 in the morning. So the free roll, five more minutes to get in, go to PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll, all lowercase, PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll, to read the rules to understand how to qualify for the free money. It's on the No Fraud Online Poker Room. I get a lot of people messaging me, I can't log into the free roll. My password doesn't work. I signed up, my password doesn't work. And I go, well, that's not possible. Well, it turns out, I, I know whenever they say that, I know what's happening. It means that they're trying to log into the forum. The forum and the free roll have two totally separate logins. Totally separate. If you've created an account on the forum, it will not work on the free roll on the Poker Room. You have to create a separate account on the Poker Room. Now, you can... 
use the same password. I wouldn't advise that because I don't run it. I mean, I trust Bellybuster who runs it, but just just for safety, you should use a different password. But you can. I don't think he's going to steal your password, nor will he see your password. It's, it's encrypted there. But just in practice, it's not good to use the same password and log in across different sites. So I just want to keep consistent and advise that. But to be honest, you're not really risking anything by using the same password in both the forum and the free roll. Anyway, you need to make a separate account on the free roll. Just click on No Fraud Online Poker, the little tab near the top of the screen on Poker Fraud Alert. Follow the instructions. It'll open the poker room. And if you have not made an account there, then make one. And it needs to be validated, as it will explain on PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll. And you have to follow the instructions, or you won't be able to get in, and then you can't win the free money. So make sure you understand the requirements. They're not very stringent at all. And then you can win some free money. Every week, pretty much. Once in a while, we don't have one. But usually we do. Starting in three minutes is the, well, starting, ending in three minutes is the late registration. Sometimes the free roll begins before the show begins, as happened tonight. But I just didn't want to delay it any further because it's getting late. It's almost 10 o'clock. We're going to round up Trader Ruski, who said he will come on the show. And we should have a few good hours with him tonight because it's Friday, because it's 10 o'clock. He usually goes to bed around 1, so he won't make it to the end, most likely. We have a lot of topics this week. But we'll get him. And then... Here What's happening, Druff? Hello, welcome, Trader Ruski. Thank you. This is interesting. I actually muted Skype because I didn't want any calls to mess up the WKRP in Cincinnati song I was playing. And somehow when I called you, the somehow Skype was smart enough to unmute itself. I was like, oh, no, 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 he's muted. But no, I didn't have to touch it. It unmuted itself. That's beautiful. Something worked well on Skype. It's shocking to me. And my girlfriend, she... I don't want to say what she does for work or even what industry she works in, but she, she has to deal with Microsoft directly sometimes, and she said they're awful. <laughs> she said just that's the worst company she has to deal with. And I said, yep, I know it. They messed up Skype. They make my life hell on this radio show. Okay, here's the uh, rest of the intro, and then we will get going. Oh, and drop, by the way, my two, my tw- I think I had like 22 bucks from two weeks ago for my second place that's out there somewhere for the free roll. Oh, I didn't know you were donating that. I just, I just thought you had. Oh, collected. yeah. Oh, okay. Well, no problem. Well, we'll, and we'll, then we'll, also we'll, another, another 20 since I won the, the bad guy tennis bet. I'll kick into whenever you need it. Okay, so well, I'll send thank you. you. Thank you. So we'll just, we'll hold off on that though, but thank you. I'll keep that in mind. Okay. So, uh, I got a t- message here on the, Poker Fraud Alert chat room from Bobby Orr saying, I had a crush on Bailey Quarters. Yeah, before I go through the rest of the intro, just a little bit about that. Bailey Quarters was one of the two female characters on WKRP in Cincinnati. The other one was uh, was Jennifer, played by Lonnie Anderson. Jennifer was the secretary, but she did a lot more than the secretary. And then Bailey Quarters was like, uh, eh, she kind of did like behind-the-scenes work at the radio station with her character. The intent of the show was for Lonnie Anderson to be the sex symbol, the one that all the guys have the crush on, and for it's, and for the Bailey Quarters character to just kind of be a, a shy, attractive but shy woman who doesn't get as much attention from the fans as Bailey Quarters. What the creators didn't end up expecting but happened was that 
Bay of the Quarters actually became probably a, a more crushed upon character by males watching the show than the Lonnie Anderson character. Because the Lonnie Anderson character kind of seemed unattainable and just kind of kind of like the really popular girl in school you figure you're never going to get to go out with. And Bailey Quarters was like this pretty, shy, understated girl that seemed like someone that would have dated you. It seems like someone who was not going to uh, be too arrogant or have dating standards that were ridiculously high. And, and like someone who was relatable. She seemed like a, a relatable person. Very pretty but also relatable, kind of like a girl next door type. So a lot of guys looked at her and they really had a crush on, on Bailey because they thought that uh, they just – they pictured these characters in real life and they could see themselves dating Bailey and they couldn't see themselves dating Jennifer. And that's why a lot of people – Probably like Marianne the Ginger, right? Right. That's been compared, yes. That's just like that. And that's, it was a very, very similar dynamic. So that was actually unexpected. And the casting – was done for the Bailey Quarters character was played by Jan Smithers, and she was an unknown actress at the time. But uh, the creator of the show, Hugh Wilson, was actually looking for someone who reminded him of his wife. Bailey Quarters was supposed to be similar to his wife, and she was the most similar to his wife and also most similar to what he had just envisioned the character. Like, her, her actual personality was similar to the character's personality. So they, she said, he said, okay, other actresses have tried after the part, and are more talented actresses, but this is exactly what I wanted for this character, so that's who I'm picking. So that's how she got picked, in case you guys are wondering. Okay, I, I know a whole lot about this show because I'm a big fan of it. So anyway, going on here. Let's uh, do the rest of Agenda. We'll get going. To call the show, as always, 775-FRAUD-55 is the phone number. 775-372-8355 is the number. You can also call the Mount Charleston line. It's an old 70s rotary telephone on the top of Mount Charleston. It's a cabin near the top of Mount Charleston. Forwards to me wherever I go. 702-430-1808 is that number. 702-430-1808, a separate line into the show, the Mount Charleston line. No matter which number you call, you have to show your caller ID. Otherwise, the call will not go through. If you want to text me before, after, or during the show... Same number as our main number, 775-372-8355. Never too late or too early to text me. It doesn't have to be during the show. Anytime you have something to say or you'd like to talk to me about something, whatever it is, just text me, 775-372-8355. I may read your text on the air unless you ask me at the beginning of the text not to do so. We have a chat room. Only during the live broadcast, if you're not listening live, then don't bother, but there's a chat room. You need a flash-enabled device, meaning no iPhones or iPads can get in, but other than that, you can probably get in if you're on a PC. I'm, I'm not sure if Macs can do it, but whatever. As long as you're on a computer and not a phone, you can probably get in, but you need Flash. Uh, click the chat button near the top of the screen, and you need a forum account in good standing to be able to chat there. The call to listen line is a way to listen to the show without needing a computer or even a smartphone or a data plan. It's just a number you call up, a regular phone number you call up and just listen to the show. Unlike other streaming shows, unlike other streaming platforms, the call to listen line never buffers. It just plays the show. Even if your connection is poor, even if you have zero bars and you can barely complete the call, it will never freeze up. It will just keep playing. No buffering, a no buffering guarantee. The call to listen number is 605 313 736. 
605-313-0736. And then there's some alternate numbers to the call to listen line. They're all up there. If you go to the radio tab on PokerFraudAlert.com, every number I've given out will be listed there. So you don't have to memorize this stuff. When we're not live on the air, you will hear streaming reruns on the call to listen line. Other ways to listen to the show live, you just need to go to the radio tab, and it should auto-play. If it does not, just scroll down a little bit, and you'll see different devices we support. You just click on the link for whatever device you have, or click on the general link if it's not listed, and it should just play the show automatically. You can also use the TuneIn app. The TuneIn app actually has two entries for Poker Fraud Alert Radio. One is the archives, one is the live show. If you go to the live show... They're listed the same way, but you just try them both. One will be live, one won't be. You'll be able to tell. That's a way to listen live. To listen to the show in the archives, to hear completed episodes from 2012 to present, there's a number of ways to do it. iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Bullhorn. These are all apps, of course, that you can use to listen to the show in podcast format. You can also just download or play the MP3 directly from... Poker Fraud Alert, just click on the little MP3 button on the radio page. It'll take you to the little radio archives forum, and you can click on whatever episode you want and play it. Just to let you know, you can play MP3s on your phone or computer, most likely without any kind of separate player. It'll just play if you click on it. It's a very easy way to play the show. So a lot of different ways to listen. Amazon Alexa can be used to listen to the archives. Just say, Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio, and it'll play the last episode that was broadcast. If you say Alexa previous, or sorry, Alexa next, it'll go to the previous episode. It's backwards. You can't listen to the live show anymore on Alexa. They took that away from everybody. Don't know why, but they took it away. They're always changing things, and there's not much I can do about it. I have no control over that matter. All right, so I think that's just about everything except the agenda itself. Then we'll get going. We have a lot of topics this week. A lot of topics. We're not going to spend a ton of time on any particular topic, but if you like a rapid-fire, lot-of-topic show, this is a good show for you. I got a message recently from a listener who was praising the show, saying that it's their favorite show because it covers it's, it's the best at covering poker and gambling topics of any show they listen to. And I appreciate that. That's this person's opinion, of course. Maybe, maybe there's better out there, but... I try. That's what I try to do on this show. I, I try to make it entertaining, too, but I really try to cover topics which I think you'll care about in the world of poker and gambling. I spend hours each week, several hours each week, going through news topics on poker and gambling, and I pick the ones that I think are going to be good for the show. There's other things happening out there that I don't talk about, but I think uh, the stuff I don't talk about I think is going to be boring to you or not very relevant to, or not very good for radio. But if you listen to this show every week, I guarantee you'll have a very good idea of everything going on in the poker and gambling world. I don't skip anything major, and I try to pick what I think you, the listener, are going to want to hear. That's how I come up with these things every week. So thank you to the person who messaged me that. Here's the agenda this week. I'm going to give two updates. Last week, a lot of people were interested in our beginning of the show prank call, which turned into a non-prank call. That's where I had returned a call, a weird call I had gotten of a girl who was looking for, quote, her sperm donor. And we called her back. We did a, I did the whole Dwight Thornwood character and 
of course, didn't say who I really was. And once I found out what her story was, I felt bad and I told her the truth of what was really going on. So the prank call ceased there, but then we talked about it. Turned out she was looking for her real dad. She was conceived through a sperm donor and had just found it out at the age of 22. And we texted afterwards, talked to her some about everything. I'll give you an update. Some people wondered what happened with that girl. What was the update on that one? So, yes, I did talk to her privately, and I'll tell you how that conversation went. Another update. Remember that Mike Possel blog we talked about last week, that weird blog that was run by some guy in Florida? And I said, no, this is just some guy who wants clicks to his blog and his affiliate program. He's just trying to put up something controversial. I doubt he knows Possel. This has just got to be someone exploiting the situation. Well, I was wrong. It turns out that this mysterious pro-Possel blog was actually written by a friend of Mike Possel. I got correct who was running the blog, but I did not know that he and Possel were associated. They didn't seem to be. They were across the country from one another, but yes, they are friends. And yes, this was written because he likes Possel and maybe Possel even asked him to do it. So that's, I'll give you the details on that. North Carolina has released a hilarious Play Smart campaign regarding their state lottery. They're going to teach you how to play the lottery smart. The real smart way to play the lottery is don't play the lottery. But there's a Play Smart campaign, including two videos. And as soon as I saw the two videos, I said, I know I'm going to have to play these on Poker Fraud Alert Radio. If you ask me what my favorite thing is to do regarding doing this show, like what I personally enjoy doing the most, I enjoy playing videos and laughing at them. So I said, I have to do that this week. So we're going to, I'm going to play you the play smart videos from the North Carolina state lottery and then read you some passages from their webpage. <laughs> it really is funny. I'm not looking down on responsible gambling, but this, this is just a really funny campaign. Not meant to be funny, but it is funny. The World Series of Poker has released more of its schedule for 2020, but still not the full schedule. They're dropping a little bit at a time, which is kind of weird. This time they've dropped the value menu of events. That's what they call it, the value menu of events $1,000 and less. I'm talking about the buy-in for each one. So we'll talk about that, and I'll talk to you about a small controversy over the term value menu that they chose to use. Prahlad Friedman wants to bet you that he can prove that you think about gay sex. I kid you not. He tweeted this. I will tell you all about this ridiculous line of tweets. I I try to look at Prahlad's Twitter every so often and Kate Hall's Twitter every so often, but it's tough because they have me blocked. So I have to log out and I have to look at it under uh, either a fake account or an account that – or not log in, but I think if I don't log in, I can't see as much. So it's, it's kind of a pain. It's harder to keep, to keep track of them. Is those two, they have just endless unintentional entertainment on their Twitters. But this week it's Perlod we're going to talk about. The limousine liberal wigger of poker. Talk, talk about uh, how he really thinks that he can prove that you fantasize about gay sex. Yes, I mean you. Speaking of making fun of people on Twitter, Matt Berkey, who I have no problem with. I have no issue with Matt Berkey. In fact, I, uh, I I thought highly of what he did during the whole Possel thing with 
the possible cheating method and the videos he made trying to theorize what was going on. He runs a training program called Solve for Why. And I didn't have much of an opinion or knowledge about the program. I knew it existed, but I didn't know much about it. But I was making fun of the description of the program on Twitter, which I felt was pretentious. And that got his attention. And then it went from there. So I'll tell you what happened between me and Matt Berkey this week over his training program. Here's something that is not smart to do. If you want to go gamble at a gas station... You should not leave your 16-month-old child in a running, unlocked car while you do it. Well, that's what a white trash Texas couple did. They gambled at a Shell gas station, and then the car got stolen by two young criminals who probably didn't know there was a baby in the back. And then the baby got abandoned by the criminals when they discovered the baby. I'll tell you about this obnoxious story, and also... How the hell are there slot machines in Texas, I thought, because I had always been led to believe that Texas is one of those states where there are absolutely no type of uh, slot machine casinos. In fact, poker rooms aren't even legal there. There's very It's very hard to gamble in Texas in general. So I'm like, how could there be slot machines in a Shell gas station in Texas? And I think I got my answer to that, too. So that's an interesting side story. We can tack on to that one. If you want to play on the Ignition Casino or the Ignition Poker Room, which is a skin of Bovada, you can no longer do so if you're in Australia. They have ordered their internet service providers to ban connections to Ignition and to eight other online gambling sites. If you want to gamble at Harris Reno, you're not going to be able to do that anymore very soon. It's been sold for $50 million. It's going to not only stop being a Caesars property, it's going to stop being a casino. Speaking of casinos that were sold, El Dorado, the company that has bought Caesars, even though the deal has not been quite finalized yet, but it almost surely will be, they are selling the El Dorado Casino in Shreveport, Louisiana, and Mont Blue in Lake Tahoe, which they also own, is up next to be sold. I'll tell you about why these sales are happening. An elderly man who's had Nevada plates saying Elvis since 1978 has been getting unpleasant surprises in the mail. I guess at this point it's not a surprise anymore, where he's getting moving violation tickets from other states where he's never been. And some of these states refuse to dismiss the tickets, even if he can prove that he was not physically in the state. I will tell you how this is happening and what he's had to do in order to fight these tickets. Here's something having nothing to do with poker or gambling, but I'm going to talk about it anyway. I saw it on Twitter today. It's a pretty ridiculous story. But I always talk about the consumer-type situations I get involved with and my fights with companies, with things. Well, we're going to talk about a situation which you may or may not be surprised what position I take. If Target or any other store lists an item, say, is worth like $60, and they accidentally list it for one cent. If you're walking through the aisles and it says one cent, do they have to honor the posted price? So we'll talk about that, and I'll talk about a real-life situation that's going on where that exactly happened. And I'll give you my opinion on the matter. A weird lawsuit is going on in Australia involving a failed poker backing deal, and 
The best way to describe it is weird. I'll tell you about it when we get to that segment. Online poker has been legalized in another state. A semi-large state, Michigan, now has legalized online poker. You can't play it, but it has been legalized. Speaking of states legalizing gambling, the opposite thing happened in Maine. They were all ready to have sports betting approved, but the governor vetoed it. I have released on Poker Fraud Alert an updated list of the best video poker at Caesars Properties to earn diamond or seven stars. This was a list I published initially about four years ago, but a lot of this has changed since then, and I hadn't updated it very much. But I, I put the time in, I updated that, and I updated a general post, a separate post about Caesars Rewards, a.k.a. Total Rewards, also updating a lot of info. This is very useful if you have an interest in Caesars Rewards or earning Diamond or Seven Star, especially if you're going to go to the World Series and you're going to play a lot of events, you're going to want to be Diamond. So we'll talk a bit about that. I'll tell you where to find these posts. I'm not going to give you all the information in the post. You'll have to read it yourself. It wouldn't make good radio to just list it all, but I'll tell you where to find them and tell you some relevant things you may want to know. Remember I talked last week about Eric Bendemokin's nightmarish situation at Hollywood Park where it took uh, all those three and a half hours to get paid for a bad beat jackpot and his friend actually lost more money than he won from the table share of the bad beat jackpot? Well, another Poker Fraud listener had a nightmarish bad beat jackpot payout situation, which is even worse than Eric's. So I'll tell you about that one and where it occurred. Finally, a lot of talk this week about the Houston Astros and their sign-stealing scandal. And undoubtedly, the Dodgers and other teams got screwed in 2017 when the Houston Astros were cheating. The Dodgers ultimately lost that World Series four games to three. They probably would have won the World Series if this wasn't going on. It's very possible the Astros would have lost the ALCS to the Yankees if this wasn't going on. In 2018, it looks like the Boston Red Sox were doing the same thing because the ringleader of this cheating moved over to the Red Sox. So did the Dodgers really get screwed two years in a row in the World Series by cheating? And how do I feel about it as a big Dodgers fan? That'll be the final topic of the week. Very, very long topic list this week. Hope I can get through it all. So let's start right at the beginning here. I want to give you an update on what happened with the girl that we called last week. I got different reactions from the Poker Fraud Alert audience about this. And some people were unhappy with the fact that I abandoned the prank call premise of it midway and dropped the fake accent and dropped the fake name and told her the truth. Some people thought this would have been much funnier if I had gone on with a whole shtick of Dwight Thornwood, who supposedly worked at a sperm donation clinic. But I couldn't do it. This was someone who didn't deserve that. This was a girl who's looking for her real father. I don't want to be heartless. I don't want to give her false hope. I, I just didn't want to go further with it. I mean, the portion I did was funny, but it was time to end that part of it, and I kind of changed the premise of the call at that point to wanting to help out, which is tough to do. It's a lot of these sperm donors, they make it tough intentionally to be found. They don't want to be found. A lot of them just want to donate sperm, get paid, and never meet the kids, which I could never do. I could never do that. I could never just 
donate sperm and know I have kids out there that I'm never going to meet or have a relationship with, if I ever came to find that I had kids that I didn't know about, which I think is very unlikely because I kept in enough contact with every girl I had sex with to where had they gotten pregnant, they would have told me. Like there's many I've fallen out of contact since, but for nine months I was reachable by, I believe, all of them. So I'd be very surprised if I have a kid that I don't know about. It's technically possible if one just didn't tell me or maybe thought it was from somebody else and uh, it turned out as my kid. I did have a moment where I was kind of surprised last year where someone found a picture of a EMT in Northern California who looked very, very much like me from when I was in my late 20s. I don't know how old the guy was, but there's a fairly clear picture of his face. His face looks incredibly like the way mine did about 20 years ago. His hair looked incredibly similar to what mine did 20 years ago. His body type seemed very similar to mine 20 years ago, though I couldn't tell how tall he was in the picture. But aside from the height, I couldn't determine the, the rest of his body type looked a lot like mine. I mean, there, an incredible resemblance. And I thought, hmm, you know, what, what if that is my son from when I was very young? And unfortunately, I couldn't figure out who that was. But if, if it turned out he was, I, I doubt he was for the reasons I told you. But if it turned out he was, I would I would want a relationship with him. I wouldn't hide from it. Even if it's, I'd feel bad that I missed out on, on seeing him grow up and he'd be in his 20s and meet him at that point. But it'd be better than nothing. You know, like I, I, I could not abandon any of my kids, even if I were to meet them later in life. But sperm donors, they do that usually because they just want to get money for their sperm and do not want to know the kids. And presumably a lot of these kids will have someone acting as their father anyway. It'll be The sperm will be taken probably by a couple that just can't have kids. I know sometimes lesbians get them too, but yeah, there's still two parents there, just not a mother and father. Anyway, this girl was told by her mom You'll hear on last week's show if you want to go listen to her. She came home from college for winter break, and her mom broke it to her. Uh, you know your dad? He's not your dad. <laughs> He's, I got the sperm for you and your sister from uh, a sperm donation clinic, and she actually presented this girl with the paperwork on this guy. The paperwork was from early 1995. Now, this girl is 22, but uh, her sister's a little bit older, so she used the same sperm from this guy for both this girl and her sister. So it really is a full sister she has, even though the father is a sperm donor. And I guess she went back to the clinic and got the guy's same sperm about two years later to have this girl. So she was trying to look for who her biological father was, especially because, according to her, and she said this on air, that she had a bad relationship with her father. And... Presumably she was looking for who her real father was and maybe he could start a relationship with a better father. I didn't bother to ask her what her father had done or why she thought he was a horrible father, but she said that. And she said that when she knew she was on the show, too. So I said to her that I will try to help. Now, the way she called me was that my number, she claimed, was once the phone number 
of the clinic where her mom got the sperm. Now, I was doubting that at first. She told me this when she originally called me two days prior to the last show. She thought I was the sperm clinic. And I was kind of doubting that because I knew the history of my phone number. My phone number, which I've had for about 10 years, belonged to a friend of mine. And I knew he had it at least since the mid-90s, maybe longer. And he was moving. In fact, he moved to Las Vegas. And he was moving. He was going to lose that and some other good phone numbers he had. So I said, oh, I'll take him off your hands. So I actually ended up taking two phone numbers from him, one of which I kind of just have parked, which I'm not using at the moment, and the other one I'm using as my cell phone. And we did this transfer about 10 years ago. So I knew who owned this number going back many, many years. But I figured it was possible that before the mid-90s that it was a sperm clinic. And sure enough, she sent me the letterhead of this paperwork from the early 90s. And in fact, she sent me all the paperwork via text. And yes, this phone number I have was once a clinic that <laughs> that you could uh, use to donate sperm or buy sperm. The clinic actually still exists, but it has moved. And obviously the phone number has changed. If you wonder if I've ever gotten a call like this before, given the history of my phone number, the answer is no. This is the first time I've heard about this, probably because we're talking about a 25-year or more time frame. It couldn't be more, but about 25 years we're looking at that the number hasn't been a sperm clinic. But she sent me all the paperwork. It looked authentic. Like this wasn't fake paperwork. It is possible like she told me that her mother is kind of hard to trust. She said that she doesn't even know if this is true. She said her she found out that her mother was having an affair for 30 years, she said. And that she's not even sure if perhaps the guy her mom was having the affair with is actually her father. I said, "Well, can't you find that out?" <laughs> Can't you figure that out? And she said, well, the problem is he has a lot of similarities to this guy who was supposedly the sperm donor, so it's kind of hard to tell right off the bat. Now, you might wonder, okay, well, did she use something like 23andMe or Ancestry, one of these services where you can send in your DNA and then they find relatives yours? Why, why can't she just find some relative of her biological father and deduce who he is? Well, she did that. She, this isn't a dumb girl. Like I, I talked to her about all the different possibilities, and she had done pretty much, I would say all of it, but most of, most of what I suggested she had already done, including obvious things like using 23andMe. The problem was, and she sent me the results of this, she did not turn up any close relatives on that side. There were a few distant relatives that came out, but it would be ones she'd have to call up and really go over their family tree with them and have to put in a lot of work, and that's if the person's willing to cooperate, uh, put in a lot of work to find who her father was. Now, what information do I have on her biological father? Well, her biological father, according to the paperwork, was, is in his late 40s, and he had an interest in radio, and he is Jewish, and he has a father who is from Israel but now lives in the U.S. Trader Risky, uh, would you happen to know anybody who fits that description? I think I may be talking to him right now. 
Uh oh, I'm not even kidding about that. The that description that that was the description that was on the paperwork. So could I be her father? Remember, she's only 22. Well, the one thing that lets me off the hook here. Well, two things. One, I didn't ever give my sperm to a clinic, and number two, the guy was five foot ten. So that I'm nowhere near five foot ten. I'm not taller than five foot ten. So wasn't me, thankfully. But yes, everything I told you there is true. And the the thing which could probably be used if it was to really be investigated, and I, I tried to look into this, but I drew a blank because it's so long ago. Her parents were both, or not her parents, her grandparents were supposedly both Israel and Germany diplomats. Kind of weird. There were diplomats to Israel and Germany that was listed on the form the mother and father of the sperm donor, who would be her grandparents. They're probably not alive anymore. Maybe they could be, but they're probably not. I'm guessing her father was probably alive, and you may wonder, how old was the guy? Well, I'm still wondering that, because there was something weird. It said he was born in 1965, and that he donated at the end of 94 and early 95, and he was 29. But, for his schooling, it listed that he finished high school in 1989, which would have made him 24 at the time of graduating high school, which makes no sense, and that he went to college and graduated two years later in 91. And just in case you think that a junior college, it mentioned, it mentioned he went to grad school right after that and finished that program in 94. So none of this makes any sense. A 24-year-old high school graduate, and then he only goes to college for two years and somehow goes to grad school? What the heck? So there's got to be something wrong with... One of those two pieces of information, either he's really born later than 65. If he graduated in 89, he was probably born in 71. But then still the schooling doesn't make sense. How do you only go two years of college and then get into grad school? Or I think the schooling is wrong. I think either he wrote it down wrong or they typed it wrong. Who knows? Uh, Let's see what else that was of interest. That was, I think that's mainly it. But the fact that she couldn't come up with any kind of close or even semi-close relatives from these ancestry sites uh, is really going to make it tough. As I said, the company still exists, but they may not even have his name. Even if they want to help, they may not have his info. A lot of times these guys would do it by number, and they would not give their information. It was, in many cases, set up so these guys could not be found under any circumstances. It's become a little bit easier because of these DNA sites that didn't exist at the time. But there's a decent chance that if the guy is located, that he would not want a relationship with her anyway. He might or might not. Maybe he's changed in 25 years. Maybe he'd be curious about this. But maybe he gave a lot of sperm. Maybe he doesn't want to meet 100 different kids who also could have a claim on any inheritance. It said he worked in broadcasting on radio as far as like kind of like news. I got the impression from reading it that he was some kind of radio news reporter at the time. But he couldn't have been that successful of one if he's donating sperm on the side. So he may have been just kind of a, I I don't know, maybe like a minor radio news reporter on a small station and didn't get paid very much. I guess it is possible he could have gone on to have a better career in L.A. radio. It's possible maybe he is an L.A. radio host that, that I know or know of and... I just haven't put it together in my head yet. 
because he was into radio and into broadcasting, and he was working in like news on radio in the mid '90s. So he claimed. She theorized that he went to CSUN, Cal State University Northridge. That's a good guess, because they have that type of program there, and that's in the LA area. And uh, the sperm clinic was in the San Fernando Valley, and that's where Cal State Northridge is. So there's a good chance that is where he went for broadcasting. But unless he became someone well-known, it'll be hard to deduce who he is. So I think we've hit a brick wall, but I attempted to help. I don't know if she's going to find him, but I wish her luck. So that's the update to that situation. You may wonder, do I have a picture of her? Answer, no. I did not ask that. I felt that would be creepy. I'm a little bit curious what she looks like, but uh, like, how do I ask that? She knows I'm an older guy. I told her that on the radio. The go, hey, uh, can you send me a picture? Can I see what you look like? Can you make sure that you're uh, not wearing very much? Yeah, yeah, let's see another one. Like, like what am I supposed to say to her? Like, I, I, I can't, there's no reason I can ask the, for the picture. So it's, it's something where if, if it were easy to find, like, I don't have her last name either. So if I had her last name, I could probably locate a picture of her online. But I wouldn't do, I wouldn't post it anyway because she hasn't given permission for that. I would want to see out of my curiosity, but no, I don't know what she looks like. I had, I had people asking me privately, so what do you think that girl looks like? Or do you know what she looks like? But no, I don't know. I didn't ask. I'm not going to ask. So that's the update. For those who are interested in that story, if you want to hear the call, it is kind of a humorous call. Go to last week's show. It's near the beginning. Okay, update number two, totally unrelated to that, has to do with Mike Possle. Mike Possle, we hadn't given any news regarding him in a while because there wasn't any news. Everything's kind of slow moving with that situation. But it was found that there was a blog that claimed it's going to prove that Mike Postle's results were not as crazy as they seem, and that while you can't prove he didn't cheat, that this blog is basically making the case it's being very, very much exaggerated that his results were impossible to have attained without cheating. And he claimed everybody had an agenda, that people were benefiting from calling him a cheater and branding him a cheater and making videos about him being a cheater, that... Everybody jumped on this train either just to jump on a bandwagon or because they were exploiting it for views or profit. But in reality, everyone's jumping to the wrong conclusion that his results were totally within normal range. And this guy claimed he's going to prove it. But there was no name on the article. It was on a site called rounderlife.com, rounderlife.com, which people had not heard of before. Last week, we went over what rounderlife.com is. I had done some research on it before the show, and I found that it's owned and it always has been owned for the last 11 years by a guy named Everett Caldwell, who is 56 years old and lives in Florida, seems to be a recreational poker player. And they tried to start a magazine related to Rounder Life at one point called uh, Rounder Magazine. And at one point, there was actually a lawsuit involving Rounder Magazine where a company called Compass Entertainment Group which owned the rights of the name Rounder Poker Club, tried to sue them, which I thought was foolish because Rounder Magazine never went anywhere. It's not like it became a big thing. But I figured when the whole thing was said and done, especially because the guy tried to run affiliate stuff from his site for a long time, pretty much ever since it went up, 
in 2008, that it's always been a fail site. No one's ever heard of it. He could never get any traffic there. No one ever cared about it. I thought, okay, well, maybe since he's revived Rounder Life, it was down for a few years and went back up, maybe this was his way to get attention. And in fact, it was working. We were talking about Rounder Life. You went to Rounder Life to go look at it, which you never would have done or even known about Rounder Life if I had not brought it up on this show, if others hadn't brought this up on social media. So I thought, well, yeah, it kind of worked. He is getting attention. Well, there's more to that. I had said at the time, I don't think this guy knows Possel. It doesn't make any sense. He's way older than Possel. He's like probably 25 years older than Possel is. Lives on the other side of the country. I don't see any way the two would have known each other. Maybe, but they probably don't know each other, I said. Well, I was wrong. They do know each other. Haley Hintz, probably the best uh, investigative reporter in poker. Boy, did she do some great work when it came to the Absolute Poker and UB scandals, especially Absolute Poker. And she's done a lot of great work investigating a lot of other things in poker and gambling. When I'm reading news sites to find interesting stories to talk about, a lot of times the knowledge I gain of what's going on comes from her articles initially. So a big fan of Haley Hintz. I've met her before in in person, and uh, I see her around the World Series. She works uh, there sometimes, and uh, I say hello when I see her around. And, and we get along well. But she found out, and this eventually got spread around social media, that Everett Caldwell is not just a simple blog and affiliate site owner. Everett Caldwell is a friend of Mike Postles. How did she figure this out? Well, it turned out that on rounderlife.com, there's actually an old PDF of Rounder Magazine, which did exist at some point. I'm not sure. It's an, episode, an issue from uh, October 2008. So this is near the beginning of Rounder Life. And if you look at the list of people who work on the magazine, if you go to the like fourth page or Sixth page, the page listed is number four on this October 2008 uh, edition of the magazine. It says, marketing and promotions. Everett Caldwell, who is also the owner. And then Mike Postle. In fact, Mike Postle had an email address at Rounder Life at that time. Postle at rounderlife.com. I don't think that works anymore. This is back in 08. But yes, back in 08, you could email a young Mike Postle at uh, postle at rounderlife.com. <laughs> so he's known Everett Caldwell for over 10 years. He worked at Rounder Life. They've probably maintained a relationship for some time. I don't know if they talk every day or anything, but they're still friends. And Postle was probably complaining to Everett Caldwell about how everybody hates him now. And Everett Caldwell said, hey, well, you know, I'm getting Rounder Life going again. How about I write an article which will cast some seeds of doubt in people's minds? And Postle probably said, sweet, let's do it. Now, I don't think Postle himself wrote that article. I have a feeling the article was probably Caldwell's idea. I have a feeling that these are just friends and Caldwell probably really believes that his buddy's innocent. 
Mike probably conned him into believing that. That's just my guess here. And Caldwell's like, oh, I feel bad for you, Mike. Everyone's just, everyone's out for blood. You've become a hated person in poker, and I believe you. I believe you didn't do anything wrong. But you know what? I'm, I'm starting my, my magazine and my website again. Maybe I can do a story and show everybody how wrong they are and how they're all jumping to the wrong conclusion. Now, you might wonder, is it possible that Caldwell has a point? Is it possible that everyone has been jumping to the wrong conclusion? Maybe there's a small chance that Mike Postle's innocent. No. Even using Everett Caldwell's numbers, and he didn't go into full detail, but even the numbers he's giving, Caldwell's case is basically everyone doubled the numbers, essentially. He's claiming that they're, they're saying that Mike Postle's win rate was twice what it really was. Well, okay, even if we take Everett Caldwell's conclusion that his win rate was really half of what was reported, that's still too much. I said this last week. Even if Postle won half of what was said he won, there's no way to have done that without cheating. (laughs) So the point stands. The numbers were so insane that just dividing by two does not make him look innocent. You divide it by ten, then it's more reasonable. Divided by two, he does not look innocent. So it doesn't matter. Doesn't, even if what he's saying is true, Apostle's still guilty. I haven't gone back to see if he updated the article, but it's rounderlife.com. But just keep in mind, anything you read there was written by Everett Caldwell, a friend and former associate of Mike Postle. It's, it's right there on the PDF, and people have been posting screenshots of that little section showing Postle with a Rounder Life email address. You know you can't take seriously any analysis of Postle's play from rounderlife.com when there was once an email address of Postle at rounderlife.com. Right, right there, there goes their objectivity. And by the way, they didn't disclose this. This was something that Haley found by digging. This was nothing that was disclosed by the author of this, nor does the author even name himself. This was assumed to be an anonymous article, as just by looking at the domain registration and connecting dots, it was obvious that the article was written by Everett Caldwell, who also runs Rounder Life. So that's the update there. This is actually a site run by Apostle Friend, and obviously nothing to see here other than to laugh at it. If someone who is truly neutral, and I knew wasn't doing this for attention, were to write a piece about how Apostle might be innocent, I probably wouldn't agree with it, but at least I could read it with an open mind. But I can't read it with an open mind if it's coming from a guy who's really an old friend of Apostle's that doesn't identify himself as such. So right there, it has to be just discounted immediately. Okay, I want to talk about the New Hampshire lottery. The New Hampshire lottery, not New Hampshire, the North Carolina lottery. Let's start again. I want to talk about the North Carolina lottery and a campaign they're putting out, a public relations campaign called Play Smart. Now, it is true that some people play the lottery irresponsibly. Even though most lotteries return about half of the money that's put into it, which is awful. It's really a 50% return, which is much, much worse than even slot machines. Like slot machines tend to return like 85% to 90%. This is returning 50%. It's, it's horrible. People who play the lottery, by the way, to win small amounts of money are really the dumbest ones. 
the one thing that can be said for playing the lottery is that even if it's negative EV, that you're really not going for EV. You're going – like for the lotto, you're going for the huge score. So it doesn't matter so much what your expectation is if your chance of winning is almost zero. You're just looking to strike lightning and win something huge. So even if you're getting underpaid for winning huge, you're still getting huge money. Or if your odds are worse than one-to-one, which of course they are, you're not playing for that reason. You're, you're playing just to hit a huge, huge, life-changing score. But it really doesn't make sense to play the lotto where the maximum prize you're going to win is like 10 k where you have a tiny chance to win that, and where the most likely big prize you're ever going to win is like 500 bucks. That's You're getting the worst of both worlds. You're, you're getting terrible value, terrible value, and the best of the best upside isn't even that good. But anyway, back to this. The lottery, one criticism of lotteries is that they are typically played the most by those who can't afford to play them. Rich people don't play the lottery because they don't need the money. People who are middle class or upper middle class, they'll play occasionally for fun, especially if the jackpot starts getting big for the lotto, but they're, they're not that mesmerized by the lottery either. They either know it's a bad deal or the, uh, they just think the chance of winning is so small or they feel they're living well enough to where the, the, the temptation to win it isn't as great. But it's those who have the least that dream about winning the lottery the most. And often these people will buy a lot of tickets, more than they can afford. Sometimes these people will even buy these scratcher tickets where you're not ever going to win a giant prize, but where they're trying to shoot for things like the $500 prize. And, of course, almost all of them lose long-term because the odds are so horrible. So these are things that are happening, and there's been criticism of state lotteries that even they, even though they raise money for the state, they do it off the backs of poor people. And these are all fair criticisms, and I'm not going to dispute them or really discuss them, but... What I am going to discuss here is the North Carolina Play Smart campaign, which I just I found to be so funny. So they put out this website trying to explain to people that the lottery is not something you should do to seriously try to make money. That basically it's you can play for fun once in a while, but do not spend a lot of money on it. Definitely don't play what you can't afford. Don't expect it's going to support you in any way. Things that should be obvious and probably it's obvious to you, obvious to me, but people who play the lottery a lot can get delusional. And that's fine. But the way they did this is just comical. I mean, like, it, it's funny in two ways. It's kind of funny and sad. It's, it's, it's funny, like, how ridiculous this whole campaign is. But it's a little bit sad that some of the people watching it may actually learn something. But still, I think it's kind of stupid. So, I, again, I don't think that educating people about the lottery is stupid, but the way they're going about it, you'll hear. So I'm just going to jump right into the videos. They released two videos of uh, the Play Smart campaign. And these are not just regular videos of uh, you know, explaining things like I'm doing here. These are videos of this guy who's the lottery coach. And the lottery coach shows up to make sure that people are playing the lottery in a responsible manner and stops them and has heart-to-heart discussions with them as they are playing the lottery irresponsibly. So I'm going to play this to you, and I'm going to stop and make comments as as we go through it. (laughs) 
this one's called Set a Budget. That little intro was just showing the guy in all these stupid poses, and it says, Play Smart, Set a Budget. Like They make the, the coach really look like stupid and wacky, too. So there's like a serious topic, but it's a wacky video. Time out, time out, time out. Who are you? I'm your play smart, champ. Here to help you make an informed decision before you play the lottery. Now he's talking to a guy who's about to buy lottery tickets at a convenience store. Let's go! You can't go pro in a lottery, so don't quit your day job. There's no such thing as a professional lottery player. <laughs> you have to see these videos, too. But if you want to see these videos, you go to nclottery.com, North Carolina Lottery, nclottery.com slash smart with capitals on the P and S and play smart nclottery.com slash playsmart. So he's actually showing there's, there's two basketball hoops in the middle of the convenience store, and he's lecturing this guy, this young guy with a beard, that you, you, can't, you can't play the lottery for a living. So no matter how good you think you are, it's not an alternative to work. Well, now, before you play, you got to ask yourself this question. What happens if I don't win? Can I afford it? And if you can't, well, you should sit this one out. You know, ride the pine until you're ready. Warm the bench. You know is this corny or what? He's acting like he's giving a pep talk to this guy, a pep talk to his team, except it's a guy buying a lottery ticket in a convenience store. Always set a budget. Stick to it. Handle your daily expenses before you play. That always comes first. Zoom. Bam. Sweet. Now, he's... You can't see this. You have to see the video. But he's he's throwing basketballs into two baskets. So first he's throwing three basketballs into the daily expenses basket. And then he's throwing it in the play lottery basket. And the point we're trying to learn here is that you have to throw the basketball into the daily expenses basket first. So you pay your daily expenses first. Then you play the lottery. Now, I want to know what we're saving money. How about daily expenses, save money, and then if there's money left over that you really feel you don't have to save, play lottery. Or maybe, maybe play lottery like a dollar or two a week. No, here they're saying, once you've paid your daily expenses, go go all out, play the lottery. You can't control or improve your chances of winning, but you can't control how much you spend. And remember, win or lose, it's all about having a good time. Got it, coach. When you play the lottery, play smart. Brilliant. By the way, the coach here apparently isn't a very good basketball player. When they showed him shooting the baskets, they would quickly cut away from him and then just show the ball going in. The younger guy who he was giving the pep talk to, they actually showed him making a basket at the end. Though I do wonder if they had to keep reshooting that. Because he was shooting, I don't know, from a fairly far distance. Not really far, but... I have to think it probably took more than one time for him to make the basket, but at least the coach, they just didn't even try. But I don't think I like the message here. I like part of the message, but I, what it sounds like they're saying here is if you can't afford it, don't lose, but if you can pay all your expenses and you want to blow, blow the rest of the lottery, cool, go, go ahead. The, notice they don't say if you don't have much of savings and you, you don't have much money, Maybe you should save money and play a few dollars a week on the lottery. They don't say, they never say a few dollars. They never say stick to like under five dollars. They don't want to say that because as much as they want to make it look like they're encouraging responsible gaming with the lottery, they also want to make money on the lottery because every dollar that's not spent on the lottery, the state loses 50 cents. So 
they, they don't want to convince you too much not to play. They don't want to convince you too much to moderate your spending on the lottery. They just want to make sure you're not going to be out on the street because you can't pay your rent. But as if, if you want to have zero savings and be able to eat and keep a roof over your head and the lights on, then they're cool with it. And that's really missing. If they really want responsible gaming, they would say, if you don't have much money, if you are if you have a lower income, if you don't have a lot of money put away for an emergency, do that first and really keep your spending on the lottery to like $5 or less per week. They don't, they don't give any dollar figure of what the most is spent. But hold on a second. There's a second video here called Know Your Limits. I'm going to play Know Your Limits and maybe we can learn about uh, what your limits should be. Maybe they're getting that here. Tama, Tama, Tama. That is a different guy who's buying lottery tickets at the same convenience store. The first guy was like this white bearded guy, looked around 30. This is another younger guy, except this guy is, is kind of bald. He's got like a shaved head. He looks like he's, I don't know, like half black. He's not white. He looks like kind of like a ethnic in some way, but not an ethnicity I can really figure out. Maybe he's like half black. I don't know. But uh, we'll see what happens with this guy here in the Know Your Limits video. Who are you? I'm your play smarts, boss. I'm here to help you make an informed decision before you play the lottery. Let's go. See, the best offense is a good defense. Boom! That's what knowing your limits is all about. Just like any other game, winning and losing are both part of playing the lottery. If you're only prepared to win, you're not prepared to play. See, when playing stops being fun, you know you should stop playing. Okay, right. And see, you see where this is going here. It's going towards don't just keep firing at the lottery when you're losing. If you have a, a limit where you stop. But again, notice they're not giving any advice on how much you should play. Oof! Down he goes! He didn't know his limit! Now, they're showing a guy getting tackled in an old football video on a screen. It looks like a football video from many years ago. He's saying, boom, he didn't know his limit. What, what are they talking about? So A guy's getting tackled during a pro football game. He didn't know his limit? What, is, what does that mean? You know, it just means the guy's getting tackled. It sounds like the guy, the guy did know his limit because he made the NFL. Sounds like that guy did pretty well. So are, are they saying that if you, you, if you know your limits, you will never get tackled in the NFL? Never. Like, I know I'm taking this too literally, but it makes no sense. It makes no sense. And don't chase your losses. That only risks going deeper in the hole. And that's no fun, is it? Remember, playing the lottery shouldn't be a big part of your life. So balance out your playing with other fun activities. <laughs> You'd have to see this. This is where I wish you could see the video. The other fun activity, they showed on that same screen a fun activity that's going on. The fun activity is this coach dressed in like a, a French painter's outfit who's uh, painting a portrait of fruit uh, on an easel. <laughs> that's the, they're saying, don't make the lottery your life. Don't, don't make the lottery all you do for fun. Is, is there really anyone out there like that who only plays the lottery for fun? They, they have nothing else going on in their life except the lottery? I don't think there's very many people like that. I think poor people play the lottery as a means to get out of poverty, which they shouldn't be. I, I agree with that, but I don't think people are turning the lottery into their life. I, it's, it's different than people who play poker all day and all night. I'm sure you know people like that who all they do with their life is play poker. 
and there's sometimes advice given from poker pros, don't do that, have a life outside of poker. But the lottery, are there, are there really lottery players who just all they do is obsess over the lottery? All they do is buy lottery tickets and wait for lottery results? Like, how much time can you spend playing the lottery? So he's, he's showing you can, you can also paint portraits of fruit on an easel aside from playing the lottery. Make sure you, make sure you do that too. Make sure you wear one of these uh, little crooked French caps while you do it. Like this. <laughs> Man, that was a fun day on the river. And they're showing him uh, kayaking and uh, hiking. Remember, it's just a game and all about fun. You're number one. You're number one. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you are. When you play the lottery. When you play the lottery, play smart. These guys don't have any lines either. They kind of like shake their heads, but they don't say anything. It's only the coach talking there. I wonder if these videos are going to influence anybody. Will anyone even find these videos if they have a lottery gambling problem? Remember, this is mainly aimed at poor people. A lot of poor people don't go on sites like these, or even some don't have a computer. Some don't go on the internet much. But even if they do, are are they going to be on this site? Are they going to watch this and say, oh, well... I'm going to make sure not to make the lottery my life. I've learned. I've learned. I, I used to spend all day and all night playing the lottery, but now I'm going to do other things. Thank you. Thank you, Coach. I have a feeling that they contracted with some ad agency that told them that this stuff was a good idea. Like they, they had to come up with some sort of responsible gaming campaign in order to make it look like they're being responsible in offering the lottery. So this is their answer if someone says uh, to the state of North Carolina, you guys are hurting poor people with the lottery. You shouldn't have it. Well, no, no, look, look, we have a responsible gaming campaign. Look at these two videos. So it says, it says craft a winning game plan. Before you get in the game, check your playbook and learn how to craft a winning game plan. You can't. There's no such thing as a winning game plan in the lottery. The odds are horrible. In fact, the only way to have a winning game plan in the lottery is to barely play and just get lucky in your few times that you play it. And if you don't, then quit. Which is still a losing game plan overall, but you might get lucky and win overall if you barely play and happen to hit something big. That's the only way you can have a winning game plan. There's, there's no other way you can have a winning game plan with the lottery. So then it says, keep your head in the game. You've crafted your winning game plan. Now it's game time. Make sure to follow these tips to keep it fun. Play the lottery for fun or as a social activity? How is it a social activity? I'm still not getting this. Like, poker is totally a social activity for many people, but the lottery is not. It's, it's a solo activity. You buy the ticket. You either scratch it off right there or you sit in front of the TV or check online to see if your numbers hit. I mean, it's a, there's not a lot of social interaction with it. Says, Have other hobbies outside of playing the lottery. Know the risks before you play. Put family and friends first. Take a break if playing is no longer fun. And if you win, set aside some winnings. That's the advice they're giving. Remember, no matter if you win or lose, playing the lottery is all about having a good time. So next time you step in the game, remember to use your play smarts, which they capitalize, to have it to keep it fun. Now, what tools do they give you to play smart? Well, they said, number one, it's a tool they don't give you. 
Credit cards are not accepted. You can only buy lottery tickets with cash, debit cards, or bank account. Debit cards or bank account. Yeah, that's responsible. You can set deposit limits. When you buy our games online, you have the option to set deposit limits. A decrease in your deposit limit will be effective immediately. An increase will be effective in 48 hours. Oh, that's going to really stop them. So someone with a lottery problem now has to wait two days to buy tickets. So for two days, they'll be responsible. Then it's going to go right back. Number three, you can stop yourself from playing. When you buy our games online, you have the option to exclude yourself from purchasing our lottery tickets. If you know someone who's excluded from the lottery, self-excluded from the lottery, that's indicative of a big problem, if you actually have to self-exclude from the lottery. You may temporarily or permanently exclude yourself through our responsible gaming tools or by contacting uh, this phone number. Okay, let's, let's move on here. Know the game. I, that was, I was on the Play Smarter tab. There's no more videos, unfortunately, but know the game. Let's click on that. Oh, wait a minute. No, there is one more video. I didn't see this one. Okay. I, th- th- this one is going to be the first time that we both hear this one. I didn't know this existed till now. This is uh, Play Smart Understanding Odds. Well, I wonder if there's even more videos I haven't found yet. It sounds like the opening to a poison song. We're having fun with the lottery all night. We're doing it all night, the lottery. Okay. Whoa, 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 hey! Who are you? I'm your play smart, sport. Oh, the, see, the woman in this one, she has she has lines. She must have a better agent. It's the same convenience store. This guy, he pulls up in one of those little golf cart type vehicles. And there she is about to buy a ticket. And she says, who are you? So let's hear the rest of this. We're here to help you make informed decisions before you start playing the lottery. Scratch-offs have odds, like this one. One in four, see? So the odds show how many winners there are overall in the game. So overall, 25% of the tickets in this game are winners. What the odds don't tell us, we will find the winners. Purchasing a few in a row does not guarantee a win. (laughs) I wonder how people think that purchasing multiple tickets is going to increase your odds. Now, it is true that purchasing several tickets does increase your odds to have at least one, one winning ticket. So what he's saying is not even totally true. Like, I know what he's trying to say, but yes, if you want one winning ticket, buying more tickets will give you a higher chance of that. It's random. Follow me, sport? Because it doesn't just apply to scratch-offs. It applies to draw games, too. Yeah, some people think they can predict which numbers are due to be drawn, but remember, every drawing's random, and prior results, they don't mean anything. Yep, those numbered balls in that draw machine are just that. Balls. Balls. Yeah, so he's letting you all know that just because certain numbers hit last week in the lotto, it doesn't mean they're going to hit this week. I did not know that. You have no memory or plan of action. It might seem like there's a pattern, but there isn't. We can predict which balls would be drawn. Well, that wouldn't be random, would it? Yeah, watching a lottery drawing, hoping you'll win. It's exciting. Just remember, it's always random. Random. Got it, Coach. Good. Get in there. Have some fun. Go you. Go you. When you play the lottery, play smart. He's holding a bunch of lottery balls at the end. I don't know. Maybe these are growing on me now. It says, uh, the best offense is a good defense. It's supposed to be the other way around. Understanding odds and knowing how lottery games really work are among the strongest strategies you've got in this game. 
I didn't know there's strategies in the lottery. I thought you just buy a ticket and luck into it. There's, there's strategies in the lottery? I didn't. See, I thought they're trying to say there's no strategy in the lottery. But see, they don't want to say that because they, they want people to feel like they're not just doing something that a monkey could do. But a monkey could actually play the lottery as well as you. If you gave, if you gave a monkey money and trained him to go buy the ticket and provided that someone would sell him the ticket, he would have the same odds of winning as you. A monkey really could play the lottery as well as you. They don't want you to think about that, but that's the truth. So it says it's the, the strongest strategy you've got in the game is, is understanding the odds and knowing how the games really work. It's not a strategy. It's just, it just helps you not waste as much money stupidly. So, so read up. If, you've got, if you choose to get in the game, remember to have fun. They're very big on fun here. Do the odds change as the jackpot grows? No, the odds for each jackpot game remain constant, remain, regardless of the jackpot size or how many other people play. That's not true, unless there's something different about this lottery that I don't know. Uh, the odds for, well, it's true the odds of, of being a winner are the same. That's true. But what's not true is the payout is different. For the same like dollar or $2 ticket, whatever it costs, you'll get paid more if you hit if the jackpot's big versus if the jackpot is smaller. So the odds of winning at all, yes, it's the same. The odds of, you know, as, as far as return on your money, the odds do change. In fact, it can sometimes even barely move into positive EV territory. Though when it starts to, then you get a lot more players. Because when, when the jackpot gets huge, then it can become positive expectation, but then sometimes there's so many people buying tickets at that point, it's no longer positive expectation. But the truth is, if the chance of hitting is, is one in many, many millions, you're not going to hit anyway, so the odds don't really matter too much. Does purchasing multiple tickets improve the odds of winning? No, the odds do not improve based upon the number of tickets you buy. Let's put it in perspective. If the odds of winning a prize are one in four, it does not mean that if you buy four tickets, you'll have a winner. <laughs> I wonder how, people, how many people think that, if it's one in four, that if you buy four tickets, it's a guaranteed one winner. You could buy four tickets and lose on all four, win on all four, or somewhere in between. Does playing the same numbers increase the chance of winning? No. Wait a minute. Are there people who really buy lotto tickets with the same numbers? (laughs) Well, actually, it's not quite as bad as you think. It is bad, but if others hit the lottery along with you, then you would get a bigger share of the prize. If you bought two tickets of the exact same numbers and a hit, and someone else hit two, you'd get two-thirds of the prize instead of one-half. But it, it's still dumb to do, because if you're the only one to hit it, then you still get 100% either way. I wonder if there's anyone who actually buys more than one ticket thing and increases their odds. Is there, is there like anyone who thinks that? So it says... Lottery drawings are completely random events, and previous results have no bearing on future drawing outcomes. This means that every lottery drawing, each number has an equal chance of being drawn, and every set of numbers has the same chance of winning. That doesn't explain whether or not playing the same numbers is going to matter. What they should be writing there is, no, moron, don't buy tickets of the same numbers, because unless multiple people hit, it's going to be the same payout. Let's move on to the next tab here. This is uh, Bust the Myths. Let's see if we have a video here, too. No. See, I, I'm disappointed. I, th- I thought there may be a hidden video on each one, but no, it looks like I only missed one. Okay, here's the myths of the lottery. What do lucky charms, game rituals, and special numbers have in common? They won't change your luck or increase your chances of winning. 
<laughs> Lucky Charms. They're letting you know if you bring your rabbit's foot when you buy the ticket, it's not going to help you win the lottery. Don't get fooled by myths. We're debunking common lottery myths to help you play smart and have fun. So here's number one. It's possible to chase losses or, quote, get even. Reality. It's important to remember that it only takes one lucky ticket to win. The longer you play, the more likely you are to lose. If you're playing to chase your losses or get even, it might be a good sign to take a break. Okay, I can't argue with that, but they're missing the main point. It's a negative expectation game, so the reason you're more likely to lose if you keep playing is that you're just going to get further in the hole because on average you're going to lose more the longer you play. They don't want to say that, though. See, notice this is very careful. They, they don't want to be honest about it like I am. They're, they're trying to phrase things that look like responsible gaming, but they don't want to say the harsh, cold reality of what the lottery really is. Okay, here's myth number two. I've never heard anyone say this before. It's easier to win the lottery in a bigger city. <laughs> Does anyone think that? I've never heard anyone say that. Reality, every lottery ticket has an equal chance of winning, regardless of where it was purchased. If you were to move to Raleigh, North Carolina, you'd have more neighbors if you moved to a t- than if you moved to a tiny town where you'd have less. But what everyone would have in common in all those places is that each individual would have the exact same chance of winning a lottery prize. So I, I see what they're worried about is that people will see like a lot of winners from Raleigh saying, well, Raleigh's got to be the lucky place, when in reality Raleigh's just the big city there, so that's where they're going to have the most winners from. Myth number three, you can improve your chances of winning. Reality, playing the lottery is a game of chance, not skill. I'm glad they finally admit that. That means no matter how much you think you're improving your odds or winning or likelihood of hitting a jackpot, you aren't. The only choice you have that will influence your chances of winning is buying a ticket. Remember, it just takes one ticket to win. Number four, you can solve a financial challenge by playing the lottery. Reality, the lottery is all about luck and games of chance. So there's never a guarantee you will win a prize, no matter how long or how much you play. For this reason, the lottery should never be considered a guaranteed source of income. If you're playing in hopes to solve a financial challenge, it might be time to take a break. Yeah, you think? Okay, number five. You have to be you have to gamble every day to be a problem gambler. Reality, a problem gambler may gamble frequently or infrequently. If a person's gambling is causing psychological, financial, emotional, marital, legal, or other difficulties for themselves and the people around them, then it might be time for them to take a break and seek help. True, but your own responsible gambling program stops you from increasing your limits for two whopping days. So this would seem to contradict that. They're saying just because you don't play every day doesn't mean you're not a problem gambler, which is true. But then they go, oh, well, if you want to increase your limits, you only have to wait two days. Because two days means you don't have a problem with gambling. Number six, problem gambling is not really a problem if the gambler can afford it. Reality, if a person's gambling is interfering with their ability to act in accordance with their values, then there's a problem. For example, too much time spent on gambling means less time to spend with family, friends, and others. It can lead to a relationship breakdown and a loss of important friendships. And that's one to grow on. Okay, let's move on here to... Get support. Cover your bases. Before you get in the game, make sure you're prepared. Cover your bases to reduce the chances of getting in over your head. The lottery is only about having fun, not a way to make money. Not feeling yourself? It may be a sign to hit the bench and take a breather. 
keep track of your wins and losses. Don't go chasing losses. Don't go chasing waterfalls. No, it doesn't say that, but it should. Don't borrow money to play. A hot and cold number doesn't mean it's due to hit. Why? It's all random. And ask for help if you need it. Let's let's move on to the final tab, our commitment. I wonder what their commitment is. Well, this is a big detailed page. I'm not going to read this whole thing, but commitment to responsible gaming. From the way we design and advertise our games to the tools we develop to help help folks be in control of their play, our commitment to operating responsibly is at the heart of everything we do. That commitment is being a responsible organization that cares not only about players but also about our state. It's our promise to all North Carolinians. And we live up to that promise every day by being one of the most responsible organizations in the world. Okay. They claim they're a global leader in responsible gaming. And blah, blah, blah. Not going to read all this crap. All right. So that's that's the Play Smart campaign. Uh, this is mostly just for show. They don't care about you. They don't care about you losing your fortune. In fact, they're hoping that you lose as much as you can on the lottery as long as you don't become a problem for the state. They don't want the state to have to support you. They don't want you on the street. They don't want you out there committing crimes because you blew your money on the lottery. But if you can lose your money quietly and not affect them or affect society as a whole, even if you ruin your marriage or blow your kid's college fund or uh, have to downgrade to live in a much worse apartment or have to eat ramen every day. They don't care. This is all fake caring. Governments in general don't care about you and lottery commissions definitely don't care about you. If they cared about you, there wouldn't be a lottery. The lottery is kind of a cold way for states to raise money for schools. On the plus side, the school gets money. On the negative side, a lot of this money comes from poor people who can't afford it. Now, there is the argument that every adult is responsible for themselves, rich or poor, and if they want to play the lottery, then they should be able to. And I agree with that, but I think what they should really do is be very, very honest and upfront and transparent to everybody, not just those who choose to look into it, who dig into the fine print like I do. They should be very honest to the simplest of simple gamblers, simplest of simple lottery players, what the real odds are. And then if people still want to take a shot at it, great. So not just, hey, this is what one in four means, but here is the odd, here's the odds and make it really upfront and center clear to everybody buying a ticket what their chances really are. Then the state can say that they're being as responsible as they can be. But that's not made easily available. It's available, but it's not like really easily available, nor is it advertised or put up front to those who are going to play the lottery. Because they don't want you to think about that. They, wa- they don't want you to think about how bad of a deal the lottery really, really is. Because it's a way for the state to make money. So they've got this dueling purpose here. One is to keep everyone gambling responsibly. And the other is to make money for the state off those who don't gamble responsibly. So they've, they're dueling one another. And they've got to at least give the impression that they are encouraging responsible gaming so they can point to this when people criticize them. And we see this in other industries where there's something that can be dangerous to someone, such as uh, cigarettes, alcohol, whatever. You know, these beer commercials where it looks so cool 
everyone is drinking, looks like they're having so much fun, and all the guys are meeting hot chicks, and you just think if you drink this beer, all that will happen to you, and they say, please drink responsibly at the end. They, they, they don't care if you drink responsibly. In fact, they make more money if you don't drink responsibly. So they don't care about you. That's the truth. That's the, the cynical but sad truth about the lottery, about beer companies, about cigarette companies, everything. All right. Let's move on to the next topic. Trader Ruski, have you played the lottery very much? You know, when it gets way up there, I'll, I'll you know, get 10, 20 bucks or something. You know what? But not too much. I'm pretty much the same. It's I spend even less than that. But I'm going to confess something. This is going to make me sound like a really irresponsible gambling parent. When the lottery reached a billion, the lotto... That uh, the multi-state lotto they have. I forget what it's called now. What is it called in California? I'm forgetting what it's called now. Is it a Powerball or no? It's a Powerball, but I forget if it has a name to it. Whatever. It um, when it reached over a billion dollars, I actually had Benjamin buy a ticket, and I took a picture of it. <laughs> and well, actually, I bought I bought the ticket for him. And he couldn't physically purchase it because he's not 18, but or 21 or whatever you have to be. But I, I, I had him fill out the numbers he wanted, and then I gave it to the clerk, and then the clerk gave him the ticket, and I handed him a ticket, and I took a picture of him with a ticket. And obviously he didn't win. But uh, good lesson I'm teaching him to play the lottery. But actually, I, I taught him a lesson along with it, explaining the truth about the lottery, that you have almost no shot of winning, they were just doing this for fun. We bought, we spent like the minimum you can spend, I think like $2 on it. And I mentioned we're only doing this because it's a billion dollar jackpot and it's just fun and we're almost surely going to lose. And that people who play the lottery all the time are foolish because it's got terrible odds. So I gave him that speech. And apparently it didn't have a big effect on him playing the lottery because he has never asked about playing the lottery again since then. So even, even when you're having your kid gamble, there can be a positive lesson in it. All right, let's move on here to the World Series of Poker has released more events. And some people are getting frustrated by this because the, the way the World Series has done this the last few years prior to this year was they would release a preliminary date schedule of a few high-profile events, the main event, uh, some big field event at the beginning that's fairly cheap to enter, like the Colossus and now the Big 50. Like They would release the details of those and the seniors event. Uh, all the events that get really big participation, they would, like a lot of those, they'd release the dates earliest and then say more is coming soon. And then a few weeks later, a full schedule would drop. Well, now we're getting this in so many different pieces, it's actually kind of getting annoying. In, in one way, you're happy to see it, so you're getting more and more information. Uh, on the other hand, like, you keep thinking, well, okay, but what about this? What about that? Well, when's this event going to be? Like, okay, I know when the 10K08 is, but when's the 1500 And, you know, when's this event? When's that event? And you, you have to go through all these different press releases to figure out if they've posted your event yet. So it's, it's actually becoming a pain in the ass, and I think it's dumb the way they're doing it. I think they should just hold off and drop it all at once. It's fine with the initial teaser that they've been doing, where they're giving the info on the main and the first big field event, fine, but to be doing this in so many parts, I think, is dumb. 
And Matt the Rat posted the same thing in the forum about this. But there's more events that have dropped. This time it's the value menu, they call it, which they stole from McDonald's. And that's the joke here. That the like a value menu at a fast food place would be the items you can get for 99 cents. And a lot of times it's a misnomer. Sometimes what's called the value menu actually isn't a good value. It, what they really mean is the cheap menu. So they're saying if, if you don't want to buy 10 chicken nuggets, you can buy four for cheaper. But usually if you add it up, you're actually paying more per nugget by buying four. But may, maybe you just want four. Maybe you just want to buy chicken nuggets for as cheap as possible and just not get that many. Or you want to buy a small fries, so you, there's a 99-cent fry. Like that's, that's what the value menu usually is, but rarely is the value menu actually the best value. So I guess they're keeping to that theme with the World Series because the percentage rake charge on the smaller buy-in events is actually the highest. So I guess that they are keeping steady with that. They don't say that in the press release, but that's true. So they've decided to call it the value menu event schedule, which is something they came up with this year. I'm sure Seth Polanski came up with it. It sounds like something he'd make up. He also is the one whose name is on this press release. And they have listed all the events with their dates and the length of time the levels will be and the number of re-entries, the date and time of the events as well, and the buy-in amount, everything. Anything that's a 1,000 or less to enter is listed here. So if you want to only play $1,000 or less buy-in events, now you know the complete schedule of what you're interested in. If you only want to play 10K or higher, you also know the full schedule. If you want anything in between, you don't know much yet. One interesting thing I noticed this year that has seemed to have changed is that they have decreased the number of events where you could do a lot of re-entries. And this is in response to the backlash, which really Norman Chad got going, which is interesting because he's worked as a contractor with the World Series as a broadcaster for so long. But I guess I guess he kind of feels entrenched now. He doesn't have to be afraid for his job. He's been really criticizing not just the World Series, but also the WPT and other events that just have these unlimited rebuys, and he's saying it's a disgrace. And, and I agree. So the World Series, they've always been very sensitive to social media criticism. I know this because I have been contacted before when I have criticized the World Series, and while they have never pressured me to stop, I'll say that, like they've never said, you better stop criticizing us, we're going to ban you. And they know I criticize them. They, they know very well. They they read everything I write. They will sometimes listen to this show if it's about them. I, I know this because they told me. And I've had discussions where they'll, I'll get contacted and say, hey, I think you're being harsh on us here, and I'll discuss it with them. And I'll be honest. I'll say, look, you know, I, I don't agree with this. I don't agree with that. And I've, I've made it very clear to the World Series, and they know this, and, they, and I think they agree. I've made it very clear to them that I'm fair that I'm not a Caesars hater, I'm not a World Series hater, I'm not looking to trash the brand, and that, in fact, I have defended them when others have unfairly criticized them. And I can point to many instances where that has happened, where everyone on social media is out for blood and is bashing the World Series, and I go, hold on here, you guys are wrong, they're actually okay here. And then there's been other times where I have criticized them. And I also give them free marketing about these events, like I'm doing a, a segment telling you about the events they're having. And I play it myself. I give them my rake dollars every year. So I'm fair. And they, they know I'm fair. And they, they've even acknowledged that I'm fair. They wish I was positive about everything. 
but they also know that I'm not trying to be negative, and in fact, I've defended them before. But anyway, they, they are watching social media, and when they get criticized, it's not so much that they want constructive criticism, it's more like they just don't like being criticized. So sometimes the only antidote to the criticism is to change something to make people happier, which is good, I'm glad, but uh, I'm saying that as soon as I saw Norman Chad bringing this out there and everyone agreeing, I knew there was going to be some change this year at the World Series. Which, again, is good. I'm not criticizing this. This, this. this is good that they became aware of this and they changed something. So as a result, almost all of these events of a 1,000 or less buy-in do not have multiple rebuys. There's a few of them that do. Most of them are either freeze-outs, meaning no rebuys, no re-entries. And there's a number of them. In fact, most of them have one re-entry, which is fine. I don't have a problem with one re-entry. Many people think the sweet spot is actually one re-entry because it allows you to come back into the event if you just run really, really bad at the beginning. Just hit a cooler, bad beat, whatever. Sometimes you could even get your money in really good and lose all your chips. Uh, you know, what if you get in with the absolute nuts on the turn and someone's got a draw and they get there on the river? Well, you've done everything correct. You've played as well as a super user could play, but you still lost. So it's understandable that people want to take another shot at this. But beyond one additional shot, I think that becomes excessive. And I think that changes the whole concept of what a tournament's supposed to be. So there are some freeze-outs of these smaller buy-in events. And there's a lot of them that are one re-entry. And then it looks like there's, I think, four. Actually, yeah, four. Four different events where you can buy in... Uh, sorry, there's five. There's four where you can rebuy once per flight, the ones that have multiple flights, which means it's really two buy-ins per flight. It's one re- one rebuy per flight, which is still a lot of buy-ins. And then there's one which has unlimited rebuys. And that's fine. I don't mind if there are some like this, because there's some people who like them. In fact, I've told you before, if you're looking to min-cash, and there, yes, there's people out there looking to min-cash. I've talked to people personally who've told me, if they do better, great, but their main goal is to min-cash. These are obviously not pros, but there's some recreational players that get a big kick out of caching, and they are not looking so much to do much beyond that. If they do, great, but once they've cashed, they've met their goal. So if you want to cash, these rebuy events give you the highest chance to do so. If you want to run deep, they give you the lowest chance to do so. So keep that in mind when you choose what to play. There is actually a new event called Freeze Out No Limit Hold'em for $1,000. It's on May 27th. It's on the very first day. It's the very first open event. It's on the same day as the casinos, this casino employees event, which is only open to casino employees. But the first open event is the new No Limit Freeze Out event, which is $1,000 buy-in, 30-minute levels, but you cannot rebuy. The Big 50 is back. They do not mention that the first day is rake-free, so it probably isn't. Not first day. First buy-in is rake-free like it was last year. This year, that does not appear to be the case. Other than that, it is the same event. I played it last year. I was one of the chip leaders after day one. I ended up finishing 666 out of 28,000-something, which got me about 3 k on my $500 buy-in. I only bought in once. So, yeah, I made a profit there of over 2 k but I didn't find it that exciting. Like, I, I've mentioned this before. Normally, if I finished near the top 
of the day one players at a $500 tournament. I'm very excited. Here I'm like, ah, 28,000 people, this is going to be so many days that I'm not even that excited. I know I'm going to have to run so well for so long. This this is good, but whatever. I This doesn't mean anything as far as like running super deep. And indeed, I, I kind of got where I thought I'd get to. I thought I'd run sort of deep, but not get really, really far where I get big money. That's exactly what happened. I probably got about an average result for what where I was at, the, at day one, to be honest. Will I play it again? Eh, if I'm there. If it doesn't interfere with anything, I'll take a shot at it, but I didn't love it. The uh, There's a deep stack, June 1st, for $600, with one rebuy total. The Big 50, you can buy one rebuy per flight. I believe there's four flights. Then there's a Super Turbo Bounty, No Limit Holden, with $300 bounties, $1,000 buy-in on the second. So there's I, I'm not going to go through them all here. You can find it. If you want to find any of these press releases, just go to WSOP.com slash news. WSOP.com slash news, all lowercase, and you'll find this thing about the value menu. You can look at everything they have there. Here is uh, a quote kind of referring to the whole thing about uh, the freeze-out matter. The freeze-out format, allowing only one entry, is part of a concerted effort by the World Series of Poker in 2020. The opening event, plus at least one No Limit Hold'em event a week in this format, is planned for the rest of the series. The World Series of Poker is committed to keeping a significant portion of the schedule utilizing the freeze-out format. Now, believe me, that paragraph wouldn't be there had Norman Chad not made that tweet. Or the tweets, more than one tweet. If Norman Chad hadn't raised this issue repeatedly, that paragraph wouldn't be in there nor would there be one freeze out every week, nor would they have done away with most of the multiple rebuys. Counting here, I see, let's see, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. 15 events where you can buy in only one, uh, only twice total. And then there are 1, 2, 3... Four, five freeze outs. Which doesn't sound like one per week, actually. <laughs> Unless I missed one. One, two, three, four. No, it's five. I don't know what they're talking about. A lot more than five weeks of the World Series. But whatever. Five freeze outs. What, like 15, did I say? Of the one rebuy. And only. Four where you can rebuy once per flight and only one unlimited. That, my friends, is progress. So good job, World Series. And I say that seriously, not sarcastically. This is a lot better. I'd like to see this. If you're looking to min cash, this isn't good for you. But if you're playing these with you wanting the chance to run really deep, then this is a much better situation. And it's something that really sticks more to what the original intent was for tournaments. And that is to everybody start on equal footing and to basically be out if you don't have good luck or don't play well. And the one re-entry fine, that's a modification to that, but it's not a tremendous modification. But the unlimited re-entry, the one re-entry per flight, that 
that just starts to make it to where the the players with a deep bankroll can just keep firing and playing super aggressively and hope to catch fire and build a stack that way. They don't have to worry so much about just being out and not gonna not being able to have a chance to compete. It kind of makes it look more like a cash game. And that's not good. So I'm glad they've made that change. I just hope they release the whole damn schedule pretty soon so I can plan my World Series schedule. Now, I will tell you something you can do if you want to plan your World Series schedule. Because now that this is out, now the 10K events are out, what you can do is compare what they've released to the actual schedule in 2018 and 19. The 19 schedule you can find by just going to wcp.com slash tournaments. And right now, it'll list the 19 schedule. If you see the 20 schedule, then this is a moot point. So you can see that schedule right there, and then you can Google the 2018 schedule. You can find a PDF of it. I found it pretty easily. So you can start to compare the schedules. And any event that was around the same time of year, both years, there's a good chance it'll be around the same time of year this year. When I say around the same time, I mean like within a few days. And also look at the events they have announced and look for associated events of the same type. So if there's an event you want to play that also has a 10K version of it, look when the 10K is, and then look how many days apart they were on the schedule initially, or initially meaning last year or the year before, and that's probably how far they're going to be apart approximately this year. Good example, Omaha 8 or better. There was a 10K event, I think, on uh, June 2nd or something. And they've been, what they've been doing is the 1500 event is one of the very first events of the World Series. And then a few days later, it's a 10K event. So you subtract like three days from that, that's probably when the 1500 will be. Not guaranteed, but that's a good guess. So you can start to plan your schedule around that. But if you're going to have a schedule of like 10 or more events, you're going to have a very hard time planning your schedule at this point because... There's a lot we still don't know. And there's also surprises where something you expected to be somewhere on the schedule is elsewhere or once in a while is missing entirely, and they've just done away with it. And did they say when they're going to release it, Josh? No, but Kev Math, who works for them during the summer and tends to know these things, said that he thinks that within about uh, two to three weeks we should have the whole schedule. So that's probably by beginning of February we'll know the whole thing. If I can give you guys any advice, if you want to stay at the Rio, book it as soon as you know the dates that you're going to want to be there. And I'm going to give you a piece of advice number two. Book extra days because you can cut them off at the end with zero penalty. And I say absolutely zero penalty. I would not tell you zero penalty unless I mean zero penalty because I'm a Jew. And to me, any penalty, even a dollar, is a penalty. Zero penalty. So, for example, if you book from uh, June 1st through June 6th, it is. you could also book from June 1st to June 10th. And you don't pay any more up front. You pay the same thing up front. And then when it comes to June 6th, if you don't want to stay anymore... Just before checkout time, come down and say, yes, I'd like to cut off the last four days, please. And they will just cut them off as if they were never booked. So that's that's something that I, I want to advise you guys because what happens, I see some people, they don't book enough days because they're being pessimistic and they think, oh, well, I never get past day two, so whatever. So either they get to day three and they go, fuck what I do now, or and then they they 
sometimes can't even get into the Rio anymore because it's, it's full or whatever. Or they pay a higher price or uh, like they finished – they're out on day two, but it's very late at night. They don't want to drive home at two in the morning. Just have the extra days there and then cut them off at the end. It's not like an airline where there's penalties. Here, here the only penalty is if you cancel your booking completely without enough notice. So you can't just on the same day decide not to show up and get your money back. You'll still be charged the first day. But as far as days at the end, very easy to cut off. Just check out in time for the whatever the checkout time is. Uh, it depends what your status level is. If, if you're a diamond, I believe it can be 2 o'clock. At least 1, but I think 2. If you're 7 star, it can be 4 o'clock. If it's everybody else, I think it's 12 o'clock. But just go down before then. Or you can even do it the night before, whatever. But before your scheduled checkout time, anytime, tell them, I want to cut out the additional days. And they will just... Wipe them off like they were never there. You won't get charged a dime. That's a little tip I can give you. Another tip, when you're booking at the Rio, type codes either WSOP20 or FLEXLV1, F-L-E-X-L-V1. Both are legal and open to the public. And those may lower your price. Also, if you see the price hop up all of a sudden while you're booking or while you're searching, don't think, oh, man, I was so unlucky. No, it's called adaptive pricing. It sees you're interested and raises the price. It's very dirty. Just just close it and, and reopen it in about an hour, and it'll be back down, preferably on an uh, incognito mode browser. And always log in. Always log in because it may give you a better deal than the general public. So if you have a total rewards account, definitely uh, create an online account so you can uh, – through Caesars.com and then log into it because it may offer you better rates than the general public even if you don't have a comp. So those are some pieces of advice that I can give to you. Also, if you do have comp nights, you might want to schedule smartly, where the weekends will always be far more expensive than the weekdays. I mean, it's, it's a tremendous difference. So if you do have a few free nights you can get at some point during June, you probably want to use them during the weekends and then pay for the weeknights, which are very cheap. That's another tip I can give you. And I really encourage that you should be a Diamond member if you're going to play more than a few events. And we'll talk more about that later in the show. Jeff, do you think they're staggering it? Just because it, I mean, I could just imagine for people traveling in, even from the East Coast, but especially internationally, I mean, they got a plan. Yes, and that's that's dumb. I mean, that's that's the problem is that they should. They should make. They should release this as soon as possible for the reason you said. Because, uh, and we can take this for granted. You and I could take this for granted. We we can just decide on the fly to go. We can decide on the fly to change our schedule. We can decide to leave earlier or later than we originally had. People who are going to fly there, as you said, especially internationally, it's a big deal. And I think about that sometimes. I say one good thing about being in Southern California is that it's easy to get to Vegas. Very flexible. I can just drive in, drive out. No flights necessary. Easy drive. Uh, they, like I can make my own schedule. It's so much harder for those that have to fly there. Even people in Northern California, the drive kind of sucks. It's like 550 miles. It's terrible because there's mountains in the way and you can't you can't get there. So even for them, it's tougher. They usually have to fly. But anyone has to fly to Vegas, and of course, the farther you have to fly, the worse it is because the, the flight's more expensive and it takes longer. And, so, yeah, they should make this available 
sooner rather than later. And that's that is why releasing these events only partially is kind of dumb. Unless people only want to play these one or two events. Like, if you only want to play the seniors event, well, great, now you know when it is. You don't have to worry about the other stuff. But if you want to play multiple... I mean, especially, sorry to cut you off, Jeff, but they know the schedule. Just like you said, there's a 10K Omaha, there's going to be a 1500 a few days before. It's not like they have to organize speakers and stuff and figure out time. They have dealers for all the games. They just have to pop it in. Yeah, there's probably like a few decisions they're still making. But, but I, you would think they have a whole year to do this. So why is it taking this long? Why, why not release it earlier? Well, and you, and you already have last year, so, okay, let's add two more of those, subtract three of those, that's it. Right, right, right yes. Yeah, so maybe, maybe, maybe there's something I don't know going on. Yeah, exactly. They, they do have a, temp, right, they have a template to work from, so it's not even like starting a whole tournament from scratch. They've got, they've got 90 events to look at from last year, and they're, they seem generally happy with the way that went. So yeah, make a few tweaks, remove a few events, add a few events change a few things around, but uh, how long does this take? Just just do it and drop the whole thing. You want to drop a teaser first and, and list a few of them to start? Fine, but uh, to release this in like four different press releases is odd. I, th- I right, think but maybe they want to stagger it because maybe the hotel can't get that many calls for rooms. Who knows? But So then, you know, they can at least say that on the 20th of February we'll have the final, you know, just so people can figure it out. Yeah, what would also be good is if they were to release, they probably don't want to do this and get complaints about it, but if they could release like a preliminary schedule saying that this is what we're thinking of doing, but you know, there might be some changes or, or, or put asterisks next to the ones that might change, but. uh, Subject to change. Yeah, something like that. Just, uh, but it really sucks just have holes in it. Because a lot of people want to play 1500 events. And notice what's really missing here are the, Anything that's a fifteen thousand, a fifteen hundred, three thousand, five thousand type event, all these mixed games events, of limit hold'em, like all the stuff that's not ten k, you don't know when it's going to be. You want to play fifteen hundred horse, you don't know when it's going to be. You want to play fifteen hundred limit hold'em, you don't know what's going to be. You want to play one of those uh, three thousand six max no limits, you don't know when it's going to be. So like, it sucks. It, it kind of sucks that there's so much released yet so much not released. It can be actually irritating rather than just knowing nothing for another few weeks. Yeah, I don't. I don't agree with this method, and I want to talk quickly about a, a small controversy, if you can even call it that. Mac Verstandig complained about the term "value menu," saying that he felt this was degrading to recreational players because it's implying that they're equivalent to fast food customers. <laughs> I'm surprised it's not trademarked, Jeff. I'm surprised, too. Maybe it is they don't realize. I wouldn't be surprised if Caesars right. didn't yeah. realize it. <laughs> then they get sued by McDonald's. But That would be typical, though, yeah, right? Yeah, that would totally be typical. But, but he was complaining that fast food customers, especially the value menu customers at fast food, which seem like, it's like the, the lowest of the low-end customers, that they're basically saying that's what the lower buy-in players are, which are largely recreational players, and he's saying, look, you're looking down on recreational players. And I don't think that was the intent. I think this is Seth Polanski thinking he's being cute. I don't think they're – they're definitely not looking down on the low, the low buy-in players because they love these events. They, that's why they keep adding more and more of these big field events. That's why the lines have gotten so terrible in recent years. They're adding more and more of these low buy-in events. Every year they're adding more lower buy-in events because they're saying, oh, great, this is a cash cow. People love coming in and playing these cheap events – to have a shot at a bracelet and the big money, 
and we make all kinds of rake and we can charge uh, a higher percentage rake and and we we get bodies on the Rio and they, they, they love having these events. They're adding more and more. So they're not looking down on these customers. They, they love having these customers. But the truth is all of us are just a number to Caesars. That's all we are. They're not – I mean, yes, they kiss ass to the pros. But the only reason they kiss ass to the, pro, the top pros is because they're good for marketing. That's the only reason they kiss their ass. That's the only reason that Negreanu and Helmuth can do what they – and Mattisau and all those guys, they can do what they want and break rules and get away with it because – uh, they're valuable to the brand, but they don't really care about any of us. We're just a number that makes them money, and that's fine. Well, and and you're getting the worst value, so it's like they're like I see what he's saying from what he wrote. Yeah, I see it. He just, you know, they're I, the lowest. They get, they're they're fast food, and we're cheating them and calling it a value menu while we're screwing them on the rate. Yeah. And by the way, I don't think the rake is bad overall because the truth is as buy-ins get lower, the rake gets higher. And the reason is because there are some fixed costs. Like it doesn't cost them more to have a dealer deal a $500 event or a $500 table. It doesn't cost any more for them to have a dealer do that than to deal a $10,000 event. So where you're actually getting – where they're making the most money per person is on the higher buy-in events. That part's true, but of course they get a much smaller field. So they, as the buy-in amount gets lower and lower for them to be able to be profitable, because there are fixed costs that are the same no matter what the buy-in, they have to charge a certain minimum rake. So that's why the lower buy-ins get a higher percentage rake. Overall, compared to comparable events of that buy-in, I don't think the World Series is bad. In fact, sometimes they have the best rake. I don't think they have a Superb rake value, but I don't think it's bad. I've never complained about the World Series of Poker rake. That's why of the complaints I've put out here, I've never said the rake is too high. But uh, it is true. Those value menu events, as they're called, do have the highest percentage rake. And I can see maybe how recreational players, of which Mac Verstandig is. He's a, a lawyer who plays poker recreationally. I can see maybe how... They could interpret that way and feel insulted, but I, I don't believe it was meant that way. It was really just meant uh, – it was something cute that Seth Polanski probably came up with in the shower one day. Oh, I, I thought of a good idea. I'm going to call them the value menu, these events. <laughs> Everyone's going to think this is so funny. I, I could totally picture that. So nothing, I don't think there's anything to be offended about. I think it's fine. I, I said that what you should be offended is how – they understaff the cashiers during some of these big field events, and I hope they don't make the same mistake this year. It was unconscionable that knowing they would get these tremendous crowds of the Big 50, and they knew it. I don't know if they knew they would get 28,000 entrants, but they knew they were going to get a bigger field than they've ever seen before. They knew it. They knew it. And yet they had times when there's only two cashiers working, and that was contributing to these horrendous lines. They should have every single cashier station open 24-7. While this was going on, 24-7, I actually, you'd come down at 6 in the morning, 5.30 in the morning, and, and there would be lines. You actually couldn't fully get away from the line. Even the Diamond Room had lines. So for them to not have the maximum number of cashiers open was, was insane. And th- that's what they need to avoid. I sometimes just couldn't picture what it was like for some of these people to wait on line six hours to play a $500 World Series event. But if you come all the way to Vegas to do it, especially from a long distance, then that's what you got to do. 
I just say screw it, I'll I'll do the next one. But I know a lot of people that's the event they're coming to play. And I have the Diamond Room. Most of these people did not. But this wasn't just oh they had unprecedented demand. This happens every time they introduce a new big field event. This happens with these tremendous lines. But last year was among the worst ever. And remember, I predicted it. Remember, go back to the shows before the Big Fifty. I predicted it. I said this is going to happen. I said it's going to be a fail. I said, like I, I knew it. I knew the lines were going to be awful and that they were not going to be prepared for them. That they should be, but they were not going to be. So that's the disrespect that is shown to the players. Not calling it a value mate. And I said that on Twitter, back to Mac Verstandig. I said that uh, I don't have a problem with that. I don't have a problem with the rake. I have a problem with the way that they did not prepare for the number of people that are coming and the six-hour lines that people had to stand in. I don't think they're going to have as big of a field this year at the Big 50. They'll still be very large because that first buy-in is not free. Or not break-free, that is. I want to move on to talk about Prahlad Friedman and his latest ridiculous tweet. Prahlad Friedman is someone who doesn't like me personally. I don't like him personally. And he has me blocked on Twitter, in case you're wondering. But he's someone who, in pretty much all ways, is off-putting to me. Just everything about him is off-putting. Okay? Let's think about this here. This is a white guy, white-bred guy from a rich family. In fact, I think he was born a Jew. And his family's rich. And he went to Berkeley. I presume his parents paid for it. And this is the most white-bred of white-bred guys who decided to take on, like, a uh, black street persona. He actually talks like like he's out of the ghetto. And I actually think that's insulting to black people to do that when when white guys with a silver spoon in their mouth try to talk like they're black. Like, why? That's that's not your culture. That's not what you grew up in. You're not like a white guy who grew up in a black neighborhood. You're a rich white kid. Why are you talking like that? And he's also a limousine liberal. And limousine liberals are the type on the left whom I respect the least. The people on the left who basically practice what they preach, um, at least I can say, well, I disagree with them, but at least I can see they're dedicated to the cause and they mostly live their lives according to the values they claim to have. But Perlod Friedman is not that. Prahlad Freeman has kind of uh, a dueling desire in his head. One desire is to live very well. He's obsessed with Malibu. He always wants to live in the, the hills over Malibu, which is very expensive, as you might guess, in, in a very nice house, drive nice cars, have very nice things. So he's very obsessed with living well. And I suspect, by the way, that he gets money from his parents, too. But at the same time, He's very, very left-wing and wants to be a man of the people. And the problem is, when it came time for him to decide whether he is willing to give up the Malibu lifestyle because he was on a poker downswing, 
and hold to his principles, he made the wrong decision. But not a very surprising one to me. And I've talked about this before. He was one of the biggest victims of the UB scandal. They cheated him out of at least $500,000, maybe more. I think they under-refunded him, but they, they refunded him around five hundred k. And you'd think after that, he'd be thanking his lucky stars he got anything back. No, it was not them volunteering to make it right and catching their own cheating, but they were shamed into it. And that after that, he'd take the money and run. But no, he actually became a UB pro and was claiming that it was the new UB. You know, the old UB, now this is the new UB. That's actually how we talked. So he's trying to say, well, the old UB, they cheated you, but now it's the new owners. You can trust them. Yeah, you can trust them so much that they stole from him. They, they stole from him, they stole from everybody. They On Black Friday, when they were busted, along with Full Tilt and Poker Stars, it turned out that just like Full Tilt, UB also was out of money. They had stolen all the money on deposit, just like Full Tilt did. But, but it was even worse than Full Tilt. Full Tilt, like... They stole it, but they stole it kind of believing that they're going to make it right at some point, and then Black Friday happened and they couldn't, which I'm not defending, but they, they kind of in their heads believed that they were not doing anything so bad. They just thought, kind of thought they were borrowing it, and then Black Friday hit at a bad time. UB, just, just they were just stealing it. They had, they had been doing it for a long time, just, just outright stealing the money on deposit and keeping the absolute minimum to cash people out. So they had, like, nothing when... They were busted. This is after the first cheating scandal with they're looking at people's whole cards and beating them. So Prahlad Friedman, who was representing UB, claiming they were new owners when they were not, encouraging people to come back. Hey, look, the biggest victim of the UB scandal is encouraging you to come back saying, yeah, the new UB, yeah, they're, they're, they're donating to charity, they're good people. Then people do, who like and respect Prahlad, and then they get their money stolen all over again. That's what happened. By the way, did he ever apologize to everyone for that? No. I've never once seen an apology from him about the UB thing. If you mention the UB thing to him on Twitter, he will block you. If you mention it on his YouTube, he will delete your comment. He's never once apologized for it. He was also warned by many people, including Daniel Negreanu, that these were the same owners and that he was being played, and he didn't care. And what's interesting about Perlot Friedman is that this is the same guy who, even when he became pretty well-known and could have gotten a lot of money in a sponsorship, he wouldn't take it. He wouldn't sponsor – he wouldn't be a sponsored player of Poker Stars or Full Tilt at the time because he said, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't let corporations own me. I don't like corporations. They're all corrupt. They ain't no good. They, they screw the people. They screw the people. I don't want, I don't want to pimp for no corporations. Then he pimped for the most corrupt corporation of them all. So why? What was the change in heart? Why, why would he not represent poker stars who didn't steal from anyone and represent, quote, the new UB, which he was told by reputable people, including Negreanu, that these were not new owners? Why? Because he had a downswing. Because there was a site called PokerTableRatings.com at the time that would track people's play, and you could see he had just had an 800k downswing on Poker Stars right before he signed with a new UB. And the reason this bothers me so much, beyond just it being wrong, and beyond it leading to people getting cheated, was that this was a guy who claimed to be anti-corporate, 
This is a guy who claimed he cared about the little guy, and that's why he wouldn't represent any corporation. But when it came to the choice of downgrading his lifestyle because of his downswing and keeping his lifestyle and representing a company he knew was ripping everyone off, he chose the latter, and he's never apologized for it. But of course, you may say this is years ago now. We're talking about the early 2010s. We're in 2020 now. The problem is sometimes he still goes on Twitter and lectures people about social issues. So I actually created a thread on Poker Fraud Alert on the Flying Stupidity Forum about Perlod and his follies. And every so often when I find funny tweets of his, I will put them out there. He fell into controversy about a year and a half ago when he tweeted this in July 2018. You know, tired of seeing only whites and Asians at these final tables. Obviously, systemic racism is responsible for this because everyone likes poker. To fight back a little bit, I'm willing to give free advice to any non-white, non-Asian peeps out there. Hit me up and I'll follow you. (laughs) He thought systematic racism is responsible for too many whites and Asians at the poker table. People were mocking this, and especially mocking the Asians part of it, that he's giving Asians a hard time. Asians are a minority, but because they're a successful minority in poker, uh, he doesn't like them either. And people really made fun of him about this. And and Systemic racism? What? Poker, there can't be systemic racism. If if you're a good player, you win. If you're a bad player, you lose. (laughs) So... uh, that was a year and a half ago. A little more recently. Uh, a little more recently, he said this. This is on uh, May 9th, 2019. If you do something unethical in poker because you are in a bad place, just apologize and try to make it up to the person you wronged in the future. Then learn from your mistake and try to rebuild a good trust and name in the poker community. Okay, uh... It sounds like he should be telling that to himself. If you do something unethical in poker because you were in a bad place, like lost 800k straight on Poker Stars, just apologize and try to make it up to the person, meaning the people you encouraged to join the new UB, you wronged in the future. But he hasn't. He hasn't apologized to anybody. Then learn from your mistake and try to rebuild a good trusting name in the poker community. Okay? You haven't. You, you haven't apologized. You haven't spoken out about what happened here. Even Joe Seabock, even Joe Seabock came out and said that he screwed up. Perlod won't. Okay, so that was last year. This this year is a doozy. By the way, he had a kid since then. He has a much younger girlfriend from Brazil. He tried to promote her music career. He even did some video with him rapping and her singing. And he really believed it was going to go somewhere. By the way, like he he really thought he was a music producer and his girlfriend was going to blow up huge. And he had her, uh, her her ass out on, on YouTube and uh, in these tight, revealing clothing. And he, he really thought that she was going to be huge and it went nowhere, which is what usually happens. It's very, very hard to make it in that industry. But he, he had a kid with this girl. And there's a picture on January 1st, 2019 of her holding his baby. It's probably about one and a half now, I'm guessing. But uh, here's here's more recently. This is this is uh, Prolod 2020. This is a different direction. This isn't about racism. This isn't about wronging people in the past. No, 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 no. 
This is a new topic he has never broached before. This is something I haven't even seen him talking about. But this has become his new obsession. And one has to wonder why when you hear what it is. On January 12th, 2020, at 2.18 a.m., sitting there in the middle of the night there in his Malibu home, he tweeted out an article from the BBC entitled, It's okay, guys, just admit it. Half of you are not 100% straight. Hmm. That is a weird thing to tweet out at 2 a.m. Why? Like, why, why is he sharing this? Why is he sharing an article telling guys to just admit that they, they might be bisexual? Is he trying to tell us that he's bisexual? If he is, that's fine, but that's not what he said. It's not like he's saying, hey, uh, guys, I want to let you know I'm bi, and um, if you're bi too, it's, it's okay to come out with it. That's not what he's saying. He's just like, he just tweets out that article with no comment. But then uh, about 10 minutes later, he decides to expand upon why he tweeted out that article. Growing up, I can't remember one single time where an adult asked me if there's any boys I like. Well, should they have? <laughs> I, I bet you would have been insulted growing up if they said, is there any boys you like? Like, wouldn't you have felt that they were calling you gay and been insulted? Because back when you were growing up, he's, he's a little bit younger than me. I think he's born like late 70s. So believe me, if he's growing up in the 80s and early 90s, if someone asks you, hey, who are the boys you like, if you're a dude, back then that's an insult. So he, even today some people would find that insulting, but, but especially back then. You, you ask who, who are the boys you like, that's, uh, those are fighting words back then. But man, go on here. Growing up, I can't remember one single time when an adult asked me if there's any boys I like. But I got asked a million times if I like any girls. And then he tweeted, uh, Redbone, oh, Red, that's his girlfriend, Ada. Uh, Ada and I are never going to push heterosexuality on our kid. Kids should know they can, they can and should like anyone they want. All right. Well, this, the second part of it's fine. Uh, you you want to say whatever my kid's sexuality is, that's fine. I'm never going to say you have to be straight or I want you to be straight. Just whatever you are, you are, and we'll love you. Okay, good. Fine. It's the right way to approach it as a parent. But... The beginning of the tweet's a little bit odd. Like, I can't remember if anybody asked you if there's any boys I like. Well, why should they? Like, even now when it's it's much more acceptable. Like, you don't just go up to a boy and say, hey, there's any boys you like, in, if they haven't told you that they're gay or bi. Why? Because most people are straight. You assume someone is, is straight unless they say, I'm not. So, yes, it's fine to ask you if there's any girls you like. And then, of course, that person can correct you. Well... Yes, but I also like these boys, or no, I only like boys. And then when they say that, you you accept them for what they are, and you don't try to change them, but it's it's not bad if you just assume a boy is going to like girls and you ask him what girls is he like. But Pearl is insulted that they didn't, they didn't ask him what boys he liked. He, he really tweeted this. Growing up, I can't remember one single time when an adult asked me if there's any boys I like. Like, are you wishing that happened? So then, then he goes on to the most ridiculous part. This is where he, he wants to bet you that you're at least a little bit gay. Had a guy that was 50 years old say to me he would bet me 100K with a lie detector uh, that he never had a gay thought in his entire life. Free money? So he's saying that he's really considering a bet. How does this even come up, by the way? But he's really considering a bet with supposedly a 50-year-old guy 
who's offering him a 100K bet on a lie detector as to whether he's had a gay thought in his whole life. Now, you may say, well, okay, he's just saying what some guy said to him. This isn't, uh, this isn't him making any statement about everyone has a gay thought. It's just him saying one guy offered that bet to him. But then him saying free money means that like everybody had to have had gay thoughts. But he was free money question mark. So maybe, maybe he's just asking, is this free money or not? But then he goes on. I'm going to start a campaign where gorgeous women pose with a, with a quote for them saying they are done with men claiming to be 100% heterosexual. Imagine if every woman thought this. What would men do? What? So he's going to start a campaign, a social media campaign, where he has beautiful women posing, and above them it says, if you're 100% heterosexual, I'm not into you. First of all, like what woman would say that? <laughs> How many women say, nope, I'm only dating guys who are bi or gay? You, you can't be straight, not into you. Like the, I've never heard a woman once tell me that they won't date a guy who's 100% straight. There may be a few out there, like a few weird ones out there. That's like a weird thing to not want to date. But, but he's saying that if every woman thought this, that they would only date guys who are at least a little bit gay, that – Men at that point probably admit, okay, I've been, I'm bi and I'm hiding it. I'm a little bit bi, I'm hiding it. Now, if if the point he's trying to make here is that there's a lot of guys who are bi curious or like a little bit bisexual that don't want to admit it because even with society changing to have a lot more acceptance of gay and bi people, that it's still easiest as a guy to be straight in society. And that men who do have some bisexual feelings uh, should feel comfortable stating so. If that were the point he was making, that's fine. But that's not what he's trying to say here. He's trying to say here, and that's why he's talking about this bet, which I don't even think was really offered to him. I think he's just making that up. Like, like how would this come up? He's just walking around and some guy goes up to him, hey, you want to take a $100,000 bet that I've never had a gay thought in my life? Do you want that prologue? Oh, I don't know. Let me think about that. You know, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm not gay at all. I've never I've had a gay thought. Want to bet 100K? Yeah, maybe. Let me ask Twitter about it. I'll get back to you. Like, like how did this conversation go? How did this even come up? But he's actually saying he wants to start a campaign where gorgeous women have a quote over them that they're done with 100% heterosexual men. Why? Why is this important to him? Why is he even thinking about this? Why does he want so badly for men not to be heterosexual. So I think what's going on here, I, I think he probably has bisexual thoughts. And even though he's talking about how everyone should be comfortable with it, I think he's uncomfortable with it. I think he's uncomfortable that he likes guys a little bit. I don't even think he's gay. I don't think he's you know, like straight down the middle bi. I think, I think he mostly likes girls, and he probably has some gay thoughts here and there. So he's probably bi-curious or maybe bisexual but much more leaning straight something like that and it's probably bothered him his whole life that he can't come out like that because people look down on him and he still kind of feels like people look down on him so instead of just coming out saying hey this is me you know love me or hate me but this is who i am instead of going that way he's trying to lecture that all men are like this that it's not just him he doesn't he doesn't say it's him but he's saying that all straight men have gay thoughts all straight men at some point uh think about doing stuff with guys, they just don't want to admit it. So, uh, people started to respond to him, and some were making fun of him, so we're seeing how ridiculous this is. Uh, 
and Shane Schlager questioned him and said, uh, you know, there, he's asking about uh, you, you saying that, uh, that that men are claiming that they never get turned on by by another man. Says Shane Schlager, Shane Schlager said back, I get turned on watching the sun go down. Who gives a shit? LOL. Uh, and then. Pr- Prahlad says back, I mean, if everything turns you on, I don't see why an experience of the man wouldn't, because Shane was saying that he's not into man at all. Uh, society tells us, men, men, it's wrong, and it's disgusting. If men were blindfolded and received a blowjob from ten different people, five men and five women, you think they really only enjoy the women? What? What? <laughs> <laughs> so he's saying if you're blindfolded and you can't tell who's blowing you. And I'm sorry if you have kids listening to this. We should have turned it off by now with this subject matter. But if you have if you have ten people blowing you and you're blindfolded and five are men and five are women, that if you can't tell which five are the men, or if you enjoy all ten, the physical sensation of the blowjob that makes you gay. No, it, it just first of all, I, nobody in their right mind would do that if they're straight and they knew five men were doing this. And if they were, if they thought it was ten women and it was five men, that that's a cruel thing to do to them. But uh, the physical sensation of, of liking that versus who you'd want to have do it to you, that, that's two totally different things. So, so, uh, so Shane just continued to argue with him. Prahlad says, what I'm saying is if you knew it was a man and weren't blindfolded, you wouldn't enjoy it. That's because you have a block put on you by society. What? So Shane says, no, it's not because of society, because sexuality in the sense you're trying to dissect it is more complex than the physical sensation one gets from a mouth and the genitalia. You're creating an absurd parameter and citing, quote, some studies to make a faulty point. Exactly. So so his, his next point was that every guy's bisexual because if they didn't know it was a guy blowing them instead of a girl, then they would enjoy it. That's a terrible premise. But why is he bringing all this up? What's the reason for this whole line of discussion on Twitter? Why? He brought it up. No one brought it up to him. Why, why is he bringing this out there? It's obvious why he's bringing it out there. He, he has these feelings himself and wants to feel normal. And here's the worst thing about this whole thing he's bringing out there. He doesn't even realize this. Now, remember, Prahlad, he, he believes he's this uh, woke, left-wing liberal who is accepting of everybody... And society, they're just as, they're not as enlightened as he is. But you know what he's doing here? He doesn't realize it. He is using the exact same line of reasoning, which was used in the past and even in the present, to justify gay conversion therapy. Gay conversion therapy is where parents who are unhappy that they have gay kids send them to a camp where they are pressured and convinced to, quote, turn straight, where kids are told that being gay is wrong and that there's heterosexuality inside of everybody. You just have to bring it out. You just have to make the gay feeling go away. In some cases, they say you should just pray the gay away. And if you want it enough, you can become straight. They teach you at these gay conversion camps. I don't know if they're called straight conversion, gay, the conversion camps. And these are really antiquated concepts, and most people these days are not for these camps. Many think it's cruel. I think they're wrong. I don't think these should exist. 
if even if you hope your kid isn't gay, if they are, you need to accept them and just say, okay, that's what they are, and I'm still going to love them. You can't change it. Occasionally it's a phase and they'll switch back, but usually it isn't. But if it's going to happen, it's going to be on its own. It's not going to be from some conversion center or, con- or conversion camp. But what's funny here is this is the reasoning that made these camps exist in the first place. The reasoning for these camps was that everybody actually has heterosexuality in them somewhere. You just have to bring it out. Even the gayest person is a little bit straight deep down. So you just got to bring that part out and push the gay back. So what Perlot is saying is that there's no such thing as liking only one gender, not the other. Not possible, he's saying. You have to always like one of the genders a little bit. If you're straight, there's no such thing as 100% straight. A tiny percentage of you at least has to be bi. If you're a dude, a little bit of you has to like guys. Not possible to be 100% straight, according to Perlot. And that's exactly the reasoning that was used for these conversion camps. That there's no such thing as 100% gay. So if there's straightness in everybody, you can bring it out. And that's wrong. I have met people, I'm sure you have met people, who are gay, that you're sure have no attraction to the opposite sex. Similarly, there are people out there who have no attraction to the same sex. I'm one of them. I am one of them. If I liked guys, I probably would have done stuff with a guy by now. I don't, and I haven't, and I won't. Not because of society, not because I'm repressed. I'm just not attracted to guys. I never was. <laughs> so, and are there straight guys out there who have a little bit of attraction to guys but not enough to act on it? Yes. Are there guys who are bi-curious? Yes. Are there guys who are bisexual and just only express the straight side? Yes. Are there gay guys in heterosexual relationships because they're ashamed to admit they're gay? Yes. But that does not mean that's everybody. There are people who are 100% straight. There are people who are 100% gay. And there are people in between. But Perlad denies the 100% straight exists. And that's probably because he isn't and is ashamed of that unless he can cast it upon everybody. That's what's going on here. But what a weird line of tweeting to talk about a 100K bet with a lie detector about if a guy, if you have gay thoughts and uh, if you got a blowjob from a man, didn't know it was a man that makes you gay. And we just insane stuff he's tweeting here. And why? Like, just to bring this up out of nowhere. So we know why. So Perlod, it's very simple. Your next tweet should say, my name is Perlod Friedman. I'm mostly straight, but I'm a little bit bisexual. I'm attracted to men. I'm more attracted to women, but I like men too sometimes. Don't judge me. If you do, then screw you. I don't care what you think of me. That's what you should put out there. I've always had a problem with those who believe that their sexuality is what everyone else's sexuality has to be. If you're a bi-curious guy, fine, but that doesn't mean everybody who is straight is a bi-curious guy. And if you are a straight guy, that doesn't mean every other guy is straight. It goes both ways. If there are gay people who have no attraction to the opposite sex, then there are straight people with no attraction to the same sex. Wouldn't that make sense? 
what's he going to say next? That lesbians don't really exist and that deep down they all really like men? Because he's saying that about men. So is that true for women too? Lesbians, no such thing as a pure lesbian? Every lesbian really wants it from a man deep down? What's he trying to say here? But he doesn't know what he's trying to say. He, he makes no sense. This this is somebody who really believes they're so enlightened and above the rest of us. And in reality, you see how ignorant he really is. He's using reasoning that was used to justify conversion camps. That's that's all. He doesn't realize it, but that's what he's doing. Just like how the anti-corporate guy knowingly represented a corrupt and fraudulent and scammy corporation despite everyone offering to show him that the company he was representing was exactly that. He didn't care because he had to maintain his lifestyle. And I'm glad that most of poker sees him for what he is, though. Like the UBU thing really opened people's eyes about him. And it's funny because before the UB thing, like, I didn't like him, but I thought, all right, at least the guy's honest. At least he's genuine. But nope, he isn't that either. If somebody asked me to represent a site and I was broke or close to broke or didn't have enough money to maintain the lifestyle I wanted to have, I'd say, yeah, sure. But if then someone brought me evidence that the site that I was representing was very shady, had stolen from people before, were misrepresenting who the current owners are, And if I was brought compelling evidence, I would either quit or go to the company and say, this is what has been brought to me. Prove otherwise beyond the shadow of a doubt or I'm out of here. That's what I would do. That's not what Prahlad did. So yeah, when you're killing the poker games and making all kinds of money, yeah, you can turn down sponsorships from poker stars and say, yeah, corporations are evil. I don't take that money. But that doesn't matter when you don't need the money. Yeah, you don't take the money. But when you need the money, if you take the dirty money, that speaks volumes about you. Anyway, go take a look at his Twitter. (laughs) You can can see all this crazy stuff. Between him and Kate Hall, I I don't know who tweets the weirdest stuff. His Twitter is at Prolod Friedman, P-R-A... P-R-A-H-L-A-A-D Friedman, F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N No spaces or underscores or anything, just Prolot Friedman. And his name on Twitter, not his Twitter account, but his name that he's listed under is Progress, P-R-A-G-R-E-S-S, and that's a combination of Prolot and Progress. Isn't that, isn't that uh, sweet? Isn't that enlightened? He came up with that years ago. Even that is obnoxious. <laughs> Progress. Uh. In general, I, I can't think of one person, one white person I've known who talks like they're black that I've ever liked. Usually that's the sign of a phony. It's a sign of someone who's not genuine. Again, the only way I could excuse it is if the person grew up like in a black neighborhood where that's just kind of how they learn to talk. But that wasn't Prahlad. So what you're seeing with him is it's a guy who is kind of like a guilty rich kid who 
feels like he, he doesn't want the rich white kid identity, so he's going to identify with black people so he seems cooler. Not identify with them, but almost identify as one without saying he is, by imitating them. I think that's very disrespectful to black people to, to act that way. If that was not your experience in your culture to be doing that. It's one thing to say, I, I understand what you've gone through, or I understand the challenges you've faced, and I can empathize with you, but it's another thing to pretend you're one of them in a way. 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355 is the number. I forgot to play a sound effect. I, I got through this whole segment without playing this. How did I do that? That was not good. Okay. Now we can move on to the next topic. Have you heard Rude Jude, by the way? Do you know who that is? No. He's, uh, he's on one, he was on Howard. He's got a station on AM, on, uh, Sirius XM. But, you know, he grew up in Detroit. You'd think this guy was a brother for sure when you hear him on the, uh, on the radio. He just, you know, grew up in the hood. And then you look at him, he could be an accountant. <laughs> it's hilarious. Well, at least he grew up in White Detroit, guy. though. At least, like, yeah, yeah. I don't know where, I, I don't know where Fralad grew up, but I, I know that he's from a rich family and I know he did not grow up in the hood. I know that this is an invented persona. Well, I think he played basketball growing up, so I can see maybe, you know, Redwood. <laughs> it, it is true. I, I think, he's, been... I, th- I think he set a record. I think he set a record actually with, for free throws. He, he like just practiced and practiced and practiced free throws. And I think he may have set a record on like the number of consecutive free throws a person's ever done. I think that at least right, the, something like that happened, or he won a bet. I was, was it a record? I don't know. But yeah, yeah. something. He, he he really did like an insane number of free throws, which is impressive, but. <laughs> Doesn't really change anything else I said. All right, and sorry I extended the topic. You're about to move on, and you're probably ready to kill me. So I'm going to move on to Matt Berkey, also on Twitter. Now, Matt Berkey, uh, I don't have a problem with him. He's a good player. Uh, he's someone who I don't know that much about his history, but I think he's had drug issues in the past that he's gotten over, and he's uh, he's a smart guy. He's uh, become successful in poker. He's played some very high stakes games, higher than I'll ever play. Uh, he currently runs a training program. There's a lot of these poker training programs out there. Some of them are video programs. Some of them are academies where you go down there and they teach you in person. I think his is an academy. It's called Solve for Why, and that's for W-H-Y. And it, it's it's – I don't know that much about it, but it's – the impression I've gotten is that it's supposed to be like a poker academy where you really think deeply – about the strategy you're employing. That's why he's calling it solve for why, which is he's taking the term solve for why in algebra and changing to solve for why, W-H-Y. And it's kind of like you're not going to just find out the best play to make, but also why you're making that play. Solve for why you're doing this. So, okay, that's fine. I don't think that's a bad way to approach poker tutoring. And I know that they have these in-person academies where uh, it takes a few days and, and you this is intensive class where you get taught this stuff. That's about the limit of what I know about it. I wasn't sure if they also had videos. I, I was never interested enough to look into it. I found 
Matt Berkey was a little bit pretentious from what I'd seen of him on social media, but I didn't have a problem with him. It's not like Prahlad where I really thought the guy was an idiot. Uh, Matt Berkey, I didn't have any problem with him. I didn't think badly of him. I didn't think badly about his course. In fact, if I had to guess, I think his course is probably good. But uh, I came across something on Twitter. There were tweets by Vanessa Russo. Yes, Vanessa Russo. But not that Vanessa Russo. There's a second Vanessa Russo out there, would you believe, who tweets about poker. But this Vanessa Russo doesn't have an O-U in her last name. It's just R-U-S-S-O. There's a Vanessa R-U-S-S-O out there. Real name. And even though the better-known Vanessa Russo has left poker, we now have replacement Vanessa Russo who tweets about poker. They're fairly different, and from what I can tell, Vanessa Russo, without the O, is straight and not a lesbian like this Vanessa Russo, that uh, the better-known one. But anyway, Vanessa Russo, the lesser-known one, was tweeting about something about the Solve for Why TV, which I think is some video thing they're doing and how she's looking forward to it coming out, something like that. I It interested me enough to click on the at she did on Twitter of Solve for Y TV, so I could uh, understand exactly what she was talking about. I knew it had something to do with Berkey, but I didn't, uh, I didn't fully know what was going on there. So... Uh, let me uh, tell you what happened from there because this uh, this created a whole thing. Not a huge thing, but I thought it was worth mentioning. So this is what she tweeted. January 11th, Hi, my name is Vanessa, and I'm obsessed with Poker Out Loud Season 4 from Solve for YTV. Intervention may be required. Send help. So she's basically saying, Guy, I love Solve for YTV so much. Uh, they're coming out with a, another group of episodes, and I need an intervention required because I'm obsessed with them so much. So I responded back. Well, let, let me get to first why I responded the way I did. So I clicked on Solve for Y TV on Twitter, and it said this. Solve for Y Poker Training, a live poker training experience led by Matt Berkey, where attendees learn to construct and implement a holistic poker strategy from the ground up. A holistic poker strategy from the ground up. <laughs> I've never heard the word holistic used with poker before. But to me, that sounded incredibly pretentious, even if it's a good course. Attendees learn to construct and implement a holistic poker strategy from the ground up. It, it kind of it feels like people are going to be sitting around uh, chanting and uh, doing yoga, drinking tea, no offense, Traderuski, while they're playing poker. That's what it sounds like to me. It sounds, it sounds ridiculous. Even if the course is good, that description, to me, sounded ridiculous. Now, did this bother me? No, I just thought it was kind of weird and foolish, kind of a pretentious description. Did I hate Solve for YTV? No, but I... So I I made kind of a half-joking response. And I said, I don't really know much about Solve for YTV, but their description of a live poker training experience where attendees learn to construct and implement a holistic poker strategy for the ground up makes me instantly hate it. Well, that got a reaction. Vanessa Russo was the first one to bite my head off. She wrote, 
that's next level to assess something you don't know much about and hate it. I just never developed the talent it takes to do this. I like to challenge myself to know about something before I draw my personal conclusions that don't affect anyone else but me. So I didn't know what to say back to that, so I just said, Careful, you're sounding too much like the other Vanessa Russo now. <laughs> Which is kind of true. Then she tweeted back like a thank you so much gif. And I said, look, I know you love the content and that's fine, but please at least admit that the Twitter description of the channel is beyond pretentious. Vanessa Fake Russo said back, I get that the word holistic could be a little too frou-frou for the poker crowd. Yes. But it's an appropriate word to characterize it. You're already a pro, but for us noobs, it's important to look at the game from not only its parts, but how they fit into the big picture. Okay, so so far it's just me and, and replacement Vanessa Russo going back and forth. But then Matt Berkey saw all this and he got into it. So Matt Berkey said, we'd love to have you observe an academy, Todd would tell us, and decide for yourself if the description fits. Open to negative criticism so long as it's informed. So I didn't exactly know what he meant by observe it. I didn't know if, like, there was, remember they're talking about the Solve for YTV. I don't know if, like, he was going to send me a video or something. So I said, okay, how can I do this? I'll be glad to observe and be honest. FYI, I was not making any claims that your course is bad, just that the description sounded pretentious, and my comment was only half serious, but I will view an Academy video if you like. So I was serious about that. I said, okay. You know, I walked into this. I, I made the comment I did. He's saying that he'd like me to take a look and give my true opinion. Yes, me giving my true opinion can be kind of unintentional free marketing that I'm giving him, but whatever. I, I'm willing to do it. So I thought maybe he's going to send me a video, but he says back, the Academy is an in-person three-day training. The day is split with strategy, construction, and the AM and RFID gameplay in the afternoon, complete with commentary for the 18 students to review. So basically they're playing on RFID cards, and then he... Then they look over how they played each hand so they can all see each other's whole cards and, and I'll discuss it together, which isn't a bad idea. And by the way, having that RFID system is how he was able to be familiar with the system that they were using at Stones. It was the same system, and he was explaining in one of his videos how Apostle probably cheated. They were very good videos he made there, so for that I, I respected him. Uh, so he was inviting me to observe one of these academies. So uh, that was a little bit too much, and also I'm I know these are taking place in Vegas, and I'm not in Vegas at the moment. So I said, I'm not in Vegas, I can't, but I'll consider if there's one over the summer and I'm free. And so then, then we talked, I messaged him privately at this point, and I, and I said, look, I'm not, I'm not quoting directly what I said, but if, I, I basically said, I have no problem with you, I respect what you did with Apostle stuff, and I have no problem with you personally or your course. I don't know much about your course. I did feel the title was a bit pretentious, but even that was half-joking, but uh, if, if you really would like me to observe it, then, then tell me what I need to do, but I it would have to be when I'm in Vegas and have some time. So he actually said there's one going on in the summer, though I, I may not be able to attend this because it may interfere with World Series events. I, I also don't think I'll want to do it for three days. It's too much, but I, I could observe one for part of a day or something. It'd be interesting to see, and I'll give my true opinion. I'll state it on the show. I'm not above doing that. And I, I assume that he's not going to charge me for this. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm not going to do it. I'm not. Uh, this isn't a way for him to make a sale. But if he, if he wants me to come there and just watch it or watch part of it and give my opinion, I'll give my true opinion. And uh, you know, provided he knows I'm going to say the good and the bad. I'm not going to come in there like looking to bash it. I'm not going to come in there looking to kiss ass and only say good things. But if I, I'm going to state what I really feel, 
Uh, from the description I'm seeing there, it seems like a decent course. I, I can't endorse it. I don't know enough about it. I'm not telling you guys to take the course. Uh, the description, it sounds like a good idea. Uh, there, there might be overthinking going on. And again, I don't want to get too much into theories about this because I don't know enough about it. But when I say overthinking, like sometimes thinking too much about a poker hand can be bad. Sometimes you can talk yourself into folding. Sometimes you can talk yourself into making a fancy play that's never going to work. Sometimes simplicity is better. Sometimes complexity is better in poker. I, I really have seen people who overthink things and then make a mistake because they overthink it. Uh, not related to Matt Berkey or his course. But I've, I've told this story before, but it, some of you may not have heard it. In Limit Hold'em, there aren't that many times where you're making big laydowns, but it can happen. You, you do have to make laydowns to save bets, otherwise you're going to bleed away money. And a lot of people don't know that in Limit Hold'em. They just figure, just always call the river, because it's one more bet, one more small bet, compared to the pot. But if you do that over and over, you're going to hemorrhage money. That's a, a big skill for advanced Limit Hold'em, is you have to know when to fold even in spots that it would seem you'd call? Well, at the Bellagio one time, we were playing 100-200 limit. There was an Asian guy I hadn't seen before, and I didn't know who he was, a younger Asian guy. But he was obsessed with hand reading. He just loved calling out everybody's hands before they turned it over. At the end of the hand. He didn't interfere with the hand, but like right before they turned it over, he'd say, that guy has queens. That guy has ace-king. That guy has jack-ten. Like he, he, he loved to do it. He was actually pretty good at it. I'll give him this. Like he, was, he was good at reading hands. But he was trying to show off so much how good he was at reading hands. Well, there was one hand where he bluffed me. And then he turned over the bluff and was all proud of himself. And I knew what he was thinking. I knew he was thinking, ah, I read this guy's hand and I, I made this move and he fell for it and folded. Ah, ha, 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 look, I, I outplayed that pro. Ha, 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 ha. So I wasn't insulted, but I'm thinking, you know what? I wonder if I could use this against him. I wonder if I could use this guy's overthinking about what everybody has on every hand against him. So after we played a while and he got an impression of me, that I wasn't uh, a maniac. That I was. That I was. I had a reason behind every bet. Uh, I got kind of roped into a pot with like five four suited, where I, I think I called from the small blind, and then someone re-raised from the big blind, and then someone four bet, then I called, and someone five bet. I forgot the, the multi-way like five bets, and he was the five better. Well, from seeing his play, I knew he's only five betting in that multi-way pot uh, if he's got. Aces or kings, probably only aces. Okay? Well, I flopped an open-ended straight flush draw with the 5-4 of diamonds. So, uh, I think it was 3-6 uh, jack or something with two diamonds. So, I was going to, you know, knowing I'm not going to, at first I'm thinking, okay, well, I'm not going to run all these people off the hand. There's, there's no point to play this aggressively because I'm just going to spew money if I don't hit. But then I thought about, you know what? If I can get it down between me and him, I bet this guy is going to overthink enough to fold if he's got aces. Because he was so obsessed with hand reading. So, anyway, I was super aggressive on the flop. And also, I was a favorite against any hand except for uh, yeah, any individual hand. I was a favorite against except for a uh, set. So, or or a higher flush draw. So, uh, I put in five bets out of position on the flop. Turn brick. I bet 
he was the only one to call. It's just me and him now. River, brick. Now I have five high. Pot's pretty big. Remember, a lot of people saw this pre-flop for five bets. That makes it big right away. I thought, I've got a fire here. I know he's got aces. Anyone else is calling this? Because there is a busted flush draw. He's not going to think I had 5-4 for the straight draw, but the flush draw, he could think I have the ace-high flush draw. Any other player can think I'd just be pounding the ace-high flush draw. But this guy, who thinks he's such a great hand reader, he's the one player who I think may lay down aces, heads up here for this huge pot to one bet. So I fired the river. And he said, oh, I know you flopped a set. I know it. I know you flopped a set. That's what you have to have. What do you, what do you have there? Uh, you, you have pocket threes, pocket sixes, maybe pocket jacks. You, you have one of those three. I know it. You, you have to have one of those three. You, you have to have a set. I can't picture what you'd have there if it wasn't a set. Because I know you know I probably have aces. And I have aces. So I think you I think you flopped a set. Yeah. You flopped a set. I'm not giving you another 200. You flopped a set. And he folded his ace's face up. He said all this out loud. <laughs> so. And did you show? Well, so at first I said, I thought I'm going to turn this over now and rub it in his face. And I go, no, 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 no. I can't hear. I may want to pull this on him again. So I didn't show it. Then a little more time passed. And I decided, no, I should have showed him. So I, so. Should I say something? I don't know the hands. I, I I don't want to say it at this point, but I'll wait if he brings it up. So he, sure enough, a little bit later in the session, he says, "So you had a set there, huh?" I said, "No, I had five four diamonds." He says, five four di- What would five four diamonds been? I said, five high." He says, what? "No, you wouldn't have done that with five high." I said, "No, I opened it a straight and flush draw. I just kept pounding it and you folded." He says, "What? No, you didn't have." That. I go, "No, I had it." And he goes, "Seriously?" He goes, "Yeah." And we sat there for another few minutes. He goes, you didn't have 5-4 or dime. I go, no, I had 5-4 or dime. He was so bothered by this. He was so bothered that he made that lay down, which was for thousands of dollars, so I understand. But like, he was so mad at himself for thinking so much about this to retalk himself into folding. So it was the perfect case of, of using someone's overhand reading against them. Because anyone else who didn't out, hand read out loud, I would never have fired that river. Heads, I know they're going to call. In no limit, it's one thing to, to fire and hope they think you had a set and lay down. But for for one two hundred dollar bet in, in, into a pot that's thousands of dollars, of course, you know he's not going to. No one's going to lay that down except someone like him. So I, he finally, I convinced him that's what I had, and he was really frustrating. Oh okay, well, shit! I I'm good hand. I, got, I wow, I didn't expect. Okay, let's wow five four. He was really really bothered by it. He just kept there muttering to himself with the five four diamonds. <laughs> At first in disbelief, and then finally to believe me, and was very frustrated. So that's that's just an, I'm telling this story not to brag, and I've I've made bad laydowns myself too. I'm I'm not saying I wasn't on the other end of this ever, but uh, I've had laydown I've made laydowns and limit hold them I've been ashamed of, but that was an example of where thinking too much is actually bad. You just have to call the aces there on a board like that. You always do. How much do you think? No, you do for sure. But also, I think, you know, when you're rate, capping it, <clears throat> raising it three or four bets with four or five suited or five, six suited, 
when you hit, you can get a lot of money. Well, right. And that's, if you're, you know, if you're stuck in between. Yes, that, that's, that's, and that's what I thought. That's why yeah. on the flop I thought I might as well make this five bets in this way. If I hit, they're not going to, especially the straight, they're not going to see it coming. Like if I, if I hit the straight, they're going to totally just keep re-raising me and not understand what I have there. Exactly. So, um, and, and I knew I had a good chance to hit either one of them. I just, I was a little worried maybe someone has the, the, the higher flush draw, but they, they didn't because the, everyone folded the turn except him. But anyway, that's, uh, I just mentioning this, not to say that you shouldn't think, but overthinking can be bad in poker. And I've, I've actually tried to do a balance over time with my poker play of between overthinking and underthinking. It can be hard sometimes, but I've, I've, I've actually tried, at times I've stopped myself as, wait, I'm overthinking this. I've just got a call, and if I'm wrong here, I'm wrong, and that's that. Like, I just, uh, I have had made folds that were too tight because of overthinking. And or, or sometimes people can make moves that are over aggressive because of overthinking. Where you you're, you're convinced this guy has this. You're so convinced you, 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 you convince yourself and you make a overly aggressive move, thinking they're going to lay it down. And then it turned out either they had what you thought they had, but they don't lay it down, or uh, they have something much better than you thought and you get crushed. Like it's just sometimes overthinking in poker can hurt you. So I, I would have to look at the course to see if it could inadvertently encourage that. I'm just throwing possibilities out there. I'm not saying it does. And uh, I would be interested to see it, though. Like, it would, be, it would be interesting to observe for some time, this course. Both ends of it. The RFID play and the, the, the like, deep thinking about poker session in the AM. It'd be interesting to see this. I'm not sure what level it's aimed at. I know it probably is aimed more at beginners. But uh, still be interesting to watch this. Maybe I'll even pick up a thing or two there. You know, Matt Berkey's a very good player. If I do this, I'll let you guys know. I figured I might as well send him the private message, too, because I, I didn't want the guy thinking I hated him or was trying to bash his course or that I, I have a friend who, who, who might own a different uh, competing course, which I don't. He didn't say these things. I just didn't want him believing that. Like, I I don't mind if people dislike me because I'm criticizing them or being nasty to them because I think they deserve it and then they don't like what I say. But this, this was someone I didn't have a problem with that I didn't want, want creating for no reason. Someone even commented in the thread where I was telling him, like, no hard feelings. Like, someone said, oh, well, you're, you're looking like you have no spine here. It's not no spine. I, I didn't have a reason to have a spine there. There's no reason to have that come into play. This wasn't someone I felt I was fighting with. Sometimes you can get the impression that maybe someone – thinks you don't like them or don't like or you don't like their business when you don't have a problem you you want them to know that and if if I have a problem with someone I want them to know and if I don't have a problem I also want them to know that I don't have a problem I want to be honest so that's it's not about a spine I'm just I know it's more entertaining if I just pick fights with everybody some of you may enjoy watching that but it's I have to live with the consequences of that nor do I feel people deserve fights being picked with them if they didn't do anything wrong and I don't Know that much about Matt Berkey, but I don't know if anything he's done really wrong in poker, so I'm not looking to start up with him. And there were some listeners to the show who were defending him, saying that they, they like him and they respect him a lot, so, you know, fine. Well, here are two people who are definitely not fine people, and ones I don't respect, even though I don't know them personally. A white trash couple decided to leave their car running unlocked with their 16-month-old child inside and 
go into a shell station and gamble there. And predictably, the car got stolen with the kid inside. This happened in Texas, which I had always believed didn't have anything like this. Slot machines in gas stations. I always thought Texas has pretty restrictive gambling laws, among the more restrictive in the U.S. But apparently there's a special kind of machine, which I'll get into, that I've learned about is what exists there. Kimberly Cook and her boyfriend, Anthony Blue, she is 21, he is 29. They both kind of have a meth look to them. These geniuses... uh, would habitually go to a Shell gas station where they lived in Humble, Texas and played on some kind of digital slot machine there. They had a 16-month-old child together and they can't bring the child in while they gamble. So their only solution here, since I guess they didn't have anyone to watch the child, was to leave the child in the car. They presumably left the engine running because the uh, it was probably because of the weather outside. It's it's winter time, and Texas isn't like New York or Chicago. It's it's not as cold as that, but it does get chilly at night, just like Los Angeles does. You would not want to leave a sixteen month old in a car late at night in Los Angeles right now. It would get too cold. So they probably they it didn't say this, but I'm guessing they left the engine running to keep the heat on in the car. They probably thought, hey, we're being responsible parents. We're keeping the car nice and warm. And they were even going out there every so often to check on the kid. So they'd be playing. Now, I don't know why one couldn't be at the machine and the other one sit in the car and then they take turns. That would be the way it would make sense if they really want to do this so badly. Leave one in the car with a baby, the other one gamble, and they switch off. But they, they so badly wanted to play these machines together that the only solution for them was to leave the 16-month-old in the car by himself and presumably leave the heat on. To leave the heat on, you have to have the engine running, and probably because of the way the car worked, there was no way to lock the car door with nobody in there to open it. Obviously, the baby can't open it for them, so they, I guess the only way to do it was to leave the car unlocked because they can't take the well, key. Why couldn't they bring him into the shell station? It's not like it was a casino or something. Be- probably because they can't sit at the machines with him. They probably can go in the station, but the second they sit at the machine, it's illegal, and they probably the clerk won't let them. That's my guess here. So... They did this habitually, and several times went by, and nothing bad happened. But then there's that one time that something does. Remember, the car is unlocked. It's late at night. It's running. So two hoodlums who had already – they already had a felony record, despite being 18 and 19. Jabari Davis and Vincent Vincent Kennedy, they they were already – on some kind of version of probation, it's called a deferred adjudication for other felony charges. I don't know which ones. But they walked by and saw that a car was running with an unlocked door. And they felt, well, here's a car we can take. Okay. And they jumped in and sped away. I don't know if they saw the baby. I'm guessing they probably didn't. They probably just saw the running car and thought, oh, sweet. Jumped in the car and sped off. Well, the parents of the little baby noticed this and, of course, panicked. And they called the police. Problem is, uh, 
where's the car going? There's no way to know. There's no tracking device, no cell phone in the car. They don't know who stole it. So this car has just been driven off with their kid, and they don't even know if the people who stole it are stealing the kid or, or trying to steal the car. They also don't know what will happen to the kid if they didn't know that there was a kid in there, and then they discover there is one. Well, what happened was these two dudes realized at some point, or maybe they already knew, but I'm guessing they didn't know when they jumped in the car, they realized there's a baby in there. And they probably said, oh shit, what do we do now? Well, at the very least, you think they'd leave the baby quickly somewhere that you know the baby would be safe. But I guess they didn't want to be identified or have the police called on them further, so they just decided, screw the baby. We're not going to kill the baby. We're not going to hurt the baby, but... We'll just abandon the baby where nobody sees and not tell anyone where the baby is. So they went by a park 20 miles away, said, yeah, this looks like a good spot to leave the baby. And it was cold outside, probably probably 40 degrees or whatever it was that night. And they just dropped the 16-month-old child alone late at night in the park and speed off. Great guys. Well, the kid was very lucky. A park ranger was locking up right around that time. So a short time later, the park ranger sees this little thing that runs by that kind of looks like an animal, but not exactly like an animal. He thinks, what the hell is this? He walks over. He can't believe it. There's a baby in a onesie by itself. No adults around. No other people around. Just just him and the baby. So the park rangers, what the fuck is this? So he, he grabs the baby and uh, calls the police. The police quickly connect that baby to the missing baby that was uh, in the stolen car. So the baby, fortunately, was okay. The baby was uh, shivering, very cold and scared, but uh, nothing had happened to the baby yet. Baby could have died out there, but uh, fortunately, the uh, baby was found by this park ranger. Otherwise, how do you find the baby? Like, if the baby's wandered off into the brush somewhere, how are you going to find it? Overnight, who knows what would happen to the baby? Just it could die from exposure in that amount of time. Fortunately, that park ranger happened to be there. So the baby was rescued. Uh, They put out uh, an APB on the car. These two geniuses who stole the car were still driving the car. You think after abandoning the baby that the smart thing to do would be abandon the car and know that you're really going to be screwed if you're caught? Because at that point, you've done much worse than stole a car. But no, they just kept driving the car. And the police eventually located the car and pulled them over. So they were arrested. And the parents were arrested. The parents are not going to face as harsh of charges as the car thieves. But uh, nevertheless, uh, they're facing charges as well. All four have been arrested and charged. The gas station clerk said they do it all the time, referring to the parents leaving the car running out there. And she said that she's warned both parents before about uh, the danger of this. And there was even a video released of the parents reacting, though I expected better than I saw. I expected like some video of seeing the car disappear or seeing the parents like jump up really shocked. You kind of just see them like quickly walking out the door. It's really not a very interesting video. Uh, 
the two parents are facing child endangerment charges, and I'm guessing they're probably going to lose the kid, too. I'm guessing these two car thieves are going to spend a lot of time behind bars because they were already on that deferred adjudication for some other felony. Stealing the car is bad enough at that point, but to leave a 16-month-old out in the cold in a park where there's a good chance no one is going to find the kid, where it really looked like they're just... They, they weren't quite bad enough to kill the or hurt the kid, but they wanted to just drop the kid somewhere that no one's going to see them dropping the kid. So they, they couldn't even do, like go drop the kid in front of a restaurant or something and... Uh, or, or, in, or quickly you know, drop the kid in a restaurant and say, hey, you know, uh, call the police and return this kid to his parents and run off. Like they didn't want anyone seeing them or calling the police on them. So instead of trying to figure out a way they could bring the kid back to safety in some way without getting themselves in trouble, they just said, ah, we're just going to drop this kid in this park. And I don't know, I don't know what they thought was going to happen from that point. Because if a park ranger was involved, the, the park was probably somewhat out of the way. So didn't they think that the Decent chance the kid was just going to die out there? Maybe wander out in the street and get hit by a car or maybe die from the elements? Yeah, uh, That's very bad, even if you're only 18 and 19. Very, very bad. So I have a feeling they're going to be behind bars for a long time for that. If something had happened to the kid, they could have spent life in prison. But uh, fortunately for them, the kid was found quickly. Now, what is the slot machine they were playing in there? I was wondering about that too. Like, okay, what's the slot machine? <laughs> Uh, I knew Texas is, is pretty strict gambling laws. There's been a lot of complaints in Texas over the years that it's hard to gamble there. So FTP Jesus on Poker Fraud Alert, who's a listener to this show, has clarified. He said, most of these slot machines are what they call video sweepstakes machines. It's a loophole in the law that some places... Uh, it's a loophole in the car that some places drive a fucking truck through. What he's saying is that it's such a large loophole that they uh, exploit this in places. He said some states, like North Carolina, close the loophole, then crack down hard on the operators. Huh, maybe they are for a responsible gaming in North Carolina. There were places literally that were simple sweepstakes parlors, glorified slot rooms. They then try to claim they're selling online internet access. Yeah, access which got them to these sweepstakes machines. Yeah, I heard something about sweepstakes machines. I don't know that much about them, but I've heard it's like some way to semi-skirt gambling laws and some states aren't cracking down. Texas seems to have a lot of this weird type of stuff. You know, they have those strange poker rooms we've talked about that aren't technically taking a rake but are in a different way. Now you have these machines. And it's always like bad on the players. It's never a good deal for the players. So these people were so desperate to play these crappy machines that they, they leave their kid in the car with the door unlocked, the engine running. How stupid. But sorry, they, both of them kind of have a meth look to them. It's not like a super obvious meth look, but it's, it's kind of a meth look. They have the, so Why wouldn't they lock the doors? Uh, be, I think probably they couldn't because the key has to – if they probably if they walk away with the key – uh, the the uh, they off. should be able to lock them. I mean, lock them. I, you know, I found sometimes it's hard to lock the door while the engine's on. I've noticed that myself. Or like, I've even I found it's also hard to to lock the door. Uh, when I have the key with with me, with, like without turning the alarm on, it could also be about the alarm. It's possible the baby moves and, and makes the alarm go off. Th- that could have been the problem. Too. Oh yeah, true. That's something that 
like separate from this, there's I should say kind of related, but it's actually kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum. These parents are obviously very irresponsible. But there's also the other end of the spectrum where people say you should never, ever, ever leave your kid in the car, even if it's locked, no matter how short of a time. And in theory, that sounds good. And if you don't have kids, it sounds good. But in reality, it can be hard. Uh, if, if you have to make a stop somewhere for three minutes and your kid is sleeping, like a little baby that's sleeping, and uh, do you really want to wake up the baby? Or do you want to just let it sleep and, and just run in for three minutes? And uh, especially if you could be in view of the car the whole time to make sure like no one's uh, kidnapping it. And for those of you that don't know, the car seats, they're, they're not easy to quickly open and grab a kid out of it. So like if someone, if you could see the car and someone were to break in, you could run over there and stop them from just grabbing the kid. The kid's not just easily grabbable. They have to undo the whole car seat, the, 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 all the belts that are holding the, the kid in. Uh, but the the big concern about this is that irresponsible parents will leave their kid in the car when it's hot or even if it's not hot and there's sun beating down the car and the inside of the car can get very hot and the kids will die in there. And that's happened before. And kids, th- There are stories of this every year where kids die from being left in a hot car. Sometimes the parents don't even realize if it's like 75 degrees and sunny at noon with the sun beating down on the car, if you leave the car there for an hour, it gets very hot in there. And, and babies are more sensitive to that than uh, adults would be. And babies obviously can't just get themselves out and leave. Well, the problem is it's it's changed from rightful concern over this to obsessions where people are breaking windows of any car they walk by that has a baby in there. Or sometimes even any car they walk by with a dog in there. They'll actually break the window of the car, thinking they're doing a good deed. Which, of course, is expensive to replace, and it also can cause danger for the child. Now, many states don't have a law about this, by the way. Many states, it's just has to do with whether you're endangering the child, not not actually illegal to walk away with the child in a locked car. Uh, I had a situation when Ben was about three years old. I had to go to the post office and I really just had to run in there and uh, drop off a package. It was 5.30 p.m. It was at a time of year that the sunset was about like 5.45 p.m. The sun was nowhere near overhead, obviously. It was just about to set. It was 69 degrees outside. And the car, of course, was nice and cool when I pulled up to the post office, and I could have the car in view the entire time. Ben was sleeping. I chose not to wake him up. I chose just to lock the car, have the alarm on, and uh, I knew he probably wouldn't set it off anyway because he's sleeping. If he did, he did. Then I'd you know, turn it off and reset it. I was only going to be in there for a few minutes, and I figured that was safe. And it was safe. I came out, and I saw two women looking at the car. And I uh, saw that they were just about to break the window. And I said, what are you doing? And they gave me a whole lecture about how dangerous this is. And I said, how is it dangerous? They said, well, because of kids in a hot car. I said, 
Do you feel the weather right now? It's 69. It's it was 69 degrees when I pulled up here. This, well, the, the cars can get really hot though from the sun. I said, "What sun? It's 5:45. That the, the, the sun's going to set in like 15 minutes." What's do you, do you see a sun overhead? Well, no, but it can still get hot in there. I go, how? Five minutes I'm in there, at most. How can it get so hot in there if it's 69 degrees with no sun? Well, it does. Cars just get hot like that. And we, we were about to break the window, and what you're doing is terrible. Go, okay. So, so you think it's hot in there? Yes, they said. I said, okay, watch this. I opened the car. I said, put your hand in there. I said, is it hot? They said, well, well uh, no. I said, is it actually cooler in there than it is outside? Well, uh, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, it's 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 fine in there. So, what happened to it? It has to be hot. I said, you see, you were going to break my window over this. So they quietly muttered that, okay, I think we were wrong, and walked away. Not even an apology. They said, oh, okay, I guess we're wrong. But that that was taking it to an extreme. Now I posted this on Facebook at the time, and I said. I'm looking for everybody's opinion. Was I right or wrong here? And some people said I was right, and some said, no, I'm wrong. You never do that. And the people who said I never do that, they weren't doing this from the standpoint of, like, what if someone breaks in and steals the car? Because everybody acknowledged that, yes, you know, they had an alarm on. Yes, I could see it. Yes, it would take a while to get Benjamin out of the, out of the seat. Uh, they were claiming, well, what if I had a heart attack while I was in there? He would have just been trapped in that car. And the person was so proud of themselves for bringing up the heart attack thing. Like, oh, yeah, I think it's safe, but what if I don't come out in five minutes because I have a heart attack? And no one knows he's in there. The person said, ah, what about that, huh? Huh? What about that? You're endangering him, huh? And I said, hold on. What if I had a heart attack while driving? It's a good chance we could both die, right? So are you saying because I could have a heart attack while driving that I should just never drive him anywhere? Should I should never have my son in the car with me anytime, anywhere? Because I could have a heart attack while driving? <laughs> I'm not more likely to have a heart attack when I'm in there than I'm, while I'm driving. So if, if the heart attack is the big concern here, I shouldn't drive him ever. They didn't have a response to that one. I believe that if there's a short time and it's not hot, especially if the sun's not overhead or close to setting, that it's fine. I, I understand that if it's 75, but the sun's beating down at 12 noon that it's not good to leave your kid in the car. If it's 5.30 p.m. and it's 69 degrees and the sun's about to set, then there's no danger of the car overheating. I mean, zero danger. That's just, that's just people like knee-jerk reactions. They just, they just think, oh, a kid's in the car. We have to smash the window. Forget logic. They, they tried to argue with me. They tried to tell me they're sure it's hot in there. I said, do you not, do you not understand? There's no way it can get hot. The sun's not overhead. It's 69 degrees. It can't get hot. I pulled up and it was already cool. It cannot be hot in there. It's not possible to be hot in there. I would say, though, I would not leave my car running unlocked while I'm playing a slot machine with Benjamin in it. That I would not do ever. Now he's old enough where he can... What if the jackpot was over 35,000? Well, 35, well, 35,000. 35 million, I'd have to consider it. 35,000, no. I don't know how much of a penalty they're going to get. This wasn't quite as bad. Like, this isn't as bad as the ones where the parents are caught leaving a, a baby in a hot car. Because this, they can say, well, look, it's at night. We had the heat on. It, uh, if it hadn't been for the car being stolen, it wasn't dangerous. But 
problem is you're leaving the door unlocked. So yes, it is dangerous. Uh, there was child endangerment here for sure. You don't you don't leave your kid in an unlocked car with the, the motor running, where all the person has to do is jump in and drive off, which is what happened. That's that's something you absolutely can't ever do. You can you cannot ever leave your car with the motor motor running with a kid in there with with, with just no adults present. That's something you can't ever do. By the way, this whole thing about not leaving kids in the car, that's only like a recent thing in the last 10 years. And as I said, the awareness about it to prevent deaths of kids in hot cars, is some people are real morons. They'll just, you know, they'll, it'll be 85 degrees with the sun overhead and they'll leave their kid in the car for 90 minutes. Like dumb, dumb things like that. I'm surprised there's morons who could think that's okay. But it's good they're bringing attention to that, but then you always have the self-righteous people who take it to an extreme. All right, seven seven five fraud fifty five seven seven five three seven two eight three five five is the number to this show. We'll move on to our next topic. Trader Risky, how awake are you feeling right now? I don't know, Jeff. I've been. I'm. I'm starting to fade a little bit. But... Oh, well, we're only about through. Half are you ready for a break? No, huh? no, no. I'm just. We're only through about half the topics. I'm just curious. I know you're not going to make it all the way to the end, but. Yeah, and I was, I've been up since five, so I've probably got another 20, 30 minutes. Okay. Well, whatever we get, we get. All right. So Australia has decided to take some action against unlicensed or illegal gambling sites, including poker sites. Australia has banned the Ignition Casino. Yes, that Ignition Casino and eight other online casinos from internet providers in the country. This is uh, a pretty offensive move that they're doing. The U.S. does not ban any sites. As a U.S. resident, I'm sure you cannot think of one site you've attempted to go to on the Internet where your Internet service provider has blocked it. That does not exist in the U.S. There is no blocking in the U.S. of websites. No matter how offensive the website, the website is never blocked. If there's some sort of site which is harmful in some way, maybe the government will take steps to take it down if it's is like it's out of their jurisdiction. They may attack the site in some way to make it go down, like let's say a site with U.S. government secrets. You'd still be able to access it from a U.S. Internet service provider, but the U.S. government would probably take steps to do a denial of service attack or whatever to take the site itself down. But there, there are no banned sites from the U.S., and, and that's the way it should be. There should not be banned sites. That's something that shouldn't exist. But Australia is not only banning websites, but they're actually banning gambling sites. So the Australian Communications and Media Authority, also known as ACMA, A-C-M-A, you know, ACME and the the products that Wile E. Coyote was using to cast the Roadrunner that never worked, this is ACMA. So ACMA has issued a blocking order to for nine online gambling sites, one of which is Ignition Casino. They have selected those nine sites as nine confirmed sites which have been accepting customers from Australia, despite the fact that in 2017 that they banned all forms of online gambling except for sports betting. Now, this is not the first time that ACMA has issued this blocking order. In 2019, 
they blocked uh, something called the Emu Casino. And the Emo Casino actually had a number of domains and a number of brands, but they were all kind of – they were all the Emo the emu Casino, not the Emo Casino. And the Emo Casino eventually just said, screw it, we're, we're not offering play to people from Australia. And by doing that, the Australian authorities agreed to allow customers to withdraw their money. Which I think was crappy. I think the customer should have been allowed to draw their money, withdraw their money, no matter what. But this this wasn't allowed until uh, the agreement was reached that they're going to stop offering games to customers in Australia. So the nine sites that were blocked were Ignition Casino, Brew Casino, GW Casino, Wagerbeat, Joe Fortune, Joe Fortune, Casino Dingo. <laughs> Casino Dingo. How stereotypical is that, Casino Dingo? (laughs) Casino Dingo sounds like a a site that is outside of Australia that is attempting to market to Australians, which I bet is exactly what it was. AU Slots, standing for Australian Slots, Top Bet and X Bet. Now, again, none of these are in Australia, otherwise the owners of these sites would be arrested as well. But these are foreigners outside of Australia running sites that are meant to appeal to Australians like AU Slots and Casino Dingo. Though I would think Casino Dingo would be kind of condescending. Because you think of something like a dingo having to do with Australia if you're not an Australian. If you're an Australian, you just think of a dingo as an animal. It's only an Aussie animal if you're not in Australia. So... They said, more than 79 complaints have been submitted to ACMA about these services, which are available in Australia. ACMA investigations found these services to be operating in breach of the Interactive Gaming Act of 2001. Website blocking is one of a range of enforcement and disruption options ACMA uses to protect Australians against illegal gambling services. More than 90 illegal companies have been have pulled out of the Australian market since 2017 when ACMA started enforcing new illegal offshore gambling rules. So if you were playing against fish from Australia on ignition in their poker room, bad news, they're not there anymore. If you were playing against sharks from Australia, good news, they're not there anymore. People on 2 Plus 2 from Australia have reported, indeed, they cannot access... Ignition Casino through their ISP. There are probably ways to do it through VPNs, but I am guessing most aren't going to bother, and there's a decent chance that Ignition is just going to ban Aussie customers completely. Uh, I don't know what other sites Aussies have been playing on, some sites just don't accept Australian customers because of that 2017 law. But Ignition was. And now you can't get there anymore. But that's interesting that they were actually forcing the ISPs in Australia to block that. You just don't see that in the U.S. It just doesn't exist here. And I hope that doesn't ever start in the U.S. There would be a lot of protest to that. In the U.S., it's generally accepted that the U.S., uh, that the Internet is open and unrestricted in that what the 
user of the internet wants to view, he can view if he can reach it. Now, you can get in trouble for viewing certain things like child porn, but for the most part, anything you want to view, you can do so without worry about what's going to happen to you. And nothing is blocked. And as I said, anything that shouldn't be there that's very illegal, the at worst, the U.S. government finds ways to take the sites down. Many in Australia are frustrated that this is happening. And understandably, they hate the fact that their government is ordering ISPs to block sites. And you also have to wonder what's next. One problem with a situation where sites can be blocked is it can start leading to suppression of opinions. What if next the government starts to block sites that are critical of the Aussie government and they cloak it under some excuse that they're blocking it for a different reason. It's a very, very slippery slope once you start to support site blocking because that can start to allow the government to just prevent its citizens from seeing certain things on the Internet that they just don't want them to see. And that's what allows fascist regimes to thrive. I am a big believer in an open Internet. I don't think it should be a lawless internet, but I think sites should not be blocked. And I don't like what Australia is doing there. And it's kind of disturbing to see. It's not likely to affect those outside of Australia, other than those who might want certain Australian players still on there. I don't know on Ignition if overall the Australian players are winning or losing. It's kind of hard to say. Like, if they were to block U.S. players, that would make the site worse. Overall, the U.S. has more fish than sharks. There's a lot of sharks in the U.S., of course, but there's more fish. If they were to block, like, the Scandinavian countries, that would be good, because... I mean, I'm not saying they should, but I'm saying it would be good for the average poker pro who's not in those countries, because those players, on average, are, are pretty good. Those that play poker from those countries tend to be decent players. Not always, but that's more of the rule than the exception. Uh, But I don't know about Australia. I don't know if Australia has more fish or more sharks or maybe a mixture. We'll see if there's any further developments and if there's other sites that eventually get blocked. Well, if there's a place that you want to play, there's something else that's disappearing Harris Reno, a long-standing property, is going to cease being a casino. So Caesars has sold Harris Reno for $50 million to what's called CAI Investments, Reno City Center LLC. And the plan for Harris Reno is to convert it into what's called a non-gaming property, which is strange because it's located right there in the whole group of casinos that are gaming properties. So I don't know what they think they're doing. Like, What what would be the advantage of converting it to a non-gaming property? Gaming should be additional revenue. If you've got the property sitting right there and has a license, why you would want to convert it into a non-gaming property, I don't know. But that is what's happening. Harris Reno 
was fairly close to the famous sign where it says Reno, the biggest little city in the world, the sign you pass under when you drive down the main drag. It is next to a number of other prominent casinos in Reno. It's got a very central location. It's a fixture of downtown Reno. It is over 80 years old. It was originally a bingo parlor. And William Hara, who was the founder of Harrah's, actually made it one of his first casinos. And then eventually he created a company called Harrah's Entertainment, which now is owned by Caesars. Now, yeah, I've been talking about how Caesars has been, and MGM's been doing this too, they've been selling their properties to subsidiaries of themselves, kind of like an accounting trick. So Caesars has a spin-off company called Vici Properties, which then buys the physical land and buildings of the properties. And then Caesars Entertainment is only leasing back the properties from Vici and running all the gaming functions there. And that's the way Harris Reno was. So this sale was actually from uh, mostly from Vici Properties to this CAI Investments. Vici Properties is going to get 75% of the sale, and Caesars is going to take uh, the other 25%, which is $12.5 million. Once the sale is finalized, it hasn't been finalized yet, so you can still run down to Harris Reno and play there if you really want, though I don't know why you would want to, but uh, you can. It's still open. It's still a Caesars property. But once the sale is final, then that's it. They're going to take out all the gaming equipment, all the slot machines, all the video poker machines, all the blackjack tables, everything. And it will be converted to a uh, regular hotel, I guess. Uh, Now, for the first half of 2020, even if... uh, Even if uh, this is... uh, this, This is a little confusing. Let me explain this. It's looking like, from what I'm understanding from the article, that for the first half of 2020, even once the sale is final, even though they're going to shut down the gaming, it's still technically going to be considered a Caesars property, and they're actually going to be leasing the property from CAI Investments. And then eventually they're, they're going to drop it completely. I'm not sure. I, I'm a little confused by this article. I'm not sure if they're going to remove the gaming equipment before or after that happens. But I know when uh, the deal is completely approved by regulators, at that point, it's going to become a non-gaming property, for sure. I'm not sure of this interim in between, when it's still a Caesars property, but they're not the owners anymore and they're just leasing it from CAI. But from what I can tell, you're actually going to still be able to play – you're still going to be able to play games there, I think, until the deal is actually approved by regulators. But they'll be leasing it. First, the sale will be final, and then, then it has to be approved by regulators. And I think once the approval happens, that's actually when the gaming there will stop. Now, why are they doing this? Why are they selling this? There's a very good reason. 
remember, Caesars was bought by El Dorado. And they're going to be merging their portfolio of properties. El Dorado already had its own casinos. And that is the key here. Because since they're going to be merging their portfolio of properties, they have noticed they're going to be overexposed in certain markets. And that has made them want to sell certain properties that they really don't want anymore because they already have too much representation in those markets. So in this case, El Dorado, which is actually Reno-based, has properties in Reno. In fact, they have three. So they actually have a property there called El Dorado. Then they also have the Silver Legacy, which is a, a fairly large property. And then they have Circus Circus Reno, which is weird because it has the Circus Circus brand, like the one in Las, in Las Vegas, but it's not the same ownership. So this is owned by El Dorado, Circus Circus Reno. Circus Circus Vegas is owned, well, it was owned by MGM. It was just sold. So two completely different Circus Circuses, but they have the exact same branding, which you'd never guess. But those three are existing El Dorado properties, which once this sale between El Dorado and Caesars is final, will be considered Caesars properties, and it'll be rolled into total rewards. So this may, and these are all in Reno, these three I just told you about. And they're all right by where Harris Reno is located. So once the sale is final, which is going to happen very soon, Harris Reno would become the fourth property that Caesars has there. And they figured this is just too much. So they chose the one that they want to keep the least, and that is Harris Reno, and that's why it has been sold. This is happening in other markets as well. In some cases, they're going to be selling the existing El Dorado properties. In some cases, they're going to sell the existing Caesars properties. And I'll tell you more about that shortly. This is kind of a double topic related to the same thing. Now, you may wonder, why don't they want to have a dominant presence in these markets? Why not have four casinos in Reno instead of three? Why not? Why, why not the more the merrier? Wouldn't it be better if they had all the casinos and there's no competition? They have a monopoly. They wouldn't have had all casinos, but why would they want to reduce the number they have in a market? Well, because there's a law of diminishing returns at play. When Harris Reno was the only Caesars property in Reno, which it is right now, and it will be until this El Dorado and Caesars merger occurs, but that's happening soon. But when that was the only Caesars property in Reno, there was a reason to go there only because it's a Caesars property. That's a big draw. Your total reward status is good there. So if you're a diamond in Vegas, you're a diamond there in, uh, at Harris Reno. And the hosts will give you more respect. If you, if you play a lot at a different Caesars property, then they have access to those records and they can copy a suite right off the bat without having to play there. Uh, there's a lot that is appealing to people to continue to play at the same group of properties where they already have a status. Uh, another thing is that points you earn there go towards your overall Caesars reward status that you can use in Vegas or anywhere else. So there, there's real value to that. And let's say there's more than one property, though. Well, then, what's the draw to Harris Reno? If you already have the Silver Legacy, which is better, by the way, or and the El Dorado and the Circus Circus... Uh, 
That makes Harris Reno the fourth total rewards option. Well, you don't have to go there. You can go to one of these other three. Screw Harris Reno. You don't need it anymore. It's it's the main purpose of going there is now moot. Why wouldn't you go to the Silver Legacy, which is the better property? And you can still have the same total rewards, seizure reward status. So that's the problem, is that with every additional property they have there, they will lose value out of being a Caesars Rewards property. It starts to become redundant. And yet the cost to operate them remains the same. So all of a sudden, the draw to Harris Reno, which existed before, will no longer really exist. So they want to sell it, and they want to sell other properties in such markets. You may say, well, then what about Vegas? Why are there nine Caesars properties in Vegas? Well, because it's Vegas. Vegas has so many casinos that they felt they could own that many and still not be redundant, especially if the casinos are different from one another and if they're going to attract a different crowd. But but to be honest, they're talking about possibly dropping uh, one or two Vegas properties as well. The Rio, they really want to drop, but they can't do so. In, in, in fact, they did drop it, but they, they're not going to completely be out of it until the, uh, the convention center is done and until they, they're convinced that, they're, that they can move everything there as far as the World Series goes. So we've talked about that before, too. Do you think it's possible they're looking at moving some events somewhere else just to try to test it or get ready for next year? That's why it's taking so long to post? No, no, it's, it's going to be at the Rio just as always. And it'll be, it, either in 2021 or 22, it's going to move to the convention center. That's, uh, that's, that's pretty certain. The only way it's not going to move to the convention center is if the convention center is selling out space at such high rates that it's not worth taking up the space for seven weeks for the World Series then they may see if the new owners of the Rio are willing to keep leasing them the property. Otherwise, it's going to move there. I think it's going to move there in 2022, that's my guess. But 2021 is a good possibility as well. But anyway, back to this with the the El Dorado uh, and and the Harris-Reno sale. Harris-Reno, as you might guess, is kind of uh, run down by now. I don't know when it was last renovated, but it's not a particularly nice property and it's over 80 years old, and it doesn't even really have the charm of an old property. Sometimes these really old properties can have a charm, but this, this one really doesn't. And the reviews aren't very good. On Yelp, for example, it's two and a half stars. <laughs> that should tell you something right there. Almost a thousand reviews, two and a half stars. That's pretty bad. Uh, Reno itself is not that great. Reno really is kind of a poor man's Vegas. I had a bad experience in Reno at Harris Reno. It's kind of a frustrating experience. Not, not a terrible experience, but just it's really irritating. So let me tell you what happened there. This was Now, granted, this was quite some time ago. This is probably maybe 15 years ago or so. But still, it happened. I went to Harris Reno, and I was checking in, and they handed me a paper to sign, a paper I hadn't seen before. It wasn't the standard like check-in paper. It was some paper with a bunch of printing on it. I'm agreeing to something. So, of course, I want to read it. Well, it turns out that they want me to sign a paper that is indicating that I agree to pay whatever the censors on the minibars say that I owe. (laughs) 
For those of you unfamiliar, in the 90s and 2000s, they seem to have fallen out of favor mostly since then, but there were, what was very popular in hotels at the time was the state-of-the-art minibar, which had sensors on it. So if you moved any item off of the sensor, then it would charge you immediately for the item. But what if you move the item and then put it back? Well, too bad you were being charged. What if you bump the minibar? Well, probably something shakes and moves off the sensor for a second, and you probably get charged for multiple options. Or multiple, uh, not options, multiple items. What if there's vibration in the building and it just shakes the minibar a little bit? Well, you might get charged. As you can imagine, there were a lot of mistakes where people were getting charged at these sensor minibars when they hadn't touched it at all. This has happened to me. Has it happened to you before, Trader Ruski? Oh, yes. Yes. I think it's happened to everybody who's traveled, especially around those those decades of the 90s and 2000s. Yeah, and you used to take it out. That's one. You put it back. That's another one. Just because you want to use the fridge for something else. Right. In some right. So, right. Some people wouldn't even realize this and just take all the stuff out to use the fridge for something else. They'd get like a charge of $400. Uh, now, the problem with this, aside from it being a pain in the ass, is it was also what I call a negative checkoff scam. So if you go over your bill closely and notice this when you're checking out that you got charged for many bar items you did not use, you could bring it to the attention of the front desk and they would take it off. I'm talking about everywhere, not Harris Reno. I'm saying in general in hotels, if you said, hey, I didn't use this stuff, they would believe you and just take it off, knowing that these things make a lot of mistakes. Uh, if you got an outrageously high bill because you took everything out and not realizing the way it works and then put it all back in and get a $400 bill for the minibar, then you'll, you'll see $400 extra on your bill. There's no way you'd miss that. And, and they'll fix that too. But many people don't notice. Some people don't notice if there's $6 extra on their bill. Some people notice and do not wish to expend the effort to fight it. Some people might not remember. Maybe if you took two sodas, if you got charged for four, you don't remember if you took two or four. Some people might be on a business expense account and they don't care if this happens. They don't even want to expend the energy to say, I didn't use these things because their business is paying anyway. So this is what I call a negative checkoff scam because it's something where it rips you off first and they only make it right for you if you notice and say something, but they count on a certain percentage of people not to notice or not to care and pay for something anyway they didn't really get. And even if they're very, very cooperative in taking off the charge the second you say something, because there's this percentage of people who won't say things, they get away by making a lot of money that they did not deserve to make. And that's what I call a negative checkoff scam. It exists in many forms. And anyone who says that's good because they always make it right for you doesn't understand how the scam works. Now, that's not my complaint here. These were very common in the 90s and 2000s. So the fact that there was a mini bar like this at Harris Reno was no big deal. This was in many places at that time. I think they've fallen out of favor in the 2010s and now the 2020s because, number one, it was a pain in the ass for hotel staff to deal with. And number two, uh, in general, people have been getting away from the whole minibar thing. Just people haven't been using them enough to where it's worth stocking them and keeping track of it and dealing with the hassle of people bitching that they didn't you know, take those things out. Uh, in general, they've been just converting these to refrigerators and being done with it. It's just kind of not worth the hassle for hotels anymore, especially with the rise of delivery-type options for food like like uh, Uber Eats and Grubhub. 
So people who really want food in their room can get it delivered often anyway. Or they just order room service. The whole mini bar concept has kind of died. It's not completely dead, but it's it's dying, and the, the sensor mini bars have really started to fall out of favor. They've just been eliminated in a lot of places, which is good. Anyway, getting back to Harris Reno. For the first time in my life, I had a paper that I was told to sign indicating that no matter what the machine says I owe, I'm going to pay it. And there's no freaking way I'm signing that. Imagine this is a machine that's known to make mistakes, that I've seen make mistake time and time again where I've never used a minibar and I've been charged for it many times because something gets bumped or I didn't even notice anything get bumped and somehow it, it charges me. I'm signing a paper saying, whatever it says I owe, I shall pay. No way I was signing that. So I told them. I was polite about it, but I said, no, I, I sorry, I can't sign this. These things make mistakes all the time. This is something I can't agree to. And the girl at the front desk said, I'm sorry, you're not going to be able to check in unless you sign that. We require all guests to sign this. What? I say, that's crazy. How how could I have to sign this? I'm not going to sign that I'm going to pay something that could be erroneous. So I say, you want to give me one that says I will sign for anything I consume in the mini bar? Fine. I'm not going to sign that I will pay for whatever the censors say. Oh, I'm sorry, but we've had a problem with people who use things in the mini bar and claim that they haven't used it. So... Um, these sensor machines are very good. They don't make mistakes. So um, I don't know about your experiences before, but ours are very good. It's not going to make a mistake. We need you to sign that or we can't check you in. Can you imagine how frustrating? So they're holding up my check in there. My girlfriend at the time, who is not uh, my current girlfriend, but the, the one before that, she was with me. She was getting frustrated here. She wanted to check in. She sees me arguing about something. She's not quite getting what the whole argument's about. She's getting frustrated. I, I just keep telling him I, I can't sign this. I can't. I can't believe anybody signs this, but I'm not signing it. I said I want the manager. They bring over the manager. The manager says, same thing, sir. These are very accurate machines. They don't make mistakes. And we need you to promise you're going to pay because we're having a lot of problems with people who don't want to pay for things they use. I said again, I will pay for anything I use, but I'm not going to use anything. These things make mistakes all the time. I see it. I don't believe you have a perfect system. I will never, and I, well, this is what I told them at the time. I said, I will never sign that I'm going to pay anything a machine tells me to pay. And that's advice I give you too. You should never agree to pay anything without question when a machine tells you you owe it. There always has to be a human factor that does a sanity check on any bill. So... When you get a bill, there has to always be a way you can bring it to a human being and say, the machine made a mistake, here's why, check it out. If you can't do that, you should never sign, I'm going to pay whatever the machine says I owe. Never. So I would not sign that. I said, I can't promise to pay what the machine says I owe. I said, what if the machine says I owe a million dollars? Do I owe a million dollars? That's an absurd thing to ask me to sign. Well, these weren't the brightest people up there, eh? I'm sorry, sir. That's a requirement to check in. That's the only way you can check in here. I'm sorry. You, we can cancel your reservation. You go somewhere else. Well, I had nowhere else to go. So what do I do? So I go, well, I guess I have to solve this one. I'm not signing it, but I'm also not just giving up and going somewhere else when uh, I'm all ready to check in here. This is where my reservation is. So I said, ah, I have an idea. Let's take the mini bar out. Can you just take it away? No, we can't. It's bolted to the floor. Alrighty, that was a good idea, but not going to work. I said, 
So I so you're telling me hang on. So you're telling me that you can't take it out and that I have to have this mini bar here that I don't want to use. I have no desire for it, and I have to pay anything it says I owe, even though I'm not going to touch it. And she says, Well, you know, um, you're not going to touch it? And I said, No. She said, Well, we could lock it then. I said, Wait, so you can lock it and then I don't have to sign this paper? Oh, yeah, if we lock it, then it can't charge you. I go, well, why didn't you suggest this? Why, what, 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 Why didn't you suggest this in the first place? Why do we have this 10 minute standoff here? Why not say, if you don't like this, we can lock it and then you just can't use the mini bar? That would have been fine. But I had to lead them to telling me this. So I said, okay, lock it. So they said they're going to send up a maintenance man to lock it. I did not have to sign the paper. And we checked in. I have not been back there since. I had another incident there. This was kind of just slightly annoying, but... I kept walking by the arcade on the way to the lobby and I saw some old 80s games that I liked. I'm a big fan of 80s video games. So, walked over, dropped my quarter in. Nothing happened. But I really wanted to play that game. I said, okay, let me, let me drop a second quarter in. Dropped a second quarter in, nothing happened. I go, crap, the game was on, everything looked good, it just wasn't taking my quarter. I said, okay, well, let me move on to this other game here. Move on to another game, drop a quarter in, nothing happens. <laughs> yeah, what a piece of crap. They, they, they don't maintain their machines. So I walked out to the front desk, and I said, you know, two things here. First of all, these two games, whatever they were, uh, they don't work. The left coin, uh, the left and right coin slot in this first game didn't work, and the, other, the left coin slot in the second game didn't work. I dropped my quarter and it doesn't work. If you want, you can walk over with me and I'll show you. Oh, okay, thanks, sir. Well, are you going to go turn them off or fix them? No. Well, okay, can I have my 75 cents back? No. I said, so you're telling me that the game just took 75 cents from me and I can't have it back. Yes. <laughs> it was only 75 cents, but... It, the, 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 why? I said, I'm a good customer here. I, I'm paying money to stay here. You can't give me 75 cents back when I can prove to you these machines don't work? I said, if you walk over with me, you drop a quarter in. If it works, I'll drop the whole thing. No, we, we, we believe you, sir, but there's no refunds. Very, very customer hostile there. Very, very customer. I dropped it at that point. It's 75 cents, but it, like, it's so cost, customer hostile in, in Reno. And every property I've ever been to in Reno is customer hostile. They've got the attitude over in Reno, like, we're doing you a favor to have you in our hotel. It's got this kind of trashy customer hostile vibe that they don't have to make you happy. They don't have to be courteous. They don't have to do the right thing. They're doing you a favor to allow you to walk into their doors. That's the attitude I've gotten in Reno every time I've been there. In every casino, not just Harris Reno. They're also super paranoid. I mentioned this on a, re- a recent show. They're super paranoid about advantage players. They even get this, the whiff of you being an advantage player out the door. There's just mass bannings of perceived advantage players in Reno. Which I know it's their legal right to do, but way worse than Vegas. I mean, they just it's It's like Vegas on steroids with the 
banning of advantage players. Super paranoia about advantage players all over Reno. Reno's known to be one of the worst markets to try to be an advantage player as far as heat. So that just kind of adds to the whole customer hostile vibe. So as you might guess, I'm not exactly crying that Harris Reno is not going to exist anymore as Harris Reno or as a casino. You also might have guessed that I'm not dying to return to Reno for any reason. Uh, I used to chat in a chat room last decade, which was a Nevada chat room. I've talked about it before. I met some girls off there from Vegas. and uh, There were some I talked to from Reno, and uh, it was too bad. Some of them I kind of liked. I just didn't want to put the effort into And they liked me too. I didn't want to put the effort into driving like 500 miles to Reno from Vegas, which is about what it is, to meet them. Because I didn't think I'd want anything long-term with these girls, and it just wasn't worth it for uh, you know, for sex to go 500 miles. But... Uh, Something I noticed about just like kind of like my interactions with the girls from Reno there was that it it seemed to me that people live in Reno because they they can't make it in Vegas. It's kind of where you go if it's not working out for you in Vegas, but you want to stay in Nevada, and you don't want to be in one of those small towns. Like the small towns are different. The small towns like Gardnerville and and uh, and Minden and ones like that, those have their own small town charm to them, and they have very low crime. And there's, there's advantages to living in those towns if you don't mind being in the middle of nowhere and you don't mind uh, being cold in the winter and and, and uh, you don't mind living in a rural area without much to do. There are some advantages of being there if you're into that. But Reno is not like that. Reno is not a small town. It's not huge, but it's not a small town. It's a, it's a medium-sized city. And yet it's kind of like a poor man's Vegas. It really is kind of a poor man's Vegas that's cold in the winter. It is close to Lake Tahoe. If you like Lake Tahoe, you can drive there in about an hour. Uh, if you want to gamble, Lake Tahoe's better. Like, the video poker is way better at Caesars Properties than Lake Tahoe than Reno. Even the video poker wasn't that good in Reno. In Harris, Reno. I don't know about the non-Caesars Properties, but the uh, Harris, Reno, the video poker was crap. In Harris, Tahoe, it's very good. Uh, I'm not a big Reno fan, as you might guess. I wasn't planning to ever be at Harris Reno again, and now I definitely won't be. 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355 is the number to text and to call. Let's see what texts we have received tonight. This is the first time I've checked during the show. From the 909... Hello, I was just scammed by Ryan Wojtek for $300 about 25 minutes ago. He sent me some message laughing after I paid and then blocked me. Some friend said he might be able to help. Well, sort of. What you need to do is you need to go to Las Vegas soon and make a police report. I have his address. I have his phone number. It's posted on Poker Fraud Alert. I, I don't. I can't do that much. I'm not the police, and he hasn't cheated me, so I can't go to the police. But yeah, he does this too. He actually laughs at people after scamming them. He mocks them. He doesn't just scam. He enjoys the scam. From the nine one six area, I got a text about a promotion at. Uh, not sure where this is. 
It's a three times tier credit multiplier. Is it a Tahoe? I have a feeling it's a Tahoe. Anyway, 916 is Sacramento area, so the guy probably goes to Harris Tahoe. Uh, actually, I should give you a tip on this. I haven't mentioned this before, but every Thursday and also on other select days at Harris Tahoe, there is a three times reward credit multiplier, not tier credit, but reward credit multiplier on video poker and five times on slots. So you should swipe. You should always go over there and swipe before you play. And you should go to the Caesars Rewards desk at Harris Tahoe and ask, is there a promotion today? I made that mistake. I did not swipe, and I lost out on $100 worth of reward credits, which was annoying. I tried to ask them to, to retroactively add it, and they gave me a big middle finger, so I gave up. But uh, that's something you should do. And this guy was sending me what looks like another promo, which... May or may not be for everybody. Maybe just be directed at him. 702, actually, he, he actually messaged that there's, there is a strategy to playing the lotto. He said, don't play numbers 1 through 31 because people always play their birthday numbers. So if you play numbers only 32 and above, there's likely to be a lot fewer people who have your numbers and won't have to split the prize with you if you win. Uh-huh. See, there is some strategy. See, they should say that on the North Carolina Play Smart site. Yeah, who knew? There was, there is some lotto strategy. Wow. Never thought of that, but that's a great point. And then from the 916 uh, South Park cartoon, Don't Be Gay, Sparky the Dog, <laughs> in reference to the uh, Prolodge segment. How long before Prolodge just comes out and says he's bi? I, I think what we're seeing now is the precursor to that which would be much better than what he's doing. If he were to just say he's bi, I, I'd probably mention it on this show, but I wouldn't make fun of him. I'd say, okay, well, Prolog's bi, whatever. But what he's doing now, very dumb. All right. Second topic about sales of properties by El Dorado and or Caesars. This involves an El Dorado sale, one currently going on in Louisiana, and one that is going to happen soon in Lake Tahoe. El Dorado Gaming has decided that they are going to sell the El Dorado Casino in Shreveport, Louisiana. They have number a number of El Dorado Casinos, in case you're getting confused. But they have one in Shreveport, Louisiana. They are selling it to Maverick Gaming, which is actually based in Nevada. They're selling it for $230 million in cash. And the close date is probably going to happen sometime before March 31st of 2020. They are doing this again because they are trying to shrink the uh, presence they have in certain markets. Though I I don't know Louisiana well enough. I, I've heard of Shreveport, but... I'm forgetting exactly where Shreveport is in the state. I will admit that. I'm going to bring it up right now on the map. Shreveport is, looks like, it, okay, so I see it's in northwest Louisiana. So it's nowhere near New Orleans. In fact, it's it's not near Dallas, but it's not that far from Dallas. If you go directly west on the 20, you reach Dallas. So I'm imagining that they cater to the Dallas market, since Dallas doesn't have casinos, unless you want to go to the Shell gas station. And uh, 
yeah, it's actually farther from New Orleans than it is from Dallas. Not particularly close to Baton Rouge either. So they they are dropping a a Shreveport property. I don't believe Caesars has one nearby. Maybe they do. I know they have some uh, Louisiana properties that I haven't exactly looked where they are on the map that are not in New Orleans. Uh, I'm not going to bother looking right now. But they've determined they're going to let go of the Shreveport property, the El Dorado in Shreveport. And they are gearing up to sell Mont Blue in Lake Tahoe. Mont Blue is right next to Harris and Harvey's Lake Tahoe, which are currently owned by Caesars. And they don't want three properties in Tahoe for the reasons I mentioned earlier. So the property they are getting rid of is Mont Blue. And that's going to be sold to someone else. The buyer is not known yet, but it's pretty much openly acknowledged by this point that the Mont Blue Resort in Lake Tahoe is going to be sold. And it's going to happen pretty soon. The funny thing is that Mont Blue was a Caesars property, but in a different way than you think. I went to Lake Tahoe for the first time in 1984. I was with my parents, obviously. I was only 12 years old in 1984, but I used to ski there. And I remember when I would wait for the bus back to Harrah's, where we would stay, that I was jealous of those who were staying at Caesars for one reason, and that was because Caesars had tons of shuttles going from the bottom of the mountain at Lake Tahoe, at Heavenly Lake Tahoe, to Caesars, and Harrah's bus came much less frequently. So I'd be standing all tired from skiing all day, cold, waiting, 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 waiting at 4 o'clock, and, and the damn bus wasn't coming. And in the meantime, like four Caesars buses would come. And I'd go, oh, why can't I be at Caesars? Well, why don't you know of Caesars Lake Tahoe anymore? Because Caesars Lake Tahoe is Mont Blue. In 2006, Caesars Entertainment sold Caesars Tahoe and it became Mont Blue and was no longer a Caesars property. This was after Caesars and Harris had merged, by the way. Not too long after. Actually, it sold in 2005. So it was, it was right around the time that uh, the merger happened. This one was not made for the reason that they're trying to sell Mont Blue. This was actually sold uh, in order to avoid antitrust issues and having their merger rejected. So Caesars and Harris, which were just merging then in 2005, they were worried if they had too many properties, there could be uh, antitrust issues and the merger would have been rejected. So they said, eh, let's get rid of Caesars Tahoe. So we'll only have two properties in Tahoe. So we won't look as dominant there. So that's how Mont Blue was created. It's the same building as Caesars Tahoe. So ironically, it may briefly be a Caesars property again if it's not sold before they merge, uh, officially merge. But it is going to be sold. So it's not a new property. Some people erroneously believe Mont Blue, which they hadn't seen before 2006. They assumed it was you know, built in 06. No. Mont Blue has been there since the building opened in 1978 as Park Tahoe, only to be acquired by Caesars in 1979. It was also expanded at that point. So the Mont Blue, which is right next to Harris and Harvey's is going to be sold. That's another one that's going to bite the dust, though that is not currently a Caesars property, so it's probably not as significant to you if you are a Caesars player. So those are happening 
all for the same reason. Not even about antitrust issues, just they don't want to be overexposed in these markets. Moving on to our next subject. I think after this one I'm going to take a little break. been talking for about four hours straight. Got some time left here. We've got a lot of topics. Uh, what do we have left here? Do we really have seven topics? No, we don't have seven topics. We do not have seven topics. We have eight topics left. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord. I made the agenda too big tonight. Well, for those of you that like the long shows, you're in luck. So, okay, I want to talk about this weird thing that happened to a man who has Elvis license plates and the battles he's been going through with the bureaucratic DMVs in various states. In 1978, a man who wasn't elderly at the time, but now is, as we've had 42 years passed since 1978, he was a big fan of Elvis, who had just passed away a year before, and he found that nobody had plates that just read Elvis in Nevada. I do wonder, since Elvis was very big, of course, at that time, if Elvis had owned those plates and it became available because Elvis had died a year prior. That's probably how he got them. But nevertheless, he actually found in 1978 that the Elvis plates were available. So he uh, applied for that and got it. And since 1978, he's been driving around Las Vegas with plates that read Elvis. And uh, he's owned different cars over the years, but uh, they've always had the Elvis plates. This guy's name is James Messenger, M-E-S-I-N-G-E-R, James Messenger or Messinger. And he's been driving Lincoln Town cars for many years. I think they've all been Lincoln Town cars that he's had these these Elvis plates, but it's been different cars since it's been a period of 42 years. He's been very proud of his Elvis plates, but all of a sudden he started to have a problem he didn't have before he started to receive moving violation tickets in the mail from states that he was not going to. James Messinger was not someone who traveled a lot, especially at this advanced age. He just lived in Las Vegas. And he's like, what are these tickets for? I haven't been to these states. I haven't been there in decades. Why am I getting tickets for moving violations where I didn't do it. And sure enough, they would send him a picture of the violation he supposedly committed, and the picture was of a car he didn't own, and when the driver was visible, it was not him. Now, for you to be legally ticketed for a moving violation, it has to be you at the wheel. Even if it's uh, a car you own... If you are not at the wheel, they cannot give you a moving violation in any state because a moving violation is against your license. A parking ticket is against your car. So they can't give a moving violation against a car. If they cannot identify the driver of your car, then they cannot give you a moving violation. In fact, I had this situation myself. In Arizona, a camera ticket came in 
And uh, on my car at the time, there was a dual registration of my father and myself for reasons I won't bother getting into. That's not important, but we both ha- we had both of our names on the registration. But because his name alphabetically is before mine, uh, systems that could only hold one name had him down as the only registrant, such as these ticketing systems. So my dad got a ticket, a photo ticket in the mail of me driving uh, my car, but it was addressed to him. They didn't know who I was because I wasn't in that system because they only could have one name. So it was addressed to him. And it said on the form, if this is not you, please identify who it is that was driving the car and put their license number down. Well, I said, screw that. I'm not doing that. So I called up the DMV in Arizona and I said, what if I know who it is, but I don't want to identify? And I, I didn't say who I was. I just, I have a general question for you. What if I got a photo ticket, but I don't want to identify the driver? It's not me. I can prove it's not me, but I don't want to identify the driver. Were you going to say something, Trader Risky? Nope. Sorry. Okay. So so they they said, well, we're not supposed to tell you this, but you don't have to. I said, really? So I don't have to. So I can just say I decline to identify the driver, and then they will dismiss the ticket. And the DMV employee reluctantly said, yes. So my dad sent them a letter, which I actually wrote, and he just signed. But uh, my dad sent them a letter with a picture of himself. He actually sent them a copy of his passport and uh, with and showed his birth date, which obviously was uh, would have made him far too old to be the person in the picture. And he said, this is not him. You can clearly see it's not him. You can clearly see the person driving is much younger than someone born in the year he's born. That he does know who it is, but he's choosing not to identify them for this reason. Since it was not him at the wheel of this vehicle, they uh, please dismiss the violation. Letter came back in the mail. Dismissed. Great success, great victory. We did not have that uh, violation on my record or his record. So the reason that worked is because they cannot give my dad a ticket if it is not him at the wheel. So let's get back to our friend here, James Menziger. He was not at the wheel, and it wasn't even his car. It was neither. It was neither his car nor him at the wheel. So you'd think it would be a slam dunk just for him to write back, that's not me. Now, why was this happening to him, though? You might already guess it has to do with the Elvis plates. In Las Vegas, because Elvis is such a big uh, fixture of Las Vegas in the past, there are fake vanity plates you can buy that just say Elvis. They're not meant to be used, of course, but they do look like license plates. There are a number of states where a front license plate is not required. Nevada is actually one of them, but that isn't related to this story. But think about it. Someone buys a vanity Elvis plate, which, of course, isn't really registered to them. They just buy it in a souvenir shop. A front plate is not required or used in certain states. So some people who are fans of Elvis think it'll be cool to put an Elvis plate on the front of their vehicle, which, uh, believe it or not, is is legal. Because if the front plate just isn't used, then it's, it doesn't matter what you put in the front of your car. The problem comes in when you drive to other states where front plates are used and required. Now, it is true that you cannot be given a ticket for driving uh, without a front plate if your plates are from a state where front plates aren't required. 
a lot of these camera systems use your front plate to give you these automated tickets. So that's what started happening to this guy is people who lived in those states who then drove to other states, people who lived in states that didn't have to have a front plate, would drive to other states which did have a front plate requirement, which would then write automated tickets for these people, and it would look at their license plate, and it would say Nevada Elvis, and they would think it was him. Very crappy, but that's what was happening to the guy. Now, of course, this is a computer mistake, and human beings who received this explanation, and he figured it out pretty quickly what was happening. You'd think he could just send the same boilerplate letter over and over to these courts and they would dismiss it. No. Some of them were dismissing it. He said the first one I got was from Minnesota and they did dismiss it. Then he started getting tickets from California, Pennsylvania, Kentucky. He said all of a sudden they started flooding in. And what really frustrated him was that uh, he... Two states were being incredibly difficult about dismissing these tickets. One of them was Kentucky. One of them was Indiana. Both of these states were refusing to dismiss the ticket and were threatening his credit, which is BS. They can't screw his credit. They don't have his, enough information to hit his credit. Like they needed his social to do this. But uh, they just used this to scare people into paying. So probably these third-party collection agents they hire from these states, I'm guessing. It doesn't say that in the article, but I'm guessing that's what was happening. So he's getting these obnoxious collection agents that are calling him, that are on behalf of Kentucky and Indiana, saying, nope, you got the ticket, you're guilty, you better pay up, we're going to ruin your credit. So he started panicking. This is an older guy. You know, this is an 82-year-old guy. He's getting really upset. He's getting really worried. He spent his whole life keeping his credit good being responsible, and now he's being extorted for money by Indiana and Kentucky, that he better pay for these tickets that he's not even uh, the one who's actually being caught in, caught violating anything. He's not even going to these states. He's probably never been to these states. And he is being threatened. He better pay for other people's tickets that are using these Elvis plates, which he can't control, or otherwise uh, they're going to ruin his credit. So he's thinking, what do I do? I'm just trapped. Like, nobody would help him. Well, finally, he went to the media. He went to Channel 8 in Las Vegas, which uh, that's the same station that got involved with Ray Davis's story recently. They like getting involved in consumer situations where they try to help, and they'll also help you if you're having issues with the government, if they, if they, if they think the story's interesting enough. They're doing this not to help you, but really to help their ratings. But obviously they took interest in this story. The Elvis plates, a poor old guy victimized by Kentucky and Indiana, and these these awful automated ticket systems, which I hate, and I'll explain shortly why I hate them so much. So they took an interest in this. They did a report about it, and then they also helped get him connected with people who might be able to assist him. So they hooked him up with State Senator Catherine Cortez Mastro, or Masto, And her people contacted Kentucky and Indiana. And finally, uh, because they were getting contacted by government officials in Nevada, they're like, okay, fine, we'll waive it. Well, yeah, it looks terrible at that point. Like, If they're getting contacted by government officials in Nevada, you know, it's going to be a huge embarrassment for them if they say no. Because legally, he's in the right. 
It's not even like legally they could technically press it, but morally he's in the right. Here legally he's in the right too. So they're they're not even acting legally here. So they waived it. And he's so. What about the Elvis plates? Is he going to finally get rid of them? If he, if he switches to something like even like Elvis one, that's probably not available now. But if he switches to anything else, this is not going to happen this way. So they asked if he would switch his plates to something else, and he said, "Nope, I'm going to stick with Elvis." He's that dedicated to Elvis that he doesn't want, he doesn't want to give up on the Elvis plates. Like, I kind of understand that. Like you don't want to feel browbeat away from your your Elvis plates you've owned for forty two years because of this BS. What a crappy story, though. Isn't this awful that these states wouldn't just waive it? When when once you have hear the explanation, that should be it. In fact, he shouldn't even have to explain that. He should just say, "This is not me. This is not my car. Dismiss it. It's a mistake." But, but he even goes further to explain it, and they say, F you, pay it. Really awful. This and other associated mistakes are why I am totally against automated ticketing systems. There needs to be a human element in giving you moving violations, because only a human being has the capability to judge whether you have committed a violation and whether... There were extending cir- extenuating circumstances that might allow you to get off. For example, let's say there is a crazy drunk driver weaving all over the road, and you speed up temporarily to get ahead of him, to squeeze by him on the side, and you you floor it to get past him, so he doesn't slam into you or slam into someone in front of you, and then you get into pile up. So you just you squeeze by him on the side and, and, and floor it. And right then an automated camera catches you going 83 miles per hour in a 70 and tickets you. Well, a cop who witnessed this, first of all, would be pulling over the drunk driver and not you. And second, if he were to witness that, he would. there's no way he'd write you a ticket. He'd understand. A machine can't. A machine will just write you the ticket. Uh, the machines can make mistakes. There's so many human elements that have to exist where a human being should use their own judgment to write you a moving violation. It should never be a matter of just a a cold, hard number of the the speed you're going or of a turn you're making or or with these red light cameras, whether you're going through a red light. Uh, These are all for revenue. They're all for revenue. They, They do not help with safety. In fact... It has been shown that these automated tickets cause more accidents than they prevent. You may say, how is that possible? Well, let's look at red light cameras, first of all. Red light cameras, they cause people to be paranoid that they're going to get a red light ticket, and they slam on the brakes the second they see a yellow. And guess what happens? Guess what happens? Rear-end collisions that wouldn't have happened otherwise. And... What causes most red light running collisions? Is it people who try to squeeze out making the yellow and just barely miss? No, because the other side hasn't turned green yet. People who get into red light running collisions are usually either drunk, distracted, on drugs, or fleeing the police. None of whom would be deterred by a red light camera. And as far as the speeding is concerned, again, people worry so much about those cameras 
that they don't pay enough attention to the road and accidents increase. So whatever is gained from the traffic slowing down is lost much more on the cameras being there and people being nervous about it. It's also been shown that going slower doesn't necessarily prevent accidents, as I've discussed on here before. To a certain extent, of course, but... uh, Some of these tickets were related to the turnpike in various states, toll roads where people just didn't pay and then got a ticket for just going through and not paying. That's a little bit different. That wouldn't cause accidents to use those systems. But there has to be then an element of a sanity check. But there is one problem with the toll roads, and I, I ran into this myself when I was traveling, and that is... Let's say you pull up to a toll station and you just don't have the change to throw in there, like the actual physical coin change. You're stuck. You have to just drive forward and not pay and get a ticket. or So you can't just pull out a bill and pay them at that point. You, you can't back up. You're stuck and you just got to go through and then and then you can get a ticket. So that's, again, where a human needs to use their judgment. Uh, is it someone trying to just avoid tolls and, and, and speed through the toll station and ignore it? Or or is it someone who, who couldn't pay for a, a reason that's understandable, like they don't have change on them, they only have bills? So there always needs to be a human element to decide these things. And if you don't have a human element to decide it, which clearly they didn't or didn't want to in Kentucky or in Indiana, this is what happens. Poor old guy here. Anyway, good for him for finally winning here and for sticking with his Elvis plates, though I'm sure he'll be getting more tickets as time will pass. So this leads us to our intermission here. Eric Benzamokin, a Los Angeles area-based attorney. Eric at eblawfirm.us, a very big friend of the show. A friend of mine personally. I got to know through the show always steps up with this free roll and will step up with legal advice or legal analysis when we need him for that. We should have him on for something soon that uh, we need. I'll have to, I, I just have to keep it in mind when I make these agendas. Like I have to just always think, is this something Eric can help with and see if he wants to come on. But I, I've been playing his ad for his services when I take these breaks have been taking, which let's be honest here, the length of the show these days, it, it it's tough to talk this long and not to have any break, not go to the bathroom, not give my voice a rest. So I am going to take a break and play the Eric Benzamokin ad. We've lost Trader Ruski in case you're wondering. He, he messaged me at 207. Good night, Druff. I'm spent. <laughs> And he went away. So I'll be doing the remainder of the show solo. After the ad plays, you're welcome to call in if you're still up. I know there's not a lot of you who are probably in the mood to call at this time of night or morning, but you're welcome to. If not, I will go through the remaining uh, seven topics, would you believe, of this show. Seven freaking topics, and we will get it done. We're, we're five hours in. Five hours, not five hours. We are four hours in. I don't want to exaggerate. You'll see this if you're in the archives. You'll see the, the timer going tick, tick, tick. In fact, you'll see how long we ended up going. So there's no 
suspense there. In the chat room, said earlier, disposition said prank call ended abruptly like stewing on a date in disguise getting felt up by Brian. <laughs> a family guy reference. as referring to that prank call we made last week. All right. We will be back with more exciting topics on Poker Fraud Alert Radio, now January 18th, 2.13 a.m. Pacific Time. Okay, now most of you guys know that I'm very picky regarding which sponsors I take. If I don't believe in the product or service being offered, I don't take the ad. And that's why I lose money on the site every month, even though I'm a cheap Jew, and it kills me to send out that money every month knowing that it is not coming back in. But I'm really, really excited about this new Poker Fraud Alert sponsor because I feel he's providing a service to the poker community that they really, really need. Eric Bensamokin is an attorney and a longtime poker player who provides arbitration and mediation for poker and gambling-related disputes. Now, simply put, if someone owes you money or if they think you owe them money, he's a fully impartial third party you can trust to listen, understand, and decide who's right. The reason you can trust him is because Eric is a licensed attorney in the state of California and federally, and he's able to arbitrate and mediate for you no matter where you live. So you don't have to be in California. You can be anywhere, and he can arbitrate or mediate for you. What makes Eric perfect for this is the fact that he's an attorney bound by the rules and ethics of the state bar, and he's also a longtime poker player, so he understands the issues of our community. And at the same time, he's an outsider, and he, he's probably not likely to know anybody connected to your dispute. So you're not going to have to worry that he's friends with a guy that you're disputing with, or even friends of a friend. He's really an outsider to the community who plays poker for fun, but knows the community really well. It's perfect, and he's a licensed attorney. You can't do better than that. This means you will get a completely impartial decision from a qualified attorney who understands everything. And I'll be honest, if I had a poker-related money dispute with someone, Eric is the exact type of arbitrator or mediator that I would be looking for. Take down his email address, eric at eblawfirm.us. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. If you feel you're being scammed or if someone owes you money or if someone's accusing you of owing them money, just send Eric an email. It's not going to cost you anything. It's not going to hurt you. Just send him an email, and he'll tell you what he thinks of the whole situation, and then he can go from there. Eric can perform both arbitration, where he decides who's right, and mediation, where he helps both of you figure out your own agreement. Keep the email address around, even if you don't have a dispute at the moment, because you never know when one will come up, and Eric is exactly the man you need for the job. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. That's attorney Eric Benzamokin. Eric at eblawfirm.us. All righty. We shall move on. Wow. I'm just astounded how many topics I've made tonight. Oh, my goodness. Okay. So we're going to get away from the poker and gambling talk for a second. And I want to talk about just what to expect from a major retailer regarding price. When they've posted a price, do they have to honor it? Well, this came up today, or at least it was posted about today. And this story was brought to me by uh, someone on Twitter who listens to the show. And I felt I'd bring it out here on radio because I think it's such a absurd story. <laughs> so it started out with me having sympathy for the guy because I've had 
what sounded like similar experiences to him, and then I realized that, no, I haven't. His name is David Levitt. He has a blue check mark, meaning he's a verified person who's prominent in some way, though I don't know who, I don't know who he is. He does have 212,000 followers, and it, he has a screenshot of Donald Trump blocking him on Twitter. He says he's an award-winning multimedia journalist, byline CBS, AXS, Yahoo, Examiner, etc. So I, I don't know who this guy is, but uh, he has a blue check mark, and so he wrote this. Target manager Tory is not honoring the price of the items per Massachusetts law, and it has a picture of an Oral B electric toothbrush. He has a picture of Tory who looks like a. Young woman with glasses, young white woman with glasses. And then he has a little picture saying the Massachusetts item pricing law was written to ensure that food retailers remain consistent and accurate in how they charge consumers. Okay, so at first I thought this is something reasonable, something I've run into myself. That is, you see a posted price at the store. You try to buy it at that price. It rings up at a higher price. You say, oh, no, no. It's posted at this price, and then they try to refuse to sell it to you for the price you saw. They say, oh, this is an old price. We never replaced the tag. Uh, I don't know why it's ringing up this way. This is the real price. I, I've heard those excuses before. Most of the time, they just go. They either take my word for it or they go back and verify it. And if I'm right, then they sell it to me at that price. And there's some gray areas, like if, if an item is stocked... It, next to something else that's a different price and they kind of blend together and it's confusing, then what do they do? I know there's some gray areas there and I, I try to be fair about it in my expectations. But if it's something like due to their negligence, like if, they, if they've if they changed the prices two days ago but forgot to update the price tag that's there on the shelf and then I bring it up and it's the new price for, as of two days ago it's went up, I don't just pay it. I say, no, you you have to update it up on the shelf to say the correct price, since you still have the price from two days ago, that's what I want to pay. Now, that's what I want to pay. That's what I have to pay. Consumer law is actually on my side there, that they have to honor that posted price. And even if I even if I know they're telling the truth that they raised the price two days ago and just forgot to update the tag, too bad. That's part of it. Part of raising the prices is you have to post the right price. Otherwise, it's a bait and switch. Otherwise, it's breaking all kinds of consumer laws. And uh, those laws are in place to protect consumers from... Uh, from stores taking advantage of that, of uh, purposely not changing it, having people bring an item up and either not knowing they're getting overcharged or just not wanting to bother you know, putting it back. So, yes, you are entitled to get anything at the price that it is posted in the store, even if they meant to post a different price. But there's limits to that. Now, I thought at first that this was just a, a typical situation. I don't know how much this toothbrush is. Let's say the toothbrush is 60 bucks, And let's say it was up there for uh, for $45. And in reality, they wanted to sell it for $55. And they, they, they hadn't changed the tag or something like that. And then the, the manager just being a bitch about it and won't change it. Like, if that was happening, I'd be 100% on this guy's side. But hold on. Let's read further. It already started to get weird... When the very next tweet, he says, I just had to call the police because Target refused to sell me the toothbrush. What? What? Now, hold on a second. I don't care if he's right or wrong in this situation. I'm thinking calling the police. 
because the Target won't sell you a toothbrush? And they would sell it to him, just not at the price he wanted, apparently. That's never a police matter. You call the police when a crime has been committed. This is a civil matter. If you feel they have violated Massachusetts pricing law, then you take them to court. Then you gather all the evidence you can, and you take them to court. You don't call the police because no crime has been committed. They've, they've violated uh, a, a civil code here. <laughs> you can't, I mean, when you call the police that is saying that someone has committed a crime against you and you want someone arrested, who's supposed to be arrested here, the manager? Right there, the guy is already looking insane. But he went on to qualify. I did not call 911. I called the business number for the police and told them it was not an emergency and they could take their time and explain the situation. Well, that makes it better. He didn't call 911. He called the police, but not 911. So that's fine. That's totally fine. <laughs> no, it's not. No, it's not. Uh, so uh, I don't know if the police came down or if they called Target, but he said the police verify that Target displayed the price of the toothbrush for, get ready, what was the price of the toothbrush? One cent. (laughs) The store manager, Tori, refused to sell me the toothbrush for the displayed price. The police said I needed to sue them and that they are making me a verified report to take to court. So this guy sees that they erroneously posted a price for an electric toothbrush, which I'm just guessing is worth 60 bucks, for one cent. How that happened, I don't know. But there was a price tag up there that said one cent. So he walks by and he sees a one cent price tag on an electric toothbrush. Obviously, he says, oh, sweet, and grabs it, probably wondering why the hell are they selling this for a penny. Maybe he thinks it's a promotion, but he's obviously happy to get an electric toothbrush for one cent. I would be, too. If I saw an electric toothbrush up there for one cent, I would grab it, and I would probably try to buy it for one cent also. If that's the price posted, that's the price posted. But hold on. That's obviously an error. Unless this is some sort of promotion, which it would be very unlikely for them to have a promotion where just just the toothbrush is one cent without anything else to do. Even on Black Friday, they wouldn't have this. So if just out of nowhere there's a, a toothbrush that's supposed to be 60 bucks that's for one cent, if that's the posted price, that's an egregious error, which is probably a computer error in some way that printed the wrong tag, and that does not have to be honored. I don't know about Massachusetts law, but all the laws I know about regarding this situation basically say that if a reasonable consumer would not think that's the price, would not think that's a real price, then they don't have to sell it to you for that price. And of course, it's subjective. But this is such an extreme, there's no subjectivity at all. Nobody would walk by and go, oh, yeah, it's understandable they'd be selling a toothbrush for a penny. Totally makes sense. Yeah, an electric toothbrush, yeah, I see those for a penny all the time. I'm sure that's the price. It might be a sale price, but yeah, that's a good price. Uh, that's a reasonable price for the, an electric toothbrush is a penny. Nobody would think that. Everybody would see that and, and figure it's some kind of mistake. If it's not some kind of loss leader promotion, it has to be a mistake. That's what any reasonable person would think. And retailers are not forced to honor such prices. Otherwise, it could destroy them. There's been situations where TVs are advertised for $20 instead of $2,000 because they mess up the decimal point. That doesn't mean everybody can run down and buy that TV for $20. 
that means that uh, as long as they take whatever steps they can at the moment to correct it, whatever is within their power to do, they do not have to sell people something at an impossibly low price that a reasonable person would not be fooled by. However, if they post a reasonable-looking, albeit low price, and it's a mistake, then they have to honor it. And yes, there is a gray area, and that's where a civil lawsuit could come in if a store wouldn't honor a price and claim it's egregiously low when it really isn't. So, for example, as I said, if this toothbrush is worth 60 and they were selling it for uh, 30 even if they didn't mean, mean to put 30 uh, they would have to honor the 30 because it's not outrageous that that toothbrush could be 30 if it's worth 60 If it's 20 yeah, they probably have to honor that too. If it's 10 uh, that starts to be a gray area. If it's a dollar, no. There's no chance that's a dollar. If it's a penny, especially no. Here's a penny. It's an actual, it's literally a penny. And the guy is mad that the manager will not allow him to buy this for a penny. He knows it's a mistake. He knows they didn't mean to do this. This wasn't a matter of not updating the price or not listing the price uh, exactly correctly. This was something, the second he grabbed it, he knew it's probably a mistake. And if he didn't, he should have. So the law is not even on his side here. The law would not require Target to sell him this for a penny. I'm pretty sure of that, even though I don't know Massachusetts law that well. There's also good customer service practices of whether this should be honored or not. But no, for a penny, it's very reasonable. They go, no, 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 obviously this isn't a penny. That's a, a weird mistake. We don't know how that happened. So what would I do? I'd probably attempt to buy it for a penny. If they sold it to me and charged me a penny, I'd say, great, and take it home and be happy I got the toothbrush for a penny. If they catch it and say, no, sorry, this is actually nowhere near a penny, it's actually 60 bucks, I say, okay, well, better go fix that, but I understand, here it is. That, that, I would drop it right there. I wouldn't even argue. I wouldn't go, well, it says a penny up there. I mean, you, you feel like an idiot saying that because no reasonable person would think they're really selling that for a penny. So I would always back down when that happens, always. And that's really the way you should probably approach it too. Some people would go even further and not even try to buy it at a price like that, assuming it's a mistake. I'm not a believer that you have to watch out for big corporations. I'm, I'm not a believer that if you see a toothbrush for a penny, that it's unethical to buy it for a penny unless you're sure they really meant to sell it for a penny. If, if it's up there for a penny, if you bring it up and they charge you a penny, tough luck on them. They have to pay more attention. But if you bring it up there and they go, oh, sorry, we caught the mistake. It's not supposed to be a penny. You drop it at that point. You don't try to say, oh, no, 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 that's the posted price. You only say that's the posted price if the posted price looks at least semi-reasonable. One penny is not semi-reasonable. So not only did he argue with them about this, but he called the police, and he's trying to shame the manager and actually post a picture of her on his social media with 200-something thousand followers. Well, then he goes on to say, Corporations like Target are not above the law. The police officer told me they'd testify that they saw the price and that the manager wouldn't sell me the item at the price listed. (laughs) Okay, now, hang on a second. Did the officer really say that? Why would the officer, who must be laughing at this whole thing, why would the officer ever say they're going to testify on his behalf? Well, look, police deal with weirdos all the time. And smart law enforcement officers are looking to defuse a situation. So this person 
who came down there. I can't believe the police even came down there over this. But they, they may have come down there because they were worried the guy was unhinged and he's going to do something bad. Like sometimes when a weirdo calls up, they're not telling me the truth for a penny. You get down here. You make them sell for a penny. They sometimes come down there just because they don't want this to escalate and become something violent. They know they're dealing with an unreasonable individual. So they probably came down for that reason. So they probably said, yeah, 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 sure. Okay, yeah, sure. We see, we see yes, they, the price tag was a penny. Yes, if you take this to court, since I am an officer of the law, if, if you need to uh, subpoena me, then, yeah, I will testify what I saw. I will accurately state in court that I saw the posted price was a penny. That's not saying the police officer agreed with him or was on his side or that they're encouraging him to go to court. They're basically saying, look, we can't arrest anybody. We're the wrong ones to call. This is a civil matter. If you want to take him to court, that's fine. And then they'll say, well, he probably said back, okay, but will you certify in court that you saw this, that it was a penny? Yeah, sure. I, I saw it. If that's, if that's what you really want, uh, um, if necessary in court, I will state it's a penny. This person's not dying to go down and testify on his behalf. They're just telling him what he wants to hear. And the truth is, if, if forced to go testify, yeah. They would say the truth that they saw it was a penny. I believe it said it was a penny. I don't think he's making this up. But he's kind of implying the police were on his side, which isn't true. Now, I love this tweet. The next tweet is arguably the funniest tweet in the whole thing. I have not been able to afford to go to a dentist in over three years. So, yes, I wanted a good toothbrush and was thrilled to see such an amazing price on a, on an Oral-B, but Target refused to honor it, and now I have to take them to court. <laughs> Afford, he can't afford a dentist for three years. He can't afford a dentist for three years, so that's why he needs a toothbrush for a penny. That's why. This is why he must be sold a toothbrush for one cent, because he cannot afford a cleaning at the dentist for three years. Never mind, the guy's got a freaking blue check mark. He claims to be an award-winning journalist of some sort, and yet... He can't afford a dental cleaning over three years? And he can't afford a toothbrush at the normal price? He's acting like he's homeless here. He's acting like he has no other way to brush his teeth. By, by the way, why do you need an electric toothbrush? Why don't you use a manual toothbrush if you're that poor? Is it your right to have an Oral-B electric toothbrush? By the way, there are cheaper electric toothbrushes out there. You don't have to get an Oral-B. So you, you can't buy a cheap electric toothbrush for 10 bucks. You can't just buy a manual toothbrush for a dollar. You have to go with the Oral-B because you can't afford the dentist for three years. Even though you're the award-winning multimedia journalist who's been blocked by Donald Trump and has bylines at CBS, AXS, Yahoo, and The Examiner. How is this relevant to anything? <laughs> you can't afford the dentist. That's to get sympathy. He's trying, he thinks he's going to be sympathetic towards his cause because he's just a, a poor guy who can't afford the dentist. His, his only hope to have any reasonable oral hygiene is to get that oral B for a penny and Target has destroyed his dreams. Somebody else with a blue check mark responded, are you okay? And he responded, no, I can't believe I actually had to call the police because the manager wouldn't honor the price. I'm shaking still. 
the police officer verified the prize tag and told me I could take them to court and that she'd be a witness. <laughs> Here was my response on Twitter. I said, bro, I'm the Jewish Jew of consumers and never let myself get screwed in pricing situations. But this is ridiculous. By the way, sadly, this guy's a Jew, too. It's embarrassing to fellow Jews such as myself. I want to say most states don't require a merchant to honor a price which a reasonable person wouldn't think is real, such as one cent. The bottom line is, if you want to take advantage of a stupid corporation's grossly erroneous posted price on something, fine. But if they catch the error and don't let you buy the item, then okay. Then pat yourself on the back for trying and politely give up. Do not bitch at them like an asshole. Do not shame the manager. And definitely, definitely, definitely do not call the police. How does this guy know not to call the police over this? How do you not know? I don't know how old this guy is, but he, he doesn't look that young. I mean, he's younger than me, but he doesn't look that young. How does he not know you don't call the police because a store will not sell you a certain item? What an entitled moron this guy is. Oh, I know this might shock you, but the guy is also a Magic the Gathering player. I, I know you're shocked because Magic the Gathering players are known for their social appropriateness. They're known to be very well-adjusted individuals. I know you're shocked that this guy plays magic, but he plays magic a lot. <laughs> Here's the sad thing about this is that, unfortunately, I get people that group me in with guys like this. I don't ever support things like this. I don't ever take this type of position. I never take the stickler for rules, which he doesn't even understand the rules. He thinks he's being a stickler for the law, but he doesn't understand the law. But I never take that position. I take the common sense position. So again, if something has an erroneous but reasonable looking posted price, I demand they honor it. And I have had to have a few arguments, not ever escalating very far. And I've never had to even think about calling the police, nor would I ever, over something like this. But I have had minor arguments at stores or other retailers before where there's a posted price and they don't want to honor it. And I have to explain to them why they have to, and eventually I get a manager who backs down. But it's never anything like this. It's always where there's like a reasonable, albeit lower than they want to charge me price that was posted there, a price they probably really sold it for in the recent past, and they just uh, haven't updated something correctly. But, And I'm not looking to get over on them when that happens either. I just kind of like I, I'm really thinking when I buy it at that price, and then it, they go, no, 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 it's scanning for more, and that's the real price. And I go, no, it's not. What you posted is the real price, or what what you advertise in this flyer is the real price, and 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 uh, like that, I will stand up for. But not if you're trying to get over on them for a penny purchase, fine. But once it fails, give up. Once it fails, say all right, I, I gave it a shot. There was some controversy a few years ago that United Airlines accidentally sold some impossibly cheap tickets on their website due to an error for like $3 for like an international flight. And of course, tons of people bought them and then United, after ticketing people, emailed them that their tickets are now invalid. And people started saying, oh, a class action lawsuit. Oh, how awful. They can't do this. They can't take away the ticket that we've already had ticketed to us. And I said, they probably can, and they should. I don't blame you for trying, but you can't be mad at them that when you try to take an advantage of an error in pricing on their website, 
some kind of glitch, that they caught it and reversed it. And you should know that might happen when you try. And companies have to be allowed to do this, or otherwise this could bankrupt them. One mistake like this could bankrupt them. Especially over something big, like an airline ticket. Or you know, a big ticket item like a, an expensive TV that's erroneously listed for $20. So it has to be something reasonable. But I hate people who just try to stick with arguments that totally defy common sense when it involves dealing with businesses. And they believe usually erroneously that the law is on their side. I try to always be fair. I always try to put it through the Druff test, which is, is what I am asking for reasonable and should I have known that what they're telling me right now was the case at the time when I uh, believed what I did? So if there's something that was super confusing or something there's no way for me to know and then I suffer from it, then yes, I want them to correct it. If it's something I should have known, it was my own negligence for not uh, seeing when it was obviously uh, posted something I should have known, then I'll blame it on myself and, and I'll eat the loss. If it's their fault for me not knowing, then they have to eat the loss. So just like with a price, if I see a price that looks low but not impossible, and I go attempt to buy it, and they say, no, that's, that's not the price anymore, that's their negligence for not posting the real price up there. That's not my, how am I supposed to know what the real price is? I, I see a price up there that looks like it's something possible, it's just low, and, and then they don't want to honor it. So that's their fault. On the other hand, if I sometimes it'll happen where I see something wrong. I, I think I see a price that says this. I bring it up front. It, it scans differently. I go, wait, wait, I thought the price was this. And we go back there and embarrassingly, it, it was the price that I actually that, that it, it's scanning at. I just saw something wrong. It doesn't happen often, but it's occasionally happened. And I apologize. They sorry, I saw it wrong. Okay. And, and then I just pay the price they're asking for. So I, I be, I'm reasonable. I always try to be reasonable. I just don't let myself get screwed. I try to, a lot of people too easily believe what businesses tell them. A lot of people will get screwed because the business gives them an excuse, which on the surface sounds good until you really think about it. Or, or they don't want to make waves. They're afraid of confrontation. Or they, uh, they just assume they must be wrong. The big business must be right. And I, I don't take that. I, I look and I use common sense and I try to be fair to all sides. But I will never argue and argue and argue for something I'm not entitled to. And I'm especially not going to go on Twitter and bitch about something I'm not entitled to. Pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. And to shame the poor manager here. <laughs> he puts her picture up. And the funny thing is this idiot really thought that the internet's going to be on his side. He thought his 200,000 followers are going to lead a rebellion against Target over this. Instead, he's getting crushed on the internet over this. He's absolutely crushed. Everyone's bashing him. His name, by the way, is David Levitt. On Twitter, he's David underscore L-E-A-V-I-T-T, David Levitt. He's in Massachusetts, and he's probably not enjoying the barrage of responses of which just about none of them are positive, except for some joking ones. Nothing to do with poker or gambling. Just just wanted to separate the David Levitts of the world from me. I want you to understand that's not me. I want you to understand that I see that and I think this guy's an asshole. I don't think, wow, I can identify with this. The X Factor posted an old Photoshop picture of me on the thread I created about this. An old Photoshop of me wearing clown shoes. 
There was a photo of me taken in 2009 in Hawaii, and I didn't notice at the time, but just the angle of the picture made my shoes look especially big, like they were clown shoes. Not quite clown shoes, but I wear size 13, which for my height doesn't look big on my body. But in this picture, just the angle of the picture was my – the shoes looked like they were size 17. So people at the time were making photoshops of it with me wearing clown shoes, which is fine. You know, people That's what people on the internet do. But <laughs> the X Factor brought back that picture and said Jeff buys his shoes at Target. All righty. Let's move on back to our poker and gambling topics. There is a lawsuit in Australia – not about playing on Ignition, totally unrelated to the online poker thing, but there is a lawsuit involving poker staking in Australia, which I read about and I thought was kind of interesting. So here's what was going on. Uh, there is a poker player named James Hopkins. I haven't heard of him before. You can go to his Twitter account, at pocket punter, that's pocket underscore punter, exactly as it sounds, pocket underscore punter, James Hopkins. I have not heard of him, but he is a poker player, apparently. And there is a backing deal which went bad, and he's currently being sued by his backers in a very weird and convoluted situation. I want to discuss this a little bit. So this guy, James Hopkins, he's from Australia. He moved to Canada a few years ago, but his deals are with people from Australia that were backing him. And he is currently being sued for a fairly large sum of money involving this failed backing deal. One million dollars. No, but he's being sued for $400,000, almost half a million dollars. And this case is being looked at by people in poker as perhaps a landmark case regarding backing deals under Australian law. And you may say, oh, who cares about Australian law? Well, you may not, but the story itself is interesting enough, so I'm telling it anyway. So uh, he originally got $40,000 from an Australian poker player named Alden Hildebrandt. I don't know who he is either, but I guess he's a poker player too. Dylan Hildebrandt, who is uh, Alden's brother. Christina Hildebrandt, who is his mom. It's really a family affair. And her lesbian lover, or lesbian partner at least, Sarah Newton. They they collectively staked this guy, James Hopkins. I don't know why they didn't stake, uh, um, not Alden, Aiden Hildebrandt was the poker player that was uh, involved in staking him. So I don't know why they didn't stake Aiden instead of this James Hopkins guy. Maybe Aiden wasn't a very good poker player. But uh, so they, they all got together to stake James Hopkins and gave him $40,000 initially back in uh, January 2018. And this was actually to play some tournaments in Melbourne. He actually has cashed in some uh, Melbourne tournaments uh, like the Aussie Millions, he did manage to cash uh, about twenty-five thousand Australian dollars, which is worth a little bit more than twenty thousand U.S. dollars, in the two thousand eighteen Aussie Millions main event. It seemed like it started off fairly well. That in the first month he cashed for twenty-five k 
But uh, then things went downhill. Now, since January 28, 2018, when this occurred, when the, when he got his first score, he hasn't cashed in very much since. He has three other caches, all in uh, Melbourne. One for three thousand Australian dollars, one for almost five thousand Australian dollars, and one for thirteen thousand Australian dollars. That doesn't sound bad, but uh, not compared to all the money that that he was getting staked. So this whole thing fell apart badly. What happened was he started to get into debt. He probably was losing it cash. He probably was playing other tournaments and bricking over and over and over again. So he kept going back to Aiden Hildebrandt and saying, hey, can you guys stake me more? It turned out actually the whole time it was a loan. It was kind of like a, a backing deal that was more of a loan format. The initial $40,000 that Hopkins was given to play, he was required to pay within three months – $14,000 in interest on that $40,000 initial backing deal. In three months, that's far more than a 100% interest rate. Three months, he owes 14000 interest. So I, I don't even know what usury laws they have in Australia, but that's already pretty bad. So apparently he kept refinancing and refinancing and taking more and more loans to where he kept falling further and further behind because he wasn't winning in poker for the most part. And finally, they claim that between the late fees and interest that he agreed to on the terms of these loans, he owes $400,000. I don't know how much they actually loaned him and how much of this is interest. Sounds like a lot's probably interest if they were charging him these insane rates and he kept refinancing. Interestingly enough, it seems like his defense isn't so much that they were taking advantage of him or charging him usurious loan rates or that this wasn't a backing deal at all, but rather some kind of uh, illegal loan deal. He's claiming he isn't really a pro gambler and that he has several psychological conditions that should have made the deal null and void in the first place. He says he's an addicted gambler, also suffering from ADHD and depression, and that he lacked the capacity to enter such a backing deal and understand what he was doing. He even claimed that uh, Aiden Hildebrandt was with him one night when he shot off 100000 Australian dollars at a casino and that Hildebrandt should have realized from that that he had a gambling problem. If you look at his results beyond the Hendon mob, he actually did fairly well online. That, that uh, Pocket 5 shows he cashed uh, over a million dollars, over 1,410 caches, a very prolific player probably going back a good deal. And that his name on PokerStars, GD Poker, and America's Card Room were either uh, Kaman Gasket, G-A-S-Q-U-E-T, or uh, Scum Gang. He, I guess these 1,410 caches were between 2013 and uh, 2018. He also deleted his Twitter after this whole lawsuit became public. He used to be on Twitter as pocket underscore punter, which he has since deleted. You might be able to find it in Google Cache. I don't know what you'll really find there, though. So to me, the real questions are not whether or not he is a uh, pro poker player. But I, I think that the claim that this was an illegal backing deal in the first place because of the interest involved would probably be his best claim unless Australian law allows this. But that should be 
his best defense, or even he could claim a version of him being an addicted gambler that these people took advantage of him being an addicted gambler to charge him insane interest rates that at the time, out of desperation, he accepted. That would be my defense if I were him. Now, who do I feel bad for in this story? I don't know. No one here is particularly sympathetic. It sounds like this guy is just a degenerate gambler who kept taking whatever loan terms he could find to stay in action. But at the same time, this Hildebrandt family, this Aiden Hildebrandt, his brother Dylan, and his mom and his mom's lesbian lover, it looks like they saw James Hopkins as a cash cow they could take advantage of with insane interest rates, where if he did get a score, that they'd be pretty much taking most of the money he won. And that he was so desperate to keep gambling that that he would agree to anything. This reminds me a little bit of Master Scaler and some of the things he's gotten involved with. Now, he's not a gambler at all. He never gambles. But he used to have a problem where he would borrow money, and then when he couldn't pay it back, he would agree to any terms the person would demand. So let's first of all, he'd offer you some kind of insane interest rate. Like he'd say, well, lend me a hundred bucks. I'll give you 300 bucks on Saturday. Oh, okay, fine. So people, I, I wouldn't even do this because I didn't want to take advantage of him. When I would loan him money, it would be at zero interest. But people who weren't as ethical or didn't give a crap about him, they, they would agree to this. And then when he couldn't come up with the $300 on Saturday, They'd start acting really pissed off and really threatening, and he'd go, "Okay, okay, okay, okay. You know, I'll give you extra interest, and you know how much? Well, I don't know. What, what do you want? To, well, how about you give me six hundred dollars by next Saturday? Oh, fine, fine, fine. Six hundred dollars by next Saturday, and, and so they, they keep taking advantage of this, and eventually, a hundred dollar loan turns into ten thousand dollars. This has happened before to him. So, whose fault is it at that point? Well, it's actually both of their faults. But I have no sympathy for the loan shark doing this, not only what they're doing illegal by California state law, but they're taking advantage of a very desperate person who doesn't fully uh, – he understands what he's doing, but at the same time, you're taking advantage of a very uh, desperate person who has some issues that prevent them from thinking coherently. And I think that's awful to take advantage of people who are broke and have some – psychological issues and rope them into horrible deals like this that are often illegal. So the same thing, if you meet someone who has a terrible gambling problem and you offer to give them loans to gamble on your behalf, even if you think they're positive expectation and you attach horrendous interest rates that you know they're only accepting because they are desperate, you're being an asshole. And even if everybody agrees, you're still being an asshole and I have no sympathy for you. But at the same time, I I can't say that James Hopkins is without responsibility here. And I don't believe he lacked the capacity to do this. I think he was just kind of desperate and just wanted to do this rather than stop gambling. So these are yet more degenerate stories that you just see a guy sitting at your poker table. You have no idea this is his backstory. You kind of think he's just playing there under the same circumstances as you. He just buys in with money he has and is hoping he wins. And if he doesn't, oh, well. But a lot of times it's a lot more desperate than that. Far, far more desperate. Sometimes people are on their very last dollars. Sometimes they have some terrible exploitative staking deal. 
sometimes they're playing with stolen or embezzled money that if they don't win, they're going to have to steal and embezzle more if they want to stay in action. A lot of times you don't know the story. So people are looking at this to see if this establishes anything under Australian law if backing deals can be enforced. But to me, this is more of a more of a loan sharking thing than a backing deal, even if it does involve backing for poker. It more sounds like giving him loans to play poker at insane interest. It doesn't sound like backing to me. To me, backing is where you pay for someone's entries, either to a cash game or a tournament, and if they win, you get a piece of it. If they lose, then they don't owe you the money back. But if they continue to play on the backing deal, then they have to get back to even before you allow them to have a piece of anything they've won, which is known as makeup. That, to me, is a backing deal, not where you're just loaning someone money at very, very high interest rates, regardless of whether they win or lose. Moving to our next topic. Online poker has been legalized in the state of Michigan And that's actually a fairly big development because Michigan is a a decent-sized state. So anytime a decent-sized state gets online poker, then that is a positive for online poker growing. On December 20th, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer signed a bill making online poker online sports betting and online casino games legal. They don't have any rooms yet that are open, so you can't play online poker at the moment, but those are forthcoming. The other states which currently have legal online poker are New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Delaware, Nevada, and West Virginia, though West Virginia also currently has no online poker rooms at the moment because that was also a recent legalization. It's going to take a while because various uh, entities there in Michigan that uh, want to run online card rooms have to prepare bids to get licensed in the state to do so. And they have to get the software together, and they don't have to build the software from scratch. I'm sure there will be uh, licensing and partnerships involved, but you know, we may eventually see PokerStars Michigan. But uh, there will be that process going on behind the scenes, and I, I don't know when we're going to actually see the ability to play online poker in Michigan legally for the first time. It is possible that very soon Bovada and some other sites are going to drop out of the Michigan market and not allow new players or any players from those markets. Often these sites do that in order to prevent accusations that they are trying to take a piece of the legalized online poker pie and Therefore, they are less likely to be attacked by those state governments. Uh, 888Poker and PokerStars are assumed to be the most likely poker software providers that would have to be done through some kind of uh, casino in Michigan, which is already licensed with you know, with brick-and-mortar ability to offer uh, casino games. It's unclear if Michigan plans to merge its player pools with New Jersey, Delaware, and Nevada, which currently are all cooperating. Pennsylvania is a lone wolf standing on its own right now. West Virginia has not decided what to do with that either. I believe the future of online poker in the U.S. is only bright if 
there's eventually a complete or near complete merging of a lot of states in the union to kind of mimic a federal site. Otherwise, if all if so many states are separate from one another, they're all going to be fail sites. There's never going to be significant action like we were used to in the old days, or even semi-resembling it. Even Pennsylvania, which is doing well by current standards of legalized poker in the U.S., is still kind of a fail site. Uh, it's it's still doesn't have a tremendous number of players. On average, they have 400 cash players. At their peak, they have 845 cash players. Like, big deal. That's not that exciting. So if you could only combine them with the New Jersey, Delaware, Nevada legalized rooms, then we would have a site that peaks with over 1,000 players, well over 1,000, and averages probably uh, near 700. That's, that's what needs to be done. There needs to be consolidation, and I don't know if Michigan's going to do that. As I mentioned before, when the sports betting law was changed to where other states besides Nevada were allowed to have legalized sports betting, this opened the door to a lot more states wanting to legalize online gambling, which in turn, they go, okay, and poker too. Poker itself wasn't going to do it. Poker itself wasn't exciting enough. The states could tell that the poker was not lucrative in single states. It just wasn't. So a few states tried it. It's been a money loser, and they're not going to do it unless they can combine the whole effort with other more lucrative forms of gambling, such as casino gambling and sports betting. So the sports betting is really a big one, and that that may really drive the poker to get legalized as well, as was what has happened in Michigan, which probably wouldn't have happened in Michigan if it were not the change in the sports betting law. So this is good news. We will see throughout the 2020s if we finally have some progress with bigger legalized online poker rooms. I don't think we will ever see poker rooms like we saw in the mid-2000s during the poker boom, like Poker Stars and Party and Full Tilt in those days, and even some of the smaller sites, but we may see somewhat of a return to viable online poker in the U.S., and it'll be great with it being regulated and to where we know we're not going to get screwed out of our money. So Michigan, that's a good one to get. Michigan, is it's one of the larger population states. It is not... Uh, by any means, a California or a New York, but it's a decent-sized state, population-wise. What is their population? About 10 million. It is the 10th biggest state population-wise in the U.S. Looking at the top t- 10, we're actually looking at top 11, and you'll see why. Let's go through them if they have online poker and if they're likely to have it soon. California, don't have it, probably won't get it soon. Texas, don't have it, won't get it soon. Florida, don't have it, probably won't get it soon. New York, might have it soon, but they don't have it. Pennsylvania does have it, they're number five. Illinois, doesn't have it, uh, I don't think they're getting it soon. Ohio, doesn't have it, I don't think they're getting it soon. Georgia, doesn't have it, I don't think they're getting it soon. North Carolina, uh, I don't think they're going to have it soon either. Michigan's number 10, they have it. And now New Jersey, number 11, they have it. 
So it's still a long way to go with the bigger population states to pick up online poker. The two biggest states by far are California, which has about 40 million, and Texas, which is getting close to 30 million. Florida has about 21 million, New York almost 20 million, and from there it's, it's much less everybody else. We really want California to get online. That's what we need. California has uh, 11.96% as of 2018 of the U.S. population. California has almost one-eighth of the U.S. population. That would be very big to get on board. California legalization of online poker would actually be bigger than all the states combined right now as far as the population that would be served. Moving to our next topic, here's some bad news as far as legalization of online gambling or any kind of gambling. Maine, which is not a big state, but the governor of Maine has vetoed a sports betting bill that would have otherwise made sports betting legal in that state. Janet Mills, the governor of Maine, vetoed sports betting legalization. She is a Democrat. The other governor who vetoed uh, legalization of gambling was a Michigan governor, Rick Snyder, who has since been succeeded by a Democrat who voted, who, who did not veto it, and that's why it's become law over there. But as you see, this is not partisan. We have a Democrat who vetoed it in Maine, and we had a Republican who vetoed it in Michigan. Um, now, back when Rick Snyder vetoed it, he said that he was worried that uh, it would hurt the state's lottery and it would hurt the funding of the state's education system. Uh, now, Janet Mills said that she was unconvinced that the majority of Maine residents were behind the bill and felt that it was unable to protect problem gamblers and children from the perils of gambling. I think what they need is they need the North Carolina smart play system. (laughs) Then they would not have problem gamblers. Just get that coach over there to stop people from buying lottery tickets. She said, I appreciate the legislature's interest in evolving this issue and respectfully request that, that you sustain this veto while we closely monitor the impact of legalization and the successes and failures in other states as they seek to regulate and benefit from sports betting. Now, they could override her veto with a two-thirds vote in the House and Senate in the state, but it's unlikely it's going to happen. So... This is pretty much dead at the moment. What it seems like she's saying, if you read between the lines, is, I'm not convinced this is going to be a good thing for our state. Let's let's go watch the other states do it for a while, and if, if it's all working out, then I'm for it. If it's a fail, then I'm against it, but since we don't know right now, it's too early, uh, let's watch the other states and uh, let them be the guinea pigs. That's It sounds like she's saying, which is stupid. I, th- there's not a lot of risk here. The thing is, sports betting is happening anyway. There's so many ways you can sports bet online fairly easily at this point that you're not gaining much by making it illegal other than just driving people over to sites that may be shady. And if you think online poker shady, there are way more shady online sports books out there than there are online poker sites that are shady. There are some sports books that do pay you, that don't screw you. Bet Online is one of them. Uh, Bovada, for all the issues I have with them, they pay you. Five dimes for some of my issues I have with them, they pay you. Uh, 
There is uh, Heritage Sports, which pays you. So there are sites out there that take bets from U.S. players that reliably pay people, but there's a lot of them that don't. A lot of them screw you. A lot of them slow pay, like Sportsbook.ag, that's a slow-paying site. So I would very much think that legalizing sports betting is the right move in any state at this point. There's not really much of a downside to it. I don't think sports betting increases that much if you legalize it because it's so easy to do at the moment. So you might as well get the tax revenue, might as well regulate it, might as well protect the consumer. It's something a lot of people want to do. In fact, the the popularity of sports betting has only grown as the years have gone by. More people want to sports bet now than ever before. All right, I want to talk a bit about what I released on Poker Fraud Alert, some information, more of updated information, nothing new, but something that hadn't been updated in so long that it was it was somewhat worthless. And I have since updated what I did before, and I, I spent a lot of time on this this week. I hope you guys appreciate this, who would benefit from this information, especially because I can tell you I get people coming to me every year at the World Series who thank me for this. Strangers come up to me. I have people approaching me and say, Todd? And I say, yeah. And I'm like, okay, is this someone who hates me? Is this someone who likes me? Is this a radio listener? Like, I'm like, yeah, who, who is this and why are they approaching me? Then uh, they say, I just want to thank you for your Diamond in a Day thread on Poker Fraud Alert. It was really helpful. And then they tell me their story about how they earned seven stars, how they earned Diamond, how they didn't know these machines existed. They didn't understand how, how to do it the best way. And they read my site and it was so clear and, and gave them such good information they couldn't get anywhere else. And I go, okay, well, I'm, I'm glad it helped you. I'm glad that you derive utilization from it. And I'm, you know, thank you for telling me that. Thank you for strong appreciation for this. And then I ask if they listen to my radio show, and sometimes yes, and sometimes no. Sometimes they will say, no, I have no idea what you're talking about. I just found your site. I, I don't know you have a radio show. Other times they are radio listeners, and it's sometimes in between. Sometimes it's people who read the forum but not the radio show. Uh, but I have two threads which are pretty well visited on Poker Fraud Alert. And when I say well visited, I mean by people who don't normally read or post on the forum. One, which is the more popular of the two, is called Best Ways to Seven Stars or Diamond in a Day for Caesars Properties Around the U.S. As I record this right now, it has 101,500 views. Most of which are unique, by the way. It's mostly not the same people reading over and over. It's like we probably have really close to 100,000 people who have viewed this thread, which is pretty impressive. This is not the type of thread you keep coming back to over and over again. It moves slowly, and the information doesn't change very often. So uh, a lot of people view this thread. In fact, if you Google Diamond in a Day, you'll see the Poker Fraud Alert is one of the very first results on Google, which is what's brought people here. What this thread is about is if you want to play video poker and earn tier credits in the cheapest way possible, cheapest meaning the way you'd lose the least amount of money on average, you're basically, what are the best machines I can play to earn a lot of tier credits and lose the least money on average? This thread answers that in every market of Caesars properties. It tells you at each casino where the best games are, what your expected loss is, it gives you links to find the optimal strategy to these games. And 
you can also scroll through all the markets to see if there's other markets better than yours. And I even have an analysis after that explaining which are the best markets to play if you could travel there. And it has a lot of other information too. So if you've always been wondering, okay, well, how do I find the best machines? It'll actually have descriptions of where these machines are located in the casino too. They'll say, like, you know, well, two rows away from such and such bar in the casino, look there, and it's a, it's a Game King machine. They'll say things like that. So it'll actually give you instructions on how to find the machines. Now, does this information change? Yes. Does it get outdated? Yes. Do I, up this, do I update this constantly? No. Every once in a while, I go back and update it, but I had not updated it in a while, and I figured with the World Series coming up in four months, and given how I constantly press that you guys should get Diamond if you're going to play a number of events at the World Series of Poker, and given that the best time to earn Diamond is in January or in February, because you'll have the longest time with it, because you have it the entire current calendar year, the entire next calendar year, and one more month, the following calendar year, which means any Diamond or any other status you earn at Caesars Properties in 2020, you will keep it until January 31st, 2022. So right now, today, if you earn Diamond, you have it over two years. So it doesn't matter in 2020 when you earn it. It doesn't matter if it's on January 1st or December 31st, you will have it for that calendar year, the following one, and another month. That's why it's always better to earn it early in the year. So I explain a lot of different things in these threads. The one that has the list of all the different games and the expected losses. And I would really read every little thing I put there because I have a lot of useful information. It, the thread is called Best Ways to Seven Stars or Diamond in a Day for Caesars Properties Around the U.S. And it's in the Casino and Las Vegas section of the Poker Fraudler Forum. I put a lot of time into updating this. Now, some of it I had to go by third-party information because I haven't been to all these casinos personally, especially in recent years. So if you go through this and you see some information I have is in error, then please let me know. Either post in the thread or tell me privately and I will update it. I can only update the thread with information that's available to me. But I think it's mostly accurate. You may find things change. You might think you might find that some of my information is old, but most of it is pretty accurate. I put a lot of work into finding uh, the accurate information, asking people. So I, I think most of this is accurate up here as of this date, January 18th, 2020. And it's a, uh, pretty informative thread, very popular thread. People have made a lot of use of it. If, you, if you're going to earn diamond, you really should read this thread. And please follow everything I say there. Don't say, oh, no, I think I know better than Druff. He doesn't know what he's talking about. No, no, I do. Trust me. So when I say to earn exactly 2,500 or 5,000 tier credits in a day, I mean that. Don't earn less. Don't earn much more. Either 2,500, 5,000, or nothing. If you want to earn 5,005, that's fine, but don't earn 2,400. Don't earn 2,000. Don't earn 4,000. And understand that the expected losses I list are only if you run exactly average and if you hit a royal. So if you fail to hit a royal, or I shouldn't say if you hit a royal, the, these expected losses include hitting a royal and that average is in. And since a royal makes up of 2% of the machine's total return on average, if you fail to hit a royal while trying to earn diamond, you're probably going to lose another $1,000 than what the expected loss is printed there. 
If you fail to hit a royal while trying to make seven stars, you'll probably lose about another $10,000. So keep that in mind, too. Always have the right bankroll to play. If you're trying to earn diamond, I suggest taking at least $4,000 to the casino. You probably won't lose it, but you just in case. And if you're trying to earn seven stars, um, you, you need a bankroll of – you need to be able to lose 20000 Not in one session, but uh, you, you could run bad and lose 20000 so that's uh, you have to know that you're risking that to try to earn this, that uh, the expected loss isn't the loss you're probably going to have. It really depends on your luck, and a lot of it has to do with how many rolls you hit. So make sure to read all the information. If you don't, you might find yourself getting screwed. Make sure you know all of the different strategies of whatever game you're playing. Jacks are better, bonus poker, double bonus poker, double double bonus poker, triple double bonus poker, deuce is wild. Make sure that you know the strategy, that you know the website to go to. I have links to everything. Make sure you know how to get there. And make sure you follow the strategy exactly, or otherwise your losses will be greater. Don't just try to guess at things. I have the resources right there. Make use of them. And... Also, verify the pay tables. Don't just go, oh, pay bills, uh, pay bills, uh, they don't matter, uh, they don't matter. Uh, they don't, don't say that. Play on the pay tables I tell you to play. Don't go, ah, who cares, five for a flush, six for a flush, who cares, it's the same thing. No, it's very different. Way more, it matters way more than you think. I want to mention a few other ways you can get diamond without playing. Though, if you don't want to play, there are some ways to get diamond possibly. Well, one for sure and two are possible depending on a few factors here. If for whatever reason you have the top tier card at Wyndham, they will do a status match to diamond with you. And I have a link to do that near the bottom of the first post there. Click on that link and you'll learn how to do the status match with Wyndham. You could do it online without setting foot in a Wyndham. You do have to have an existing status at Wyndham, but guess what? If you have no existing status with Wyndham and you have a diamond status with Caesars, you can match to Wyndham. So you can get a status there then. Uh, you can also possibly status match with premium cards, like upper level cards at other casinos, especially large casinos, and get diamond that way. They have been doing that at Caesars for years now, but a few warnings. Number one, you can only do it once. Number two, the information they used to have about that on their website has vanished, which means they may have ended it. They also may have just taken it off the website, but it's possible it's just over. So you'll have to go to Caesars Rewards and ask them, do you do status matching? I guess I can try to find out. Maybe I will. But at the moment, you'll have to ask them if they do status matching to your particular card or if they're even doing it at all. And remember, they only do it one year, and that's it. It doesn't last two years like earning it. You, once you get it, you'll get it for one year, and it's going to expire. And then you'll have to find a different way to get diamond. Now, something you can do for multiple years is called the Founder's Card. I want to tell you about the Founder's Card, because some of you may want to do this instead of risking the money with gambling. A Founder's Card membership will get you instant diamond. Now, the Founder's Card is not run by Caesars. It's a third-party company. They just have a partnership with Caesars where they will give you diamond for having a Founder's Card. It is listed at $595 a year for the Founders Card. But good news, you don't have to pay $595. First of all, you can usually get it for $395. I think you could even call them and say, I just want to pay $395. It may even be $395 on the website right now. I don't know. But I, I haven't ever bought it, but I know it works. I know someone that's using it right now. And $395 is a price you can get pretty easily. 
but you can also get it for two ninety five if you have a little time to wait. If you have more than a month to wait, if you have to be diamond right now, don't bother. But if you can wait about a month, go on the Founders Card website. Just Google Founders Card. Go to their website. Sign up for their 30-day trial where it won't charge you anything. You have 30 days to decide. Before the 30 days are up, cancel it. Now, you may say, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll just status match during the trial. No, they won't let you do that. You cannot status match the diamond during the trial. But the point of the trial is you start the trial... You cancel at some point before the 30 days are up. I don't know how long you have to hold it, but just hold it a few weeks and cancel it. And then you will get an email saying, wait, wait, come back. Okay, okay, 295. You want it for 295? Come back. We'll give it to you 295. So that's a trick. Sign up for the trial, wait a few weeks, cancel it before it charges you, and then you'll get an email, an automated email from them offering it for 295, and then you'll have Diamond for a year. No play required. Now, if you get your diamond through some kind of status match, whether it's Wyndham, whether it's through another casino property that's not Caesars, that you have a premium card, or whether it is through the Founders card, keep in mind you're only going to get the benefits of diamond, but you're not going to get any kind of free play or extra comps unless you earn them through play. So don't expect you're going to get comp rooms. Don't expect that you're going to get uh, free play or free food that's not beyond the basic diamond benefits. Don't think you can go to a host and go, I'm a diamond. I want great things. Hey, they're going to laugh at you. They're going to say, well, you haven't played here. You got your diamond through a status match. F you. So just keep that in mind. What you'd be doing there is matching just to get the diamond status and the base uh, things that come with being a diamond. So if you want to look at each market and see all the different games and decide if you want to play in your local market, if you want to travel somewhere, then take a look. This is a good time of year to earn it. What are the three best places to earn it? Well, unfortunately, they've been degrading video poker over the years, so it's not as good as it used to be. But still the best is Harris Cherokee in Cherokee, North Carolina. According to a poster on Poker Fraud Alert, who is from that area, they have recently change it back to $10 per tier credit earned, which is important. So uh, a lot of the Caesars properties only give you a tier credit per $25 wagered, which makes it take two times, 2.5 times as long to earn status, which sucks. But uh, Cherokee did that for a while, and he said they just changed it back. So Cherokee is back to being the best place to earn it. I wouldn't travel across the country until you verify that's still the case. But uh, provided you're going there anyway, or you're not that far from it, or you uh, you can somehow get them to verify this, the best game they have there is called the Not-So-Ugly Deuces, Deuces Wild Game. It'll explain on the thread how to find these machines. And that has a 99.73% return with perfect play. The second best choice is... Harris Lake Tahoe. I was just there. I just played these machines. Nine, six jacks are better. 99.54% return with perfect play. And the number three choice, Harris Southern California, formerly known as Harris Rincon. They have a few machines in the high limit area called 8-5 Bonus Poker Aces and Faces. 99.26% return, which is substantially worse, but it's still uh, the third best option at the Caesars properties to earn tier credits. So those are the best three options right now. All three of them, you are earning one tier credit per $10 wagered, and you can get to Diamond uh, fairly quickly this way. 
So read everything in the thread, and you will learn a lot if you don't know all this stuff already. And if you do know all the stuff, you may want to see all the pay tables that I've collected. Also updated is the Caesar's Rewards, Total Rewards thread. Caesar's Rewards is the new name, Total Rewards. But I updated the thread about that program, including with an FAQ, Frequently Asked Questions, about the program, and a lot of misconceptions about it that you can learn. It's, it's not like the North Carolina Play, Slot, Play Smart Lottery campaign with stupid frequently asked questions and myths. I'm, I'm actually dispelling a lot of myths that people erroneously believe about Diamond and about Seven Stars and about Caesar's Rewards in general. And I explained the whole program. And uh, here's the, the current benefits I want to tell you of the three tiers you earn above the gold tier, which is the starting tier. So I'm not going to talk about gold, but you get that the second you sign up. Platinum comes at 5,000 tier credits. That is not very exciting. You get free parking wherever they charge for parking. There are some priority lines, but not as many as having diamond. A new benefit that has been introduced is for every th- for every 5,000 tier credits you earn, you get one free night at a Las Vegas or Atlantic City property. But there are blackout dates and there's capacity restrictions, meaning if it's a crowded time, they will not give you that free night at that uh, date at that property. But you do earn those nights that you can use in lesser busy times. And you get one of these up to seven of them for every 5,000 tier credits you earn. That's starting from platinum. It's also true for diamond and seven stars. Uh, 10% discount on Norwegian cruises. In reality, it's about 7% because of some shenanigans Norwegian pulls. And if you want to go to the Atlantis Resort in Bahamas, you get a moderately discounted stay. They claim it's free. It's not. It's just kind of a moderate discount. You can also get Platinum for free without any play by signing up for the Caesar Reward credit card. It's a no-fee credit card. Once you get approved, you will instantly have Platinum. No play required. Unfortunately, Platinum is not very good, but it's worth getting the credit card just for the free parking. Diamond. Diamond is where you really want to be at this point. Seven Stars is now overrated. Seven Stars has been degraded enough to where it's not worth earning. Diamond, free parking just like Platinum. Big thing in Diamond, you don't pay resort fees. That's huge. Resort fees are going way up, so... You get out of paying resort fees. It could be more than $40 a day plus tax these days. So definitely a great thing to have. You really need Diamond for the World Series. As I've mentioned so many times, there's a Diamond room to register for events. Line is much, much shorter than it is for the regular line to register, especially during days where it's uh, a lot of people in town to play an event that's going to have a huge field. You can also use your diamond card to cut in the waiting list line legally. They will put you to the front of the line unless there's other diamond or seven stars ahead of you. And even if the list is 20 people deep for a cash game, you'll go to the top of it because you're diamond. Very useful. Don't be shy to ask for that. Just show them your diamond card. They'll put you in the front. That's the policy there. You get a single $100 complimentary meal voucher good at any Caesars-owned restaurant. You get one per year that you're a diamond. I already mentioned the one night stay you'll earn for each 5,000 tiers you earn. 
When you check in, there's a special VIP check-in and check-out area. It can be very useful to avoid those check-in lines. 20% discount at the gift shops. You get uh, priority valet parking, but from my personal experience, that's hit and miss, and I don't really like valet anyway. Special lines at the cashier and at the restaurants. You can often avoid big lines there as well by using the diamond line. Free upgrade to better room types if it's available, but usually not suites. So this is actually a good thing to have. You can book the lowest category room, and provided they're not sold out, you can show up there and say, hey, upgrade me to this category. And they will. As You can't have them upgrade you to a suite usually, but you can say upgrade me to this basic room category that's better than the other one, like a, the newer tower, uh, a higher floor, a room with a view, uh, anything that's considered a standard room. If they have room for you, they will upgrade you to that standard room. So you can often just book the bottom category and upgrade out of it. You get a what they call a 20% discount on Norwegian cruises. In reality, it's about 15% after everything. Furthermore, there are additional benefits if you earn more tier credits. If you earn 25,000, diamond is at 15,000. You get you hit diamond at 15,000. But if you get up to 25,000, then you become what's called diamond plus, and then you get access for free to the diamond lounges, which are kind of crappy in Las Vegas, but very nice in Atlantic City and other East Coast places. They have free snacks and drinks, including alcohol. If you get to 75,000 or more tiers, then you're called Diamond Elite, and you also get a single $600 airfare credit to Las Vegas per year. Obviously not worth that much if you're in Southern California or in Las Vegas. Uh, One flight maximum per year. So that's not a wonderful thing, obviously. It's not worth earning 75,000 just for that. And there's a bigger discounted stay at Atlantis in Bahamas, better than the Platinum version. What about seven stars? Well, they've taken away a lot of the best benefits, like the guaranteed free rooms that's gone. But for seven stars, you get everything I just told you Diamond gets, plus you get a trip per year to a Caesars property with up to $1,200 in airfare covered, and you get a $500 food credit. You get a heavily discounted Norwegian cruise, one per year with a balcony stateroom, except to Alaska, you only get an ocean view, which kind of sucks. You get $500 meal certificates that are good in a Caesar's own restaurant per year. You get a signature event to choose from, which is like some little event they put on where you can choose which one you want, and it's okay, it's not that exciting. You get a companion card that you can give to anyone you want who will get all the seven stars benefits which don't involve anything that's monetary or comp wise. So like all these things I'm saying you're getting for free, like the free meals, the the cruise, you're not gonna get that stuff for the companion, but the companion gets to go in the seven stars lines and uh they get to do the the, the priority valley parking and the, yeah, all these things. Anything that diamonds or seven stars get that's like priority stuff rather than anything free the companion will get to. Now, it does stamp companion card on there, so you're not going to fool anyone. You're not going to go, I'm a seven stars when you're ready the companion. The, everyone will see it says companion right on there in big print. You will get what they call a 30% discount on Norwegian cruises if you want to uh, either, uh, if you want to book a second cruise. This is not good for a second room, unfortunately. 
So you can't get the free cruise plus the or the what they call the free cruise, which is really a heavily discounted cruise. You can't also get a second room at thirty percent off. But if you want to take a second cruise, you get thirty percent off, which is really about twenty five percent after everything. Speaking of twenty five percent, twenty five percent discount at gift shops instead of twenty at Diamond. They can give you special allowances by request. Like if a restaurant's full, you can say, eh, "Actually, I'm a seven star. Can you find a way to get me in?" And they will sometimes. Not guaranteed, but it'll happen. At some properties, they will pick you up at the airport in a limousine. You have to ask for that. Some properties will. Some properties won't. You have access to special seven stars lounges at certain properties that have them, as well as all diamond lounges. This is free. You get one or more in-room movies per day at most properties. Make sure to ask when you check in. And you get a very, very good deal at Atlantis Resort in Bahamas. One visit per year, better than the ones of Diamond or Platinum. Again, not free, but you get uh, a very good deal. So those are the seven stars benefits. Now, if you're seven stars, does this mean you're going to get a baller suite and lavish meals on the house each time? No. Are they going to treat you like a whale? No. You're just going to get these benefits I talked about, and that's pretty much it. Some people think if they're diamond or seven stars that they're automatically going to get comp rooms. No. Totally has to do with your play. Your, your comp rooms have nothing to do with your tier status. As I mentioned, you want to earn these as early in the year as possible so you get as much time as possible with them. And is it true that you can earn it early in a year and then do nothing for two years and maintain your status? Yes. Is it true you can earn the very minimum number of tiers for seven stars and be guaranteed seven stars? No. Seven stars now has a review process that they, they've always had, but they're now more stringently doing it, where they are rejecting people they don't think are seven stars caliber, meaning people who seem to just like play in bulk to earn seven stars and do nothing else. If they get the feeling you're just playing to earn seven stars and nothing else, then they're not going to give you seven stars. So I, I wouldn't advise trying to earn seven stars if you're a player like that. That's why I don't try anymore. What about Diamond? Will they ever reject Diamond? No. In fact, a human being is not involved with reviewing for Diamond. The computer will award you Diamond when you've earned 15,000 15, tiers. That'll happen automatically. No review is ever done. Uh, rewards credits. Don't blow them. Save them. Make sure you get activity on your account once every six months, even through the credit card. But other than that, don't blow them. You'll have hosts saying, well, I can't take care of you till you spend all your RCs, so sorry, you got to spend them all before I comp you. I would suggest avoiding that. Uh, you're at the host's mercy at that point. So uh, I would not spend RCs uh, unless... If you're a very active player and the hosts are really going to give you a lot, then yes, you have to do it, but otherwise, no. Otherwise, it's not worth doing. Just just bank the RCs. Never Don't waste them. Don't waste them. The good thing about RCs is that you can comp yourself any time with them, no matter what your play is or has been. As long as you have the RCs, you can use them. One other benefit of playing with the rewards credits you should know, especially if you're at uh, Caesars, like at the Rio or whatever, if you're at a restaurant and you pay directly with your rewards credits for food, then you're not charged tax. If you charge it to your room, then you're charged tax. If you pay directly at the restaurant with your total rewards card, with your RCs, then you will get out of the tax. That's an extra 8% you're saving at restaurants in Nevada. Make sure, though, before you use your RCs that you're getting a one-to-one redemption rate. 
and I have a link to take a look at that, which restaurants are one-to-one -one and which ones are not. Don't ever use them for a 1.5-to-1 1, 1 or 2-to-1 redemption rate because you're, you're basically getting charged double, and you don't want that. That's a terrible deal. Any Caesars-owned restaurant is always going to be one-to-one. -one. Anything that's not Caesars-owned may or may not be one-to-one. -one. Often it's not. So keep that in mind. What about the restaurants at the Rio? I believe the Rio restaurants, while not that good, are all one-to-one. -one. So that's that's a separate thread about total rewards, Caesars rewards. That's called Caesars rewards slash total rewards Q&A session. Also, it's in the casinos and Las Vegas section of Poker Fraud Alert. These are both well-regarded threads. People have uh, complimented me on the wealth of information provided there, which none of it is secret. None of it is uh, unauthorized, but a lot of it is not provided to you by Caesars or is kind of hard to find. I put it all together with everything you need to know in one place, very clearly written and presented. And if you have any questions, you can always text me, 775-372-8355. I've helped out many people who've asked me questions about Caesars rewards because it can be confusing if you're not that familiar with the, with the program. And... uh I'm always happy to help. I, I want to see people get the most out of their comps and, and the most out of their uh, reward credits and earning the statuses in the, in the easiest way possible. So I want to tell you about a bad beat jackpot situation that's even worse than the one that Eric Benzamokin had. This is by a listener to the show who sent me a private message about it, and I, I couldn't believe what I read. I mean, I believe it, but it's just, it was worse than Eric's situation. If you recall last week, Eric's situation was at Hollywood Park. It took three and a half hours to verify the jackpot and pay everybody, which is an insane amount of time. They can't pay it instantly, but three and a half hours is crazy. But this was much worse. He was playing at an Indian casino in the Montreal area, and that already is a problem because Indian casinos can do what they want, even in Canada. They basically make their own rules. So he was at the uh, Playground Card Room, which is near Montreal. He was playing in a 2-2 Pot Limit Omaha game, and it had a $50,000 bad beat jackpot for the table. And uh, what happened was uh, this this hit... And unfortunately, he got the bad news from the uh, people at the casino. Remember, this is an Indian casino, the playground card room in Montreal. He got the bad news that they were not going to give him his table share of the jackpot, which was 2002 Canadian dollars, unless he waited five to seven business days. Why? Because that is the policy for everyone. It wasn't just for him. You have to wait five to seven business days to get your money. Why? They claim they have to review the tapes and make sure that everything's on the up and up and even the native commission has to review it. So if you can't stick around there for five to seven days, you're not going to get your money. So he was not from the local area. He was from Toronto, which is about 315 miles away. So he couldn't just stick around. He was going back home. It's kind of like the distance between LA and Vegas. 
Imagine if you win something in Vegas and they say you have to wait five to seven days. So he asked the obvious question. Okay, can you mail it to me or can you wire it to me? And the answer to that was no. (laughs) Can you believe that? They told him they can't wire money to him or send him checks, that he has to appear in person or otherwise he doesn't get the 2002 Canadian dollars. 315 miles away. And his options are to return there in five to seven days, hang out in Montreal for another week and wait for this, or give up the 2,000 Canadian dollars. Is that insane or what? That makes Eric Benzimokin's situation in Hollywood Park seem like it's nothing. Unbelievable. So he was furious about this. And I'm not sure what he ended up doing, actually. I don't know if... Uh, I think he was actually able to come back. I think you didn't have to come back in five to seven days. You had to come back at some point. So I think I think what happened is he came back much later. He can clarify to me what happened, but I think that's what happened. I think he came back much later to get it. But isn't that awful? You have to, you have to return in person within a like starting from a week from then to get it. That, that's horrendous. And they can't mail it to you in any way. It's one thing if you had to wait seven days with maybe a check. Here you, you have to return in person. And I think this is on purpose. I think they're doing this because they know there will be people like him who won't be around in seven days to get it. Anyone who's from out of the area may just not come back for it. Really, really dirty. So keep that in mind if you play at this uh, playground card room in Montreal. I think a poker game run on a playground would be better run than this. Really shady. All right, we're up to our final topic. Can you believe it? And it's not about poker. Not about casino gaming. Not really about sports betting, but it has a tie-in. It's about the Houston Astros in 2017 and 2018. Their sign-stealing scandal. If you've been following at all, the biggest story in sports over the past two weeks or so has been the Houston Astros sign-stealing scandal. Now, In baseball, it is legal to try to steal signs being given by the catcher where they're telling the pitcher what type of pitch to throw. If you can figure it out, if you can just look at the catcher and figure out the signs he's giving, figure it out in some way, then uh, that gives you an advantage, and that is legal in baseball. Teams have been doing this for decades. It is allowed. What is not allowed is any of the following. You cannot use any electronic means to do it. You can't uh, zoom in on the catcher using video to figure this out. Nor can you signal the batter in any way besides giving the batter signs. The batter can look at the third base coach and see signs on uh, what he thinks is coming. But you can't do other things to signal the batter, and you definitely cannot have the batter wearing some kind of electronic device that uh, signals him as to what pitch is coming. Knowing what pitch is coming in baseball is huge and gives the hitter a big advantage because an advantage the pitcher has is he can throw one of different types of pitches, and the hitter only has a very short time to react and figure out what's coming, whether it's a curveball, a fastball, a slider, whatever. So knowing what's coming gives you a big edge. The Los Angeles Dodgers last won a World Series in 1988 
I have always been a big Los Angeles Dodgers fan. I was 16 in 1988. I have never been to uh, a World Series game where the Dodgers have won the World Series because the last time they did it, I was 16. The Dodgers did not even make the World Series again until 29 years later in 2017 when they played the Houston Astros. The Houston Astros had just come off a very contentious series with the very good New York Yankees in 2017 where the Astros were victorious. And they went to play the Dodgers. It was a very tough series back and forth and the Astros ended up winning four games to three. The pivotal game five in that one was, of course, a big deal. The teams were tied 2-2, two to two, and the Astros came back in Houston and beat the Dodgers to take a 3-2 lead in the series, went back to Dodger Stadium. I actually went to that game six. Dodgers down three games to two. They won it. It was 3-3. Three to three. Final game seven, and the Astros won it in Dodger Stadium. However, what's in question is the sign stealing, which has now been verified and admitted to have occurred, that was being done electronically. It has been acknowledged and admitted that the Houston Astros were using illegal video to steal signs from opposing teams. And they did it to the Yankees, they did it to the Dodgers, they did it throughout the season, and that was the reason for a lot of their success. How much of that had to do with sign stealing their success? I'm not sure, but they definitely got a big edge from doing that. They were definitely cheating. They definitely knew it was cheating. And there's a good chance they would not have come back to beat the Dodgers in Game 5 had they not been sign stealing. Clayton Kershaw, who has been known to choke in the playoffs, nevertheless was pitching great at the World Series at Dodger Stadium, but got hammered in Houston. I have to think it's because they knew what he was going to throw. The allegations came out because of a former Houston pitcher named Mike Fires, who recently called it out and stated that the Houston Astros were doing this, an investigation was started, and yes, indeed, they were. Major League Baseball investigated and has since punished the Astros, though not harshly enough, They fined them $5 million, which is pretty much nothing for them. They took away some draft picks. They banned the general manager and the manager for a year, who were then fired by the team. And uh, that's pretty much it. So they got off pretty light. They did get to maintain their title that they won in 2017 over the Dodgers. They did not lose the title. But more has come out since then. Now, first of all, The central figure in all the cheating was a bench coach who then became the Red Sox manager the following year named Alex Cora. Alex Cora actually once played for the Dodgers, but he went on to screw the Dodgers in 2017 and perhaps 2018 as well when he faced them as uh, first a coach and then the manager of the teams facing the Dodgers in the World Series. So in 2017, he was a bench coach for the Houston Astros. It has been acknowledged by Major League Baseball from their investigation that Alex Cora was the ringleader of the sign-stealing scheme, that he developed it, that he was uh, obsessed with sign-stealing his whole career, and that he was the one who came up with the whole thing and uh, was basically in charge of the whole thing occurring. 
Alex Cora became the manager of the Red Sox, the Boston Red Sox in 2018, who then also had a great season and went on to become the American League champions and faced, yes, the Dodgers in the World Series. In 2018, the Red Sox crushed the Dodgers four games to one and won that series. You have to think with Alex Cora, the sign stealer as their manager, that they must have been stealing signs then as well. That is still under investigation, but you'd have to be pretty naive to think that wasn't going on. So it looks like the Dodgers got screwed twice in a row, first by the Astros and then by the Red Sox with Alex Cora at the helm over there. The Red Sox have fired Alex Cora upon this being revealed. There's also a belief that it's possible Alex Cora will be the first person to be banned from baseball entirely since Pete Rose got banned for gambling on his own team. So that might happen, the lifetime ban of Alex Cora, but what of the Astros? Well, there's one other thing that I want to mention. It has recently come out through a Twitter account which claimed to be related to Carlos Beltran, who was a veteran player on the 2017 Astros, who then retired. He was set to be the 2020 manager of the New York Mets, but has since been fired. He was involved in the sign-stealing scheme as well as a player. Well, someone who claimed to be a niece of Carlos Beltran, who probably wasn't, but on Twitter, but this person definitely had knowledge, insider knowledge of baseball. They tweeted things in the past that no one else knew. So they definitely were some insider in baseball. But they were tweeting that the Houston Astros were wearing buzzers. Certain players in the Astros were wearing buzzers under their uniform to receive signals as to what pitches were coming. Now, prior to this, it was believed that the communication to players was done through banging on trash cans. And that was verified that the, there was some signaling of players where trash cans would be banged in a certain way to where the players would know what's coming. But a more accurate way to transmit this information was done through buzzers, it was alleged, that the players wear under their clothes, which is really, really super against the rules in baseball. Banging on trash cans and using video surveillance to steal signs is one thing, but actually wear a buzzer to receive information about what pitch is coming. That, that's like the Mike Possible of baseball. That's really, really offensive. It is alleged that Jose Altuve, who was the MVP that year in 2017, and Alex Bregman, another excellent player on the Astros, were wearing buzzers, and that other players may have been wearing it as well, including uh, Carlos Correa and others. There was a weird video that was found of Altuve after uh, he had a game-winning hit against the Yankees in 2017, where after he rounded the bases and uh, after he had scored the game-winning run, or had the game-winning RBI, that when he was uh, when he ran back to the dugout that the he, the he was mobbed by teammates and whenever you get the walk-off RBI they will uh rip off your jersey these days well he was very very protective of his jersey he would not let them rip his jersey off you could see it in the video he's actually using both hands to hold his jersey together at the time nobody knew there was anything sinister about that but he was even asked by a reporter who thought this was weird or why he was so protective of his jersey and he said at the time that 
he was protecting his jersey from being ripped off because he's shy and that his wife got mad last time his chest got exposed. <laughs> I don't know why anyone bought that, but that's what he claimed. Uh, everyone is assuming it's because ripping off his jersey would have exposed the buzzers he was wearing. There's also been pictures found, which remind me a lot of the Mike Possel pictures, of bumps in the clothing that look like it's buzzers under their uniforms. So I really believe the buzzer thing was happening. Major League Baseball is not admitting to this buzzer part yet because that part is much worse. And I think they're afraid if they admit to the buzzers, then there's going to be pressure to suspend Altuve and Bregman and anyone else doing that. And that will be causing the suspension of major stars of the game, and baseball doesn't want that. They're trying to hope people forget about the buzzers, but people are not forgetting this. People are very angry about this. So how do I feel as a Dodgers fan, knowing that the Dodgers probably would have won the World Series in 2017 and may have won in 2018 had this cheating not been going on? Well, first of all, I don't believe that the title should be awarded to the Dodgers. Why? Because it wasn't just the Dodgers who got cheated. The Astros cheated during the regular season. The Astros also cheated in two different playoff series prior to facing the Dodgers in 2017, such as the Yankees in the American League Championships series. If the Astros didn't cheat in that one, maybe the Yankees would have won, and maybe the Yankees would have gone on to beat the Dodgers. So you can't just assume the Dodgers would have won the World Series if there was no cheating. It's very possible the Dodgers would have had a different opponent who they could have lost to. There's no way to know. So you can't award the title to the Dodgers. You can't award it to the Yankees. You can't award it to anybody else. But I feel it should be taken away from the Astros, who clearly did not earn it. They cheated their way to the title, and they cheated very clearly. Every team was informed that this is absolutely not allowed to use electronic surveillance, and they they were uh, clearly hiding what they were doing, such as the trash can banging and perhaps the buzzers to signal the players. Uh, they were definitely doing several things they knew were not allowed, and they were trying to hide the whole thing uh, from being caught. So they should not be allowed to keep that title. That title is fraudulent. There should be no title for 2017, as strange as that seems. You may say, well, you know, how could baseball stand having no World Series champion? Well, we, we had that situation. In 1994, because of the baseball strike, there was... No World Series champion. Look it up. There was no World Series champion in 1994, and, and baseball survived. So they could definitely vacate the 2017 World Series champion and the 2018 champion if it turns out that the, the, the Red Sox cheated too, which they probably did. That would be the fair thing to do is to take away any title that is achieved by cheating. That would also dissuade teams from cheating in the future, knowing that if they win through cheating, that ultimately the title will be stripped anyway if it's found out. So that should definitely be done. I do feel that Alex Cora should be banned for life from baseball. This is very egregious what he did. I feel there should be further penalties against the Houston Astros organization beyond just the losing the title. I think there should be a bigger fine. They should lose more draft picks. And uh, also against the Red Sox, if it turns out they were doing it too. And furthermore... I feel that uh, there there needs to be enough of a disincentive to this to where the fear of getting caught will really, really dissuade anyone from trying this. To where they think, look, we, we may get an edge here, but if we get caught, it's going to be so devastating to the organization 
we, we can't do it. Now, maybe they won't do this anymore because there's this fallout right now over it. But unfortunately, two World Series have been tainted by this. Unfortunately, both the Dodgers were in. And the 2019 could have been, but the Washington Nationals heard rumors about this. So they actually developed five different sets of signs to throw off the Astros. And sure enough, uh, the Washington Nationals ended up winning the World Series and the Astros shenanigans did not work. I also feel there need to be suspensions, lengthy suspensions for any player that wore a buzzer. In fact, I think the players who did participate in this should be punished. But especially ones wearing buzzers. Anyone who is found to be wearing buzzers needs to get a harsh punishment. Maybe like a year suspension. Something pretty heavy. This type of stuff cannot be allowed. And it does anger me as a Dodgers fan who's been waiting since I've been 16 years old for the Dodgers to win a World Series. And it looks like they should have won a World Series. But we're cheated out of it. And if you're a Yankees fan, you should be pissed too. So big black eye in baseball. I know baseball wishes this would go away, but it's not going to. And this is also not a good time of year for this to be revealed for baseball because right now people aren't paying attention to all that much in sports. Let's look at what time of year this is. So basketball, we're kind of in mid-season. People don't care about the regular season as much anymore in basketball. It's all about the playoffs, which start in April. So we're a while away from April, and that's when everyone's going to really start caring about the NBA. And same with the NHL, if you're a hockey fan. Again, they're nowhere near the playoffs right now. Baseball's not going at all, so anyone thinking about baseball is thinking about this. We do have NFL. We are approaching the Super Bowl. We are approaching the... uh, game before the Super Bowl with four teams left. And if you really think about it, though, the bottom line is there's two games left in the NFL. There's two days of play left. There's this Sunday, and then two weeks from then is Super Bowl Sunday. And that's it. There's there's two game days left of the NFL in the season. And that's it. Four teams left, two game days left. So there's not that much to talk about. There's a lot of days people are sitting around who are sports fans, reading sports news, and the main news is this. It's not like the NBA playoffs, where there's a different story every day from the NBA postseason drowning things out, or the baseball playoffs, where that's happening, or even the NHL playoffs. This is kind of a time of year where there's not that much to talk about sports-wise other than the Super Bowl, but... You know, there's only two games left. So how much is there to talk about? There's a lot of attention on this for that reason as well. But this is really frustrating to me. You may say, well, game seven, the Dodgers got crushed, and that was a Dodger stadium. Well, it's possible that signs they stole in Houston, they were able to still see in Dodger Stadium. So they didn't have to steal the signs in Dodger Stadium. They already had them. That's possible why they won in Dodger Stadium. It was assumed at the time when Hugh Darvish got crushed in Game 7 that uh, he was tipping his pitches, but I think it may have been sign stealing. That's why he got crushed in Dodger Stadium, that his uh, signs were stolen prior to that. 
And then they crushed him again at Dodger Stadium. He got crushed in both games he pitched in the World Series. So that's really too bad for the Dodgers. I saw a winning game, as I mentioned, at Game 6. But boy, that's really frustrating to learn about. And Dodgers fans are very angry, and justifiably so. I am one of them. I hope this story doesn't go away. But I'm going to go away. Wow, this is a late show. It's ending at 4 a.m. And uh, I have some work ahead of me to put this in the archives, go through all the timestamps, do everything I have to do to get this up. And uh, thank you for joining me here on Poker Fraud Alert Radio. Nice long show here. We went uh, about, it looks like, I think six and a half hours, if I remember when we started properly. Yeah, something like, no, a little more than six. Feels longer. All righty. We should be back a week from today. Friday, January 24th. Super Bowl weekend, uh, I may be busy, so I may have to do that a different day. Might be able to do it Friday night. I'll, I'll let you know when we get to Super Bowl weekend which uh, which date I'm going to do that show. But there will be a show, don't worry. I want to thank Trader Ruski for being here tonight, as always. Thank you, Eric Benzamokin, for the money for the $50 free roll. $50 next week from him as well. If you have anything you want to ask me about or talk about, 775-372-8355. You can still text me right now if you want. I'll be up a little while. This is from Mumbles Badly, a listener to the show, a truck driver. He says, I'm a Red Sox fan. I totally agree with your recommendations for how Major League Baseball should up the punishments for the illegal science deal. Okay, that's good. From the 507, referring to the story about that crazy guy who wanted the one-cent toothbrush, he said, Welcome to blue check marks on Twitter. Morons. <laughs> Often that's true. All righty. Los Angeles Poker Classic, the LAPC at Commerce is coming up. I'll probably play a few events there. Not 100% sure, but I've been doing that. Come close, but haven't cashed in anything. I've had a lot of bubble-ish situations there. And, yeah, that's pretty much it. Nothing more to say. I'm spent. Told you everything I want to tell you. Told you everything that you deserve to know. And we should have a typical year here on Poker Fraud Alert Radio, I'm thinking. Shows from the World Series. Shows pretty much every week for the foreseeable future. Thank you very much for listening. As always, I'm so appreciative I have listeners here at all. Really, I, I'm very glad you guys want to listen to me. That's why I do the show still. It's not for the money, that's for sure. Good night and shalom. <laughs>